Hello and welcome to episode 3.1 of History of the Atlantic World, the start of our new series, Conquest of the Americas. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for listening. Before we dive into the material, though, I need to ask for just a minute of your time. Because I need help to produce quality episodes faster, and there's basically two easy ways that you can pitch in. Now first, please take a moment to share, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Now, especially if you're listening on iTunes, because each written review the podcast gets actually triggers algorithms that govern which shows get promoted to potential listeners, and the more... Uh, the more folks who take a little bit of time to do this uh, helps to make sure that as many people get to go along this journey through time with us. So if you find yourself enjoying this long-form, left-leaning history show starring me, your allegedly hilarious host, please take a moment to, to do that, to share, subscribe, rate, and review. Now, the other way you can help is to donate to the podcast's Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Atlantic World. Now, episodes are always going to be free, uh, but actually they do cost a decent chunk of change uh, for me to do the research and to produce each show, and it's a tremendous investment of time. Con- contributions really help cover the costs, like getting history books and funding future projects, uh, hoping to turn Rise of the Conquistadors and People of the Sun into books, um, and when that happens, uh, you can bet your behind that patrons uh, of the Atlantic World podcast will be getting a free book. Anyway, so help in. Finance the show. You can do so for as little as $1 per month on patreon.com slash atlanticworld, or by clicking on the link of the SoundCloud page where I host the site. Now, what's really great about Patreon is that since you can help out with as little as $1 per month, that translates into really just a couple of bucks per show. For the amount of content that each show is turning out to be, that's a really great value. I think we've got, I've got about 30 hours uh, up already, not including this episode. Anyway, uh, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate the support. Now, uh, finally, if you're interested in social media updates, uh, you can find the History of the Atlantic World podcast on Facebook by searching for at Atlantic World History or on Twitter at Atlantic 1492. Um, Now, if I can ramble on for a second longer, I I think I'm going to start uploading these shows to YouTube, um, too. I'm not sure, but uh, if you have uh, an opinion on that, uh, let me know. Anyway, again, I really appreciate written reviews. Uh, since they help spread the podcast to others, and not to, men- not to mention, uh, they actually give me a chance to read feedback. And with that said, on to the show. Now, to this point, this podcast, which technically begins in the year 1492, and thus far consists of 15 episodes, like I said, roughly 30 hours of content, well, we haven't yet really reached 1492, but that changes today. 
Because today we're going to discuss the four voyages of a man who hardly requires introduction. So great is his renown that his presence is easily invoked by simple mention of the year 1492. Simultaneously, he is someone whose life and legacy has actually been disfigured over time and laughably simplified. I mean, really, to the extent that very few people today actually understand uh, who he was. He, quote-unquote, discovered the New World. He acquired the title Admiral of the Ocean Sea. And he's known to school children everywhere. He is a man so famous, or perhaps I should say so infamous, that if I mention to you that I have not yet said his name, it would merely serve to belie the fact that you know exactly who it is I speak of. This is further demonstrated that without even mention of 1492 or his title, Admiral of the Ocean Sea, you might even know exactly who I am talking about if I simply called him by his nationality, the Genoan. I'm talking, of course, about Christopher Columbus. Now, before we get into the guts of the episode, let's break down what sources we've been using. Uh, I've got a couple of books here by Samuel Elliott Morrison. He's sort of the, 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 the traditional expert on Columbus. Um, anyway, the, the, the series I have is entitled The European Discovery of America. It's broken into two volumes, The Southern Voyages and The Northern Voyages. Now, for this episode, I actually, I think I only consulted The Southern Voyages, um, and especially uh, Morrison's sections on life at sea. Morrison is also, in addition to an ex- be, having been an expert on Columbus, was an expert on nautical life. Now, with that said, his work on Columbus himself is a bit dated. So, uh, instead, um, to help us guide us along through the voyages, I used Lawrence Beargreen's Columbus, The Four Voyages. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the voyages themselves after this podcast, I highly recommend Beargreen's book. Now, if you're already a bit familiar with the tale we're about to, I'm about to tell, but you want to learn more about the man himself, I would also highly recommend Felipe Fernandez Armesto's Columbus. Fernandez Armesto was extremely helpful in my first series, Rise of the Conquistadors, and now, during the research for this episode, I've really I've become even more appreciative for his skill as a historian. Um, anyway, uh, Carl Orton Sowers, the Early Spanish Main is a likewise fantastic book on the uh, topics. Sauer is like Morrison, uh, in that he was writing about 40 or 50 years ago. So the book is a bit dated. But with that said, Sauer is an expert on the Caribbean, uh, on what the Caribbean would have been like at the dawn of the, of the 16th century. And, and really, the Early Spanish Main is a must-read for anyone who wants to know more about first encounters between Europeans and Americans in the Caribbean. Now, unfortunately, Columbus's logbook was lost long ago, but uh, J.M. Cohen's The Four Voyages of Christopher Columbus is about as good as it gets as a a primary source narrative of the voyages. Uh, Cohen edited and translated letters and other dispatches, and uh, he added that in with the sections of Columbus's logbook and other writings from Columbus that we do have. Uh, and he combined that with other writings from Columbus's son, Ferdinand. 
And um, really, like I said, it's just as close to a first-hand primary source for Columbus's voyages as is, as is possible. Um, in addition, an Italian historian who was contemporary to Columbus named Peter Martyr got his hands on an awful lot of documents at the time, and he also interviewed numerous conquistadors, and that ultimately resulted in his classic work, De Orb Novo, The Eight Decades of Peter Martyr. And that's going to provide another source that we I drew upon for this episode. Dr. Eric Williams, uh, Documents of West Indian History, is going to further round out that pool of primary sources. Um, Dr. Williams provides an excellent anthology of documents regarding a variety of topics in Caribbean history. Uh, Eric Williams is actually a legendary historian, and not to mention was also the Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago. We're going to actually return to him in, in, in several future episodes. Um, now, the final source I have consulted to create this episode is a conquistador. His name is Bartolome de las Casas. Now, he was not on the first Columbus voyage, but he did leave Spain at the age of 18, bound for the Indies on the fleet of Nicolas de Ovando. He participated in the conquest of Cuba and was rewarded by land with land and Indians, which was the typical reward for successful conquistadors. Um, but in 1514, Las Casas had a change of heart. Earlier in his life, he uh, actually became the first priest ordained in the New World, and maybe a later religious experience transformed him. But at any rate, in 1514, Las Casas began preaching condemnation of the Spanish conquest, especially regarding their treatment of native people. Now, over the course um, of a year or so, he became increasingly disenchanted. Eventually, he freed his own slaves. He worked tirelessly afterwards, both as a historian and, uh, of the conquest uh, and in defending the interests of Native Americans. Now, he actually didn't make much headway in that regard throughout his life until 1550. That's when the emperor Charles V ordered a meeting between Las Casas, as defender of the Indians, and a man named Juan Gaines de Sepúlveda, if I'm pronouncing that right, who was a leading humanist in Spain at the time. And he mounted an intellectual defense of aggression against uh, Native Americans based on the doctrine of just war. A panel of judges heard both arguments. In the end, they sided with Las Casas. Now, the court actually feared public outcry, and the decision was kept secret. Uh, and in fact, the Spanish government, after that, slow-walked the end of Indian slavery. Um, but Las Casas wrote a number of works, and not all of them have been translated fully into English, unfortunately. His most famous tract, though, uh, is The Devastation of the Indies. It's an eyewitness account of grotesque cruelties routinely seen in the early Spanish colonies. Now, with that said, if you are an ambitious would-be historian and you speak Spanish, then by all means, please feel free to translate Las Casas' um, monstrous work, the Historia de los Indies, uh, which has not been fully translated into English. You'd probably make a couple bucks if you, if you did that. Um, now, anyway, there are a number of lies we learn about history. For example, one of them is that history repeats itself. If that were true, we would be out on the plains following a herd of buffalo or mastodon, or perhaps we'd be in a cave somewhere painting pictures of antelopes on a rock. History does not repeat itself. But with that said, it sure does rhyme sometimes. 
Another lie we learn about history is that we cannot judge the people who lived in the past by modern standards. Now, if for some reason you've never heard this before, uh, let me tell you. You are free to judge whoever or whatever you want, however you want. Though your mother would probably tell you not to be too judgmental. Now, right now, I'm telling you that it is okay to judge the people who lived in the past however you'd like. I don't believe in creating suspense, though, and I want you to know that at the end of this episode, I will tell you the opposite. I will tell you why it's important not to be overly judgmental. Now, everything has a history, even words. The word genocide did not exist during the lifetime of Christopher Columbus or Bartolomé de las Casas, the reformed conqueror of Cuba. But what Las Casas reported about the Caribbean can only be described as genocide today. When we condemn episodes in history that include murder, rape, torture, we are not judging them by modern standards. We are judging them by timeless standards of how we should treat our fellow human beings. At any rate, Las Casas shall be our moral guide the North Star to our moral compass, if you will, in this and in our next episode as well. So if I ever call any conquistador any bad names, maybe a low-down, good-for-nothing son-of-a-bitch or something like that, I want you to know that I'm not only judging them by my own standards of what is right and wrong. I am judging them by the standards of the day by the standards by which the reformed conquistador Bartolomé de las Casas has judged them. Now, nobody is perfect. Las Casas' ideas for freeing the slaves involved replacing them with African slaves. Now, Las Casas experienced firsthand the death and destruction wrought in the Caribbean by his fellow conquistadors, and he honestly believed that by replacing the Taino slaves, who kept dying, with African slaves, Portugal had established the slave trade on the African coast uh, during the course of the 1400s, that somehow fewer people would die. Now, he almost certainly felt this way out of some sort of racist notion about how Indians couldn't work hard and survive, or how Africans were able to work really hard and not die, or both of those, both of those things. But either way, the reason I'm telling you this is to demonstrate two things for you. The first is this. People are complicated. They make decisions. Some are good, some are bad. And while most people try to do their best, sometimes they really fuck up. You should keep that in mind, and beyond just this episode. People are complicated. If you're going to judge them, which you should, you should keep that in mind. The second point I want to make clear is that no matter what your intentions are, not everything will turn out the way you want it to. Now, That leaves us in a bit of a quandary, because on the one hand, I need to tell you the story that Bartolomé de las Casas tells, that the initiation of Spanish rule in the Caribbean led to a subsequent genocide of the Indies. Columbus initiates this, and he's very much an active participant at first, but over time, he actually becomes less and less relevant. I want to make sure that by doing this episode on Columbus and his four voyages, I'm not putting distance between him and the genocidal regime which he helped install on Hispaniola. 
But on the other hand, this entire podcast is made possible because of Christopher Columbus. As I said earlier, 1492 evokes, I mean, it's a date that evokes a person. And there's not many people in history who can stake such a claim. The only two examples I can think of off the top of my head, uh, from my United States cultural background anyway, are 1776 and the Founding Fathers. That's a whole bunch of guys, not just one. And uh, the Ides of March is Julius Caesar. Um, well, I guess I guess we can remember remember the 5th of November, now that I'm thinking about it. But anyway, if there's anyone who actually deserves an episode of this podcast devoted to them, it is Christopher Columbus. So I think the answer to my quandary, I found the answer to my quandary, was to do this episode kind of as a two-parter with the next episode. And to add this disclaimer that I am not separating Columbus from the atrocities committed uh, on Hispaniola and for what his colonial enterprise ended up becoming, which is the first genocide of the Caribbean. But Columbus is just too damned important of a historical figure to not do an episode on. Now, Columbus was a human being, in my ultimate judgment, a contemptible one. But human beings are complex creatures. And that's my explanation for my feelings towards Columbus. You see, the more I read about him, the more complex my feelings towards him have become. You know, a big part of me hates him, you see. But there are things about him that are admirable. But beyond both of these emotions, the more I researched about Columbus, you know, honestly, the more I found I pitied him above all else. Now, as for exactly why I feel that way, we'll become manifest as our episode unfolds. As for now, I think I've been rambling long enough with this introduction to the episode and my sources. Now, if you've been listening for a while, I'm sure you're aware that I'm a little bit long-winded sometimes. But, uh... Since this is sort of the first uh, real episode of History of the Atlantic World, uh, you might happen to be a new listener, so strap in. We're in for a wild ride. Now, if I'm being honest, I think a big reason of why a part of me likes Columbus is because of my Italian grandfather, Joseph Vialli. Now, I listen to the Joe Rogan experience a good bit. Don't judge me. And, And while sometimes I get really irritated with Joe... I mean, how many hours can you really spend talking about DMT and trans women wrestling? But on the other time, on the other hand, sometimes Joe has some really great insights. One of those in particular is that I, he mentioned something that he tries to see every person in the world as a baby because they used to be a baby. Even some of the worst people you'll ever meet in your life were once babies, innocent little babies. Maybe they didn't get enough love. That's why they ended up the way they are. Now, Columbus was not that baby. He got plenty of love. I believe, anyway, he had a very loving relationship with his family. At one point in time, he was just an Italian kid growing up in Genoa. Once upon a time, some of my ancestors were just poor kids in Italy. And they, like Columbus, wanted to be somebody. So they came across the Atlantic to America. Now, Columbus, just a kid from Italy, grew up wanting to be a baller, a shot caller. 
He wanted 20-inch blades on his Impala. So when Columbus grew up, he did the 15th century equivalent of hit the highway, making money the flyway. There's got to be a better way. Now, if you can understand the comparison to the immortal words of Little Troy, you have a pretty decent understanding of young Columbus's motivations growing up. Now, the reason I say Columbus had a wonderful family life is in part because a big part of Italian culture uh, is the importance of the family. Now, family is, of course, important in every culture. Uh, but many Italian city-states, Genoa amongst them, combined family bonds with business interests in ways that differed uh, than in many other parts of the world. The quote-unquote family business isn't strictly an Italian invention. I mean, it's a time-honored tradition of obtaining wealth and status, especially for minority groups throughout history. Minorities were often precluded from obtaining land in ancient days, and so starting a businesses was an alternative means to wealth than, say, farming or herding. Um, but with that said, in Columbus's time, many Italians were engaged in seaborne trade. Now, Columbus was not born into a wealthy family of Genoese merchants. He was born into a more humble home. He was born Cristoforo Colombo to a weaver named Domenico, perhaps sometime around 1451 or 1452. Cristoforo yearned to escape Genoa and achieve worldly success. He never wrote or spoke much of his father or his mother, Susanna. But at the end of his life, Columbus remarked, quote, I never had a better friend in fair weather or foul than my brothers, unquote. Columbus had two brothers. Bartolome Columbus spent years trying to obtain patronage for the Columbus family in various royal courts and was the right-hand man of Columbus's later attempts to establish a colony in the New World. His other brother, Diego Columbus, accompanied Columbus on his second voyage. And Now, the three Columbus brothers didn't necessarily grew up poor, poor. His father uh, was a weaver and the landlord of a tavern. But they, like I said, weren't wealthy merchants. Uh, for example, in 1473, Columbus's father, Domenico, was under pressure to sell his house to creditors. Um, they were a middle-class household in a world full of kings and nobles. On his first voyage, his shipmates complained that all Columbus wanted was to be a great lord, and he was risking his life and their own in an attempt to do so. Now, because Columbus grew up a Genoese boy of modest origins, he received an education from the Woolweavers Guild, to which his father belonged. It was meager in comparison to wealthier children, but he did learn Latin, geography, and navigation. All three would become useful skills later in life. Latin was employed for public documents and the like, of course. Um, in addition to Latin, Columbus actually learned to speak Spanish and Portuguese, though exactly how and when that happened is a mystery today. One of his friends characterized him as a man of great intellect but little education. Now, that didn't mean Columbus stayed uneducated. He was a voracious reader. He studied as much as he could, purchasing books uh, to do so, but nobody actually ever taught him how to learn. And so while Columbus slowly became a learned man over the course of his life, he actually never became that good at applying his knowledge to solving problems. Like, nobody ever taught him how to best use 
his mind to uh, engage in critical thinking, I should say. Fernandez Armesto has this to say about Columbus's intellect, quote, His mind suffered the defects that a guideless and random absorption of knowledge can impart, like a ship at large upon a starless ocean. He read intently, but not critically. He acquired, over a long time, a mass of information, but he was never able to dispose of it to his best advantage. He could mimic a variety of styles in a number of languages, but he always made silly or risable errors. He would leap in his attempts at reasoning to bizarre conclusions on the flimsiest evidence, which a more balanced preparation might have taught him to eschew. He selected his reading obsessively, choosing whatever supported his own theories, rejecting or distorting whatever would not fit." Unquote. In many ways, thus, Columbus is a, a modern man in this regard able to pick and choose which knowledge he will learn and accept and reject what does not fit his worldview. Fake news, but I digress. On the other hand, Columbus learned the sea as well as anyone ever did in the entire history of mankind. Columbus wrote in 1501 that, quote, from a very small age I went sailing upon the sea, which very occupation inclines all who follow it to wish and to learn the secrets of the world, unquote. His son and chronicler, Ferdinand Columbus, says his father was at sea at the age of 14, though it appears he was also still involved, at least part-time, in the family weaving business uh, until at least 1472. Now, that doesn't mean Columbus couldn't have been at sea to buy and sell cloth for the family business, but at any rate... From 1472 through the mid-1480s, Columbus undertook an impressive set of voyages. He learned the tree of, and he learned the trade of seamanship. Now, of course, he sailed in Genoa's home waters, the Ligurian and Tyranian seas, but he also sailed to the far eastern limits of the Mediterranean, to the port of Chios. He, tra he traversed the Atlantic far and wide as well. He voyaged to Iceland in the North Atlantic to the Azores in the Central Atlantic, and to the Gulf of Guinea in the South Atlantic. He was able to go on so many sea voyages because Genoese society was heavily steeped in the maritime trade. For Now, for the long version of this story, please check out Rise of the Conquistadors, my first series. But for us now, I think it's sufficient to know that Genoa was a maritime power in the late Middle Ages, with a far-flung empire of merchant colonies that existed alongside and inside of, of other societies. Uh, Spanish, Portuguese, and Muslim sea routes um, were all uh, able to be, to be taken by Genoese uh, sailors. Now, this gave Genoa a disproportionately large stake in maritime trade in the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic in the 15th century. Now, despite this, though, Genoa never developed in its own colonies. But Genoese capital funded many Portuguese and Spanish colonial ventures. And so kind of semi-covert Genoese colonies actually existed within larger colonial enterprises. And the Genoese had a tendency to recreate many replicas of Genoa they went. Little Genoas actually popped up in many port cities in the Mediterranean and later in the Atlantic. Thus, one anonymous poet wrote, quote, so many are the Genoese, and so extended everywhere, that they go to any place they please, 
and recreate their city there. Now, Italian business practices were highly advanced for the time. Early forms of capitalism sprang up uh, in Italy that were involved in the shipping industry. For example, Genoa's chief rival, uh, Venice, um, had something called the Venetian Arsenal, which was a factory that made warships. Um, But with that said, companies that involved transferable shares were rare in Genoa and throughout Italy. Um, And those that did exist, for example, the Maona firm, consisted of members who would literally adopt the Maona surname and become part of the family. Far more common than, say, early corporations then were family businesses. Now, like I said, Columbus was not a member of of any of the Italian merchant clans, but he worked for one, the Centurioni firm. His apprenticeship began with maritime expeditions along the Ligurian Riviera. He went as far west as Nice, Nice, France, and as far south as Corsica, which is the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean and was a prized colony of Genoa. Later, Columbus sailed a thousand miles to the Greek island of Chios in the Aegean Sea, another colony of the Genoese. The Centurioni firm gave Columbus the independence he desired to see the world and learn to sail. Working as he was within this Genoese trading world, which stretched from the eastern Mediterranean to all points known in the Atlantic. Now, on one such voyage, Columbus was on a ship named the Bichala. The ship carried a cargo of mastic, and it was bound for Portugal, Flanders, and England. It was May 1476. Columbus was somewhere around 24 years old. He traveled in a convoy of ships. There were three galleys and a battleship in addition to his ship, the Bichala, the ship he was on, I should say, not his ship. Now, the reason for that this convoy was necessary actually became apparent uh, on August 13th. That's when the calm of the voyage was broken by the massive fleet of Guillaume de Casanova, a French privateer who had a, a penchant for finding legal technicalities which allowed him to attack peaceful merchant vessels. A violent battle ensued. In the end, it came down to hand-to-hand combat. And at the end of the day, three of the Genoese ships and four of Casanova's were sank. The Bichala was amongst the casualties. Columbus leapt into the sea as the ship went down. He wasn't a strong swimmer, but he was able to grab onto a piece of buoyant, uh, a buoyant piece of the shipwreck. Lawrence Burgreen says Columbus was wounded, though it's not clear how, and that despite his injury and his exhaustion, he was able to make it six miles to the shore. There, he reached the ancient town of Lagos, on the southeastern extreme of Portugal. And that was a fortuitous place for Columbus to land, because from Lagos, he received aid by the locals, who took pity on shipwrecked victims such as he. And from Lagos, Columbus made a short journey to the nearby city of Sangres. A generation earlier, Sagres was the headquarters of the infamous Don, Henrique the Navigator. And during that time, he gathered at Sangres mariners, shipbuilders, and cosmologists. For an ambitious young mariner out of Genoa, there was perhaps no better place in the world to be located. Sangres, like many other coastal cities, had a Genoese district, 
where Columbus took refuge with his compatriots. They were enthralled by Columbus's story, how he survived an attack against the dastardly pirate Casanova. And in a world steeped full of chivalry, where in the minds of many Europeans, you know, just, just a man in his caravel against the world just might be the greatest hero of all time, you know, that kind of thinking. Well, this made Columbus a hero. And some of the local Genoese had the experience in navigation themselves to see Columbus wasn't just a heroic figure. Well, he was a young man with talent. Now, as a result of this, Columbus was sent to Lisbon, Portugal's chief seaport, filled with the most advanced ships of the world. Lisbon also contained a little Genoa. And the wealthy Genoese shipowners and slave traders there, after hearing Columbus's story, quote-unquote, made Columbus. In the words of Felipe Fernandez Armesto, no longer would Columbus be the seaman son of a weaver. He was now made a captain, and he put his experience and knowledge of the sea to use by traveling farther than he ever had before, to Iceland, to England. And that's where he may have heard strange tales of craft coming across the sea, bearing strange people who arrived by means of the currents from the west. He also went south to the Azores and to Africa. And there, Columbus became familiar with both how the burgeoning Portuguese slave trade operated and also how the Atlantic currents operated, how they, which could then be used to take ships northeast or southwest, and made his plan possible. Now, the Genoese traded bulk goods. Wool and other cloth were a big part of this. So, too, was human cargo. And with the new sorts of sailing ships that were, had been invented, the caravels, um, which required far fewer crew and victuals than oar-powered vessels, um, which could really only be used to trade luxury goods, and so much of the ship's space would be taken up by crew and the food and water they needed. Um, at any rate, um, this was, was where the Genoese made their, their money. Now, Genoese merchants were the first who brought sugar plantations from the Muslim world into the Christian world. They did so from their contacts in Granada, which was conquered by Spain in 1492, but was utilized by the Genoese both before and after the conquest. Granada was a region which produced silk and sugar. And once Chinese silk became rare in Europe after the fall of Constantinople, the Genoese were able to take advantage of this scarcity, and they became quite wealthy. Now, once Portuguese and Spanish conquistadors began discovering and uh, conquering islands in the Atlantic, the Genoese had additional opportunities to finance more sugar mills, as well as opportunities to purchase slaves in Africa. Now, I talked like I said, a lot more about this in my first series, Rise of the Conquistador. But there's a reason I'm bringing up all, these, all this Genoese wealth right now. And that is that all this wealth that the Genoese obtained is actually the big reason why Columbus was the last great Genoan explorer. Genu uh, the, the Genoese were pioneers, participants in the European age of exploration, but had been so successful in the 13th and 14th centuries after a long apprenticeship during the medieval uh, period and as pirates that by Columbus's day, the Genoans had 
largely withdrawn from the billowing sail to relax and enjoy their bloated purses instead. Columbus was able to make great use of this Genoese wealth and their willingness to invest in colonial ventures, and ultimately, it would be the Genoese in the Iberian Peninsula who uh, had lots of wealth and close connections with the crowns of Spain and Portugal um, that enabled Columbus to get investment money. And through these connections, he also obtained audiences with royal figures in Portugal and Spain. Now, one of Columbus's greatest abilities, aside for his skill as a navigator, was that he could be very persuasive. And perhaps that's how he convinced a noblewoman named Donna Felipa Perestreo to marry him in 1478 or 1479, or more likely he convinced her father. Perestreo was the lord of the smallest, poorest, and remotest fife in the Portuguese monarchy, the island of Porto Santo, which is the, a tiny island next to Madeira. Now, for Columbus, though, a weaver's son from Genoa, this was an enormous leap forward in European society. The couple had a son, Diego, and then Dona Felipa died, which incidentally left Columbus free to continue wandering around the Atlantic, acting as a sugar buyer for the Centurione clan. Now, by the 1480s, Columbus then was an expert at sailing the Mediterranean and out in the Atlantic. He often went from Lisbon to the Azores, Bristol, the Canary Islands, to the African coast, Columbus boasted by the mid-1480s he had sailed every sea so far traversed. Now, irrespective of his being a widower, Columbus was employed by and well-connected to Genoese capital. He was knowledgeable about the tricky Atlantic currents, only recently mastered by Portuguese navigation to and from Africa, and, and this was essential to Columbus's plans. And now uh, he was married into a noble family, so he had a lot going for him. And he leveraged these advantages into attempt at getting the, the 15th century uh, version of Rich and Famous. Now, in Columbus's day, in the world that Columbus lived in, the Atlantic Ocean, which was known at the time as the Ocean Sea, it was an enticing world of opportunity. The Azores, the Canaries, Madeira, and the Cape Verde Islands had all been unknown to Europe until relatively recently. Um, the Canaries being the oldest discovered before Columbus in the 14th century by another Genoan named Lanzarote Malocello, and the Cape Verde Islands were discovered around 1460. In the 1470s, islands were discovered off the in the Gulf of Guinea. In the 1480s, Diago Cao and Bartolomeo Diaz traced the West African coast all the way to its southernmost limit, and simultaneously... Italians and Iberians were also tra trading farther north with Bristol more and more, um, and sometimes had the secondary intention during these merchant uh, expeditions of searching and finding new islands. Now, this chivalrous desire to quote-unquote discover and conquer new lands was so great in Columbus's day that maps of the 15th century even usually included additional imaginary islands in the Atlantic. There was St. Brendan's Island, St. Ursula Island, Brazil, and Antilia, and all of these really just existed in the minds of Europeans um, during Columbus's era. Um, 
And because of all of this, uh, these real and imagined islands that were being dis- discovered, or well, I guess not discovered in the, ima- in the imaginary island part, um, from 1462 to 1487, the Portuguese crown sponsored no fewer than eight voyages out into the Atlantic to discover new islands. So many people have presumed that Columbus was some sort of solitary individual, struggling against the prevailing wisdom of the day in order to achieve dreams that others couldn't conceive of. But he was anything but that. Columbus didn't have a unique vision or plan. His idea for a new Atlantic voyage fit in perfectly well in an age of speculation and investment and exploration of the ocean sea. Navigating the Atlantic was one of the few paths of upward mobility in the European world. And Columbus was not the only figure of his day to take that path. For a young man from Genoa, who just wanted to, really wanted to be a baller, a shut collar, becoming a ship captain, and then obtaining royal patronage for a voyage, was exactly the way to do it. So Columbus, this young, ambitious man, starts developing a plan for exploration. One that will enable him to discover and obtain lands, titles, and riches that he could then pass down to his family. He takes that plan to the king of Portugal to obtain patronage for a voyage of discovery. Columbus planned to obtain new islands and wealth for both the crown and himself as the ruler of these new islands. Or perhaps I should say, rather than one plan, he actually went to Portugal with three separate plans. All of them involved him taking a fleet into the Atlantic. Now, basically, what this means is that Columbus became a professional lobbyist around 1485. And for six or seven years, he argued that he needed command of a fleet to discover new islands in the Atlantic, or to reach the Indies, or to reach the Antipodes, which is the conjectured opposite world developed by Greek philosophers a couple thousand years before. Um, Later, Columbus infamously is convinced 100% that he reached the Indies, thus names uh, the Taino people of the Caribbean Indians. Uh, And in fact, uh, you know, he's famous for later dying, convinced he'd reached Asia when everyone around him was starting to realize that that was the Americas and they were new continents. Well, believe it or not, Columbus didn't begin thinking that way. When he began searching for patronage in 1484 or 1485, He wasn't really that focused at all as to where his patrons would send him, only that they would. Before we get into that, let me just tell you briefly that the idea of the Antipodes was actually very controversial. The idea flew in the face of the Bible, but it was popular amongst humanist circles. And there were no shortage of folk, believe it or not, who learned about Columbus's voyage after he returned, and they stated unequivocally that he must have reached the Antipodes despite Columbus's assertions that he had reached India. At any rate, it is clear that before Columbus obtained the official patronage for his first voyage, he didn't really care where he was going. Rather, this young, ambitious boy from Genoa who grew up, wanted to be rich and famous, was more concerned about whether he would arrive on the European social scene than exactly where he would arrive on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, Jesse, if Columbus didn't have a specific destination in mind before he left Spain, 
Well, how the hell did he have such a specific destination in mind by the time he got back? Well, the answer to that, my curious friend, is very much related to how Columbus got his sponsorship in the first place. You see, much of Columbus's seafaring life to this point was spent working under the protection of the Portuguese crown. And so it was here where he first sought patronage, probably around 1484. Now, I'm not exactly sure why, but his attempts to receive a commission failed. I suspect, though, because it was his ideas were too broad. He wanted to go to the New Indies. He wanted to go to the Indies. He wanted to find new islands. He wanted to find the Antipodes. And he wanted to be the viceroy of all of it. The king of Portugal thought maybe it's not such a good idea to sign that contract. But he didn't think it was foolish to send people out into the Atlantic for that, because three years after Columbus first arrived at court in 1487, a Flemish adventurer named Ferdinand van Ullman received a commission from the king of Portugal to do something very similar to what Columbus was attempting. Van Ullman received permission from the Portuguese crown to go out into the Atlantic Ocean to find islands and mainland. He didn't find it, of course. It has been posited, though, that perhaps the king advisors didn't believe in the existence of Japan, what Europeans called Sipangu, and, or that perhaps Columbus made demands about his rights to the profits of any discovery and conquest, and the Portuguese found Columbus's demands unacceptable. Columbus did ask to be made a don, so that his descendants would be nobles. He also wanted a title. He preferred Knight of the Golden Spurs. No, make that two titles. He also wanted to be Admiral of the Ocean Sea. That sounds nice, yes. Further, Columbus thought uh, he should be made Viceroy and Governor in perpetuity of any islands or terra firma he discovered. He would get one-tenth of all the profits from any commerce under his jurisdiction. And these requests were pretty much near megalomaniacal. They didn't go over very well in the Portuguese court, but the new king, Zhao II, did entertain Columbus. In the end, though, he decided against Columbus's plan. But it wasn't until 1487 that Columbus realized that his efforts in Portugal weren't really going anywhere. Um, from Zhao's perspective, there really wasn't any need of Columbus. You see, Columbus wanted to get to the Indies by going west, but Zhao was getting closer and closer to reaching the Indian Ocean by going south which itself, of course, is a fantastic story that I told in Rise of the Conquistadors. Columbus was nearing 40 by 1487, an advanced age for a sea captain, and had little to show for his ambitions. His Portuguese wife was dead. That meant he was a widower in a foreign land. And as much as he wished for more personal triumph in Portugal, he was forced to move on. He went to Spain and saw Ferdinand and Isabella, Meanwhile, he also sent his brother Bartholomew to England to explore possibilities of patronage from Henry Tudor. Now, what Portugal did do for Columbus, though, was give him a sense of clarity. No longer was he hanging around court looking for the Indies, New Islands, and the Antipodes. Uh, in fact, the Treaty of Tordesillas officially prevented Spanish ships from traversing into the waters of Africa. Um, the stipulations of the treaty meant that only Portuguese merchants were supposed to sail there. And so Columbus focused his efforts on going west. And instead of looking for new islands or the Antipodes, he focused only on getting to Asia and the Indies. He told the Spanish court about how easily the riches 
described earlier, centuries earlier, by Marco Polo, would be flowing into Spanish lands in no time. He didn't even need a fleet. A mere three ships would be enough to establish trading relationships. The advisors to the Spanish crab told crown told Columbus that what he said could in no way possibly be true. In no uncertain terms, they told the future admiral of the ocean sea that his plan would not receive royal backing. Now, it's often been said that these Spanish experts believed that the world was flat. Of course, this is baloney. But they, like experts in Portugal and all over Europe, had serious doubts about Columbus's math. Columbus was self-taught. Like I said, he picked and chose specific books to come up with an imagined geography of the Earth, which was only two-thirds the size of the actual planet. The experts in Spain were completely unconvinced by Columbus and his phony baloney math, and Columbus was devastated by their response. An incredulous no? He was so concerned that he actually wrote to Jao II and asked permission to come back to Portugal, which he got, and in 1488 he was back at Lisbon. Unfortunately for him, though, Zhao II had no intention of going along with Columbus's plan. Instead, he was tasked with the routine job of being a backup navigator for uh, one man named Bartolomeo Diaz, who had been sent south to get to the Indian Ocean. Columbus was disappointed, humiliated, and promptly left Portugal a second time, back to Spain. And he kept trying there. Uh, so his failures might belie how convincing he could be. But he managed to get himself back into the good graces of Ferdinand and Isabella. And he continued to speak about how easily he'd deliver a transoceanic empire to Spain. And by doing this, he eventually obtained Spanish patronage. Now, if that doesn't remind you about certain aspects of our current political climate in the United States, then I don't know what will. Because even though the facts were against Columbus, his success or failure wasn't determined by facts. It was determined by his ability to get political and financial backing. Now, the financial backing wasn't really an issue ever since that shipwreck he'd survived and had been made by the Genoese merchants. Columbus was... Um, set as far as money went. Wealthy Genoese merchants trusted Columbus to make good on their investment. But obtaining political backing was important too. Columbus, or any other would-be navigator, was, would be completely incapable of setting up a colony by himself. Regardless of however much financial backing, if he didn't have legal backing that came from sailing under a king's flag, it would have been impossible to safeguard any colony from foreign pirates. At any rate, from 1486 to 1489, Columbus built up an increasingly large well of support amongst the Genoese in Spain and other Spanish merchants, and dare I say he became friends with Queen Isabella. Ultimately, Columbus received patronage. Now, it's hard to say, for me, whether or not his Genoese background or his relationship with Isabella was more important. The easy answer, I think, would be that the Queen liked him. Columbus was a skilled flirt with his pen, and that was a trait that Columbus found very endearing amongst her courtiers. But the financial backing he received from his fellow Genoese was also of supreme importance. The man in charge of both the conquest of the Canaries and the conquest of Granada was named Alonso de Quintanilla. 
Quintanilla was an important treasury official who financed Spain's military adventurism by pre-selling land that was to be conquered, uh, and he would sell that land to Genoese merchants who would then plan on turning a profit on said land. Francisco Pinelli and Francisco de Riva, Rivarlo, Rivarolo, good grief, that's a hard one, were two Genoese merchants who capitalized heavily on this kind of really disgusting speculation. They started up the first sugar mills in the Canaries, and the wealth these two men accrued from these ventures gave them plenty of money to finance Columbus's stake in the transatlantic voyage. Now, the system of wealth extraction developed is called the plantation complex. And the reason I say it was disgusting speculation is because not only did it involve buying shares in a voyage bent on killing and subjugating people in a far-off place whose only crime was being in the way of Pinelli and Rovalaro's greed, but amongst others, I should say the Portuguese and Spanish money, the, the Portuguese and Spanish were beginning to invest more and more into this as well. Uh, but at any rate, the Portuguese mill word for sugar mill was the engenho, the engine. And it worked not only through conquest and subjugation, but on a continued reliance on further subjugation. Because the engenho, the sugar mill, the engine, was really an engine of two things. Really, I mean, it made sugar. and also made death. Sugar's a powerful drug. To create powdered sugar is essentially to make a crack cocaine version of something which a plant naturally produces which in part explains why it was becoming such a popular way of making money. But regardless, there is no excuse, I don't think, for this sort of economic behavior. Um, well, I mean, they had an excuse, and that excuse was that they were spreading Christianity. But anyway, what I'm saying is that the earliest proto-corporations were death machines that produced an addictive product and were financed by slavery and the displacement of native peoples. When you look at the world today and see oppression all around you, you should know that much of it comes from this unnatural birth of our current economic system. Now, besides the Queen and his Genoese backers, Columbus was supported by Spanish capital at the seaport of Palos, where the shipping, manpower, and logistical support for Spanish colonialism was concentrated. Now, in particular, Columbus developed a friendship with a shipowner named Martin Alonso Pinzon, and Pinzon supplied two of the three ships Columbus required, as well as most of the sailors for the first journey. Now, so with all that support in hand, Columbus's plans finally came to fruition. Ferdinand and Isabella, los Reyes Católicos, signed the following decree. Quote, we send Cristobal Colon with three caravals through the ocean sea to the Indies on some business that concerns the service of God and the expansion of the Catholic faith and our benefit and utility, unquote. Thus, Columbus set off for the Indies, promising to bring back pearls, spices, and gold, quote, beyond anything ever imagined, unquote, according to Peter Martyr. The Spanish town of Palos was in debt to the crown, and that's why they were, had to supply two of the three vessels required. The third came from a family of merchants in that town and was owned by the Pinzon brothers. And so those three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, set off. First to the Canary Islands, where they gathered provisions and water, and then they began the difficult part of the journey. Columbus sailed 33 successive days without seeing anything but sea and sky. 
As a result of the long passage, his companions actually began to murmur in secret at first, concealing their discontent. But by the end of that 33 days, they did so openly, quote, desiring to get rid of their leader, whom they planned to throw into the sea, unquote. The sailors believed Columbus had deceived them, that they would never be able to return. And after 30 days, they angrily demanded that Columbus turn back. The admiral, quote, by using gentle words, holding out promises and flattering their hopes, sought to gain time and succeed in calming their fears, unquote. He also added that, quote, if they refused him or attempted violence, they would be accused of treason, unquote, in Spain. Now, when I was a child, I, I remember there was a lot of fuss being made over the danger of the trip, the exhaustion, the fear that the men had, and I'm sure it was very monotonous. But rather than bore you with any more of those details, I think a better way to spend our time between Columbus leaving the Canary Islands and his arrival in the Caribbean is by describing to you just what the sailors on those ships did with their time during the 33 days of the journey. I mean, when they weren't muttering amongst themselves about how they wanted to mutiny. I mean, what, what did those guys do all day? Luckily for us, the famous historian Samuel Eliot Morrison devotes an entire chapter within uh, the European discovery of America, the Southern Voyages, on just this topic. Morrison is a famous historian. He taught at Harvard for 40 years. He's, he was a great historian. But he was born in 1887. His work is quite dated. He also sailed a yacht along the same routes which Columbus took along his four voyages. So his descriptions of Columbus at sea are, are just really great stuff, just particularly descriptive passages. Now, at any rate, though, we don't actually know nearly as much about life at sea as you would think we might. 15th century writers kind of took for granted the knowledge about a sailor's daily routine. But 80 years after the first voyage, a Spanish official, Eugenio de Salazar, wrote a detailed and actually pretty humorous account of what he observed at sea. And adding in bits and pieces from various sea journals gives us a pretty decent idea about what life at sea would have been like at the time. By the way, sailing in the Atlantic in a yacht sounds pretty great, doesn't it? <laughs> Once again, that's patreon.com slash atlanticworld. Now, a ship's crew, isolated as it might be, sailed atop the depths of the world's seas and oceans. Um, and they placed a good deal of importance on making observations of the sun at stars at various hours. Um, so, perhaps the most important thing to do on a ship, besides not sink, was to keep track of the time. Now, until the late 16th century, the only clock available for ships and her crew was the ampoletta, or the sand clock, a half-hour glass containing just enough particles of sand to run for exactly 30 minutes. Ampolettas were manufactured in Venice, and they were fragile, so spares were generally carried by ships. Magellan, for example, had 18 on the flagship of his voyage. Now, it was the duty of an ordinary seaman, usually a teen, to keep watch and reverse the ampoletta promptly when the sand ran out. But especially rough seas kind of usually prevented the sand from running out in a timely fashion. And if whoever was in charge of keeping time got distracted or fell asleep, well, we'd also kind of lose track of the time. Now, ships also gained time as they sailed east and lost time as they sailed west. So before the invention of radio, 
The only way to discover the correct time, if you lost track of it, was for the crew to use a sundial and watch for the exact moment of noon and then turn the glass. And with that said, that really only allows a ship to know true noon plus or minus about 15 minutes, but at any rate. It was important to keep time on a ship, uh, and that's because all the work was divided into watches as well. These watches lasted four hours, and nobody wants their graveyard shift to last any extra time. Now, as long as everything was going well, though, uh, a ship would have a pretty good idea of when 30 minutes had passed. Um, Spanish and Portuguese ships, in fact, carried a bell, which was rung every 30 minutes when the clock was changed, and that let everybody on board know when their watch was to begin. In the morning, Spanish sailors began their day with prayer and songs, like any good Catholic people would, and sailors were especially religious, what with the specter of death constantly hanging over their heads, or, well, under their feet, if you will. In fact, sailors were so religious that they might have even been considered sacrilegious because they were also quite superstitious. An experienced sailor, in fact, believed in everything. Afterwards, the prayers, uh, the final watch of the previous night finished their last chore, which was to scrub down the deck with salt water. Now, the new watch, they didn't need any time to dress. Nobody undressed from the day before. And each man simply rose in the morning from, quote, his favorite soft plank or some corner wherein he could brace himself against the ship's rolling and pitching, unquote. Hammocks had yet to be, quote, unquote, discovered. Um, their inventor, the inventor of the hammock, that is, was someone who had lived in the Caribbean at some time. So, thus, the European sailor before 1492 was re reduced to barbarity in his sleeping habits. Each man for breakfast grabbed a biscuit, some garlic cloves, a bit of cheese, and a pickled sardine. Um, this was the first meal for the day watch. This would be the last meal of the night watch, I guess. Um... And after, while that was done, the captain and helmsman made sure they were on the course for the day. Those leaving duty after scrubbing the deck and eating breakfast shuffled off to get some sleep, while those just waking up would pump the ship dry of any water it had taken on during the night. Now, during the day, usual duties included keeping the decks clear and clean, making sure the sail was set as required by wind and weather, and, if there was nothing else to do, scrubbing the rails, making spun yard, yarn out of old rope, and overhauling other gear in need of any maintenance or repairs. The rigging would then be swayed up as soon as it was dry from the night dews. Now, one thing that ships on Columbus, that sailors, excuse me, on Columbus's ship would not have done was to observe any sort of special ceremony if they, quote, crossed the line, which means they crossed the equator. Technically, no Spanish ships will do this until 1498, but Spanish and Portuguese navigators did not observe the ancient ceremony of crossing the line, um, which is where one of the sailors would take on the role of Neptune, and all sorts of hilarious hijinks would take place. This is a real custom, but it originated in Northern Europe. Norman, Dutch, and German sailors did this sort of thing whenever they passed well-known landmarks that indicated they were in foreign waters and lands. The first use known of this ritual uh, alongside crossing the equator was in 1529 on a French ship, and no records exist of any Spanish or Portuguese uh, engaging in the crossing the line ceremony until the 18th century. Uh, in fact, when Columbus's instruments 
uh, reveal to him that there is a bulge in the Earth around the equator. He becomes so bewildered that during a malaria-induced hallucinogenic fever, he records his discovery of South America as a place that leads up into the sky to the Garden of Eden. Now, the captain and the ship's pilot both usually carried a whistle on a lanyard around their necks, and they used this to play various signals to help carry out commands or just to get sailors' attention, or just to piss someone off, you know, blow it in somebody's ear. Now, orders were also given verbally. And nautical Castilian speech was practically a foreign language than that spoken by landlubbers in Spain. Every part of a ship's gear had its own noun, every action of work the sailors engaged had its own verb, and this created a strong, expressive type of Spanish language, easy to understand even when bawled out in a gale. Out of this language, Spanish sailors developed their own slang. A Spaniard might call his ship, quote, Rosen de Madeira, or the wooden jade. Or perhaps the vessel might be referred to as Parajo Puerca, the flying pig. The name for the firepox, where people cooked their food, was translated into pot island. When a Spanish sailor wanted a pot of jam, he would say, break out the spirit sail. If he wanted a napkin, he would say, lead me to the sail locker. And if he was ready to eat or drink, he would say, it's time to set the mizzen. Spanish mariners, they would say this in Spanish, of course, Spanish mariners had their own slang for all sorts of occurrences. Everything from a broken jug to a farting sailor literally had its own nautical slang. Now, Spanish ships did not usually go with a cook, with that said, during Columbus's day. It's likely, generally speaking, that the youngest and least experienced sailors, boys or teens usually, would take turns cooking at the firebox, but... With that said, the captain also generally had a servant who cooked for him, and if any gentlemen were on board, they too would bring their own page and have him cook for them. But regardless, the idea of how one small firebox was sometimes used to feed over a hundred people on a small caravel, such as on the Nina's return voyage home, is an idea that requires no small amount of logistics. Samuel Eliot Morrison goes so far as to say it, quote, staggers the imagination, unquote, as to how this could be accomplished. Though I would like to point that he sailed around the world in a yacht, and I don't think he ever actually cooked much himself. Now, we know more about what the sailors ate than how they cooked it. Wine, olive oil, salt meat, codfish, and bread in the form of sea biscuit or hardtack. Sugar was too expensive for, him, for sailors in Columbus's time. Um, so if they had any sweetening, it would generally be honey. Around 1498, Columbus wrote the following about how he wished his vessels to be provisioned. Quote, Victualing the ship should be done in this manner. The third part of the breadstuff will be good biscuit, well-seasoned and not old, and the major portion will, or the major portion will be wasted. A third part of salt flour, salted at the time of milling, and a third part of wheat. Further, there will be wanted wine, salt meat, oil, vinegar, cheese, chickpeas, lentils, beans, salt fish, and fishing tackle, honey, rice, almonds, and raisins. Olive oil was used to cook fish meat and beans. Salt flour could be made into unleavened bread by cooking into the, in, in ashes of the firebox. Raisins were especially a delight because sailors in Columbus's day longed for anti-scorbutics, if I'm saying that correctly. Scurvy is what I'm saying, the things that prevent scurvy. Scurvy, in its most hideous forms, raged amongst sailors on almost every voyage. Officers generally fared better, 
They could afford personal luxuries like raisins, figs, prunes, and pots of jam, which would keep the disease away. But provisions often ran short. The trip was long, food sometimes spoiled on long voyages, and not to mention rats and hungry sailors would pilfer supplies and that would damage the food supply. So sailors also often ate whatever was around, penguin meat and seals, or more loathsome substitutes than that, rat or leather. Morrison sums up his section on the diets of 15th century Spanish sailors by stating, quote, There is not one of these southern voyages on which the modern blue water yachtsmen used, used to refrigeration and canned foods would have been happy, unquote. Columbus and other captains and the pilots of ships were in charge of navigation. They generally went about their business by the method of dead reckoning, which is to say their ability to navigate the seas depended a great deal upon their own personal knowledge of the seas. Columbus was such a skilled navigator by the, uh, by the act of dead reckoning, he was practically peerless. Morrison tells us that Columbus' skill was such that, quote, no such dead reckoning navigators exist today. No man alive could obtain anything near the accuracy of Columbus's results. Still, with the fact that the Earth that sits on the axis and the stars of the Caribbean are quite different than the stars of Europe, Columbus made numerous mistakes when he tried to determine his latitude, and he was eventually, it wasn't until he eventually was shipwrecked on Jamaica and had plenty of time to just stare out at the sky at night uh, that he started to really understand uh, how the stars in the Caribbean operated. In fact, um, now, by the early 16th century, things were changing. Though uh, By 1519, when Magellan sailed, latitude was gotten from a simple formula with the aid of an astrolabe or a quadrant. Um, to put it politely, I mean, I guess as skilled as he was at navigation, um, Columbus's skill with navigational tools like astrolabes and quadrant was not noteworthy. Um, now, besides Columbus's skill at dead reckoning, I think that's the other thing that's exceptional about the voyages he took was the speed at which his ships traversed the ocean sea. His crossings were quick, um, and suggest he was the type of captain who, which were known as drivers in his day. Columbus must have refused to shorten sail every night, or at the appearance of every black cloud on the horizon, because he crossed the Atlantic in about half the amount of time, 67 days on average, that convoys uh, from Havana made back to Spain even midway through the 17th century. Now, I'm sure that part of the reason why Columbus was so unpopular amongst his men was that he was a driver. But in fairness, the other reason for the, uh, for the speed which Columbus was able to, to make in comparison to, to most voyages was that he took on his first voyage especially smaller ships. Um, and later vessels that were traveling to and from the Caribbean were generally larger and heavily laden with cargo, not exactly designed for speed as, they watch, as much as they were designed to make a profit. Um, and so, that's, so it's really a combination of those two things. Anyway, at the end of the day, a sailor's uh, work of scrubbing, splicing, seizing, and making repairs was done. If the wind wasn't too strong and the sails didn't require handling, the sailors then sat around talking, spinning yarns, tending their fish lines, singing and playing music, drinking if possible, and occasionally washing themselves in buckets of seawater. Iberian sailors were quite cleanly in comparison to most Europeans of the day. Um, they often went swimming in mid-ocean calms, they washed their clothes on riverbanks, 
Uh, these were all common activities at sea and were not necessarily common on land. All hands were called to the deck for the evening prayers, the cooking fire was extinguished, and the first night watch was set. Throughout the night, whenever a sailor turned the ampaletta, he cried out to the forward lookout to keep alive, keep good watch. In response, the lookout was supposed to shout or grunt, proving he was awake. Every hour, the helm and lookout were relieved, and in the case of Columbus, though, the captain himself would stay up late, sometimes all night. Columbus actually developed terrible arthritis over the course of his life that affected his eyes, um, and I'm telling you, his years of squinting into the horizon or into the stars on cloudy nights is exactly the reason why that happened, and let that be a lesson to you. Um, wear your glasses. On Columbus's first voyage, he paced the decks all night, squinting into the phosphorescent sea and dreaming of being a baller, a shut caller, and of epic morrows to come. The first such epic tomorrow came on October 11th, 1492, though the day did not start out as such. That morning, Columbus recorded in his journal that the night before his ship had taken more water aboard than any other time on the voyage. The grumbling of his men continued to get louder, as it, as it had really the last week or so of the journey, and Columbus told them that, for better or worse, quote, they must complete the enterprise on which the Catholic sovereigns had sent them, unquote. But as the day proceeded, things got a bit more cheerful. Several indications appeared that land was nearby. A slender reed floated past the Santa Maria. It was still green. It must have grown near. The Pinta's crew noticed what they described as a man-made plank, perhaps made with an iron tool. Columbus doubled the number of lookouts and promised a generous reward for the first sailor to spot terra firma. Hours passed. No more signs were spotted. But long after sunset, Columbus believed he saw something that resembled a little wax candle bobbing up and down. Perhaps it was a torch belonging to a fisherman. Or perhaps someone on land was going from house to house. He summoned the two officers on duty. One agreed with him, the other did not. But the, so the little fleet continued on for another four hours. It was about two in the morning when the calm was shattered from the Pintas cannon. Columbus knew exactly what that noise meant. Land had been spotted. The man who saw it was Rodrigo de Triana, though the next day Columbus explored to poor Rodrigo that it was actually he, Columbus, at 10 p.m., who saw land first, you know, with the, with the bobbing light. And so it would be Columbus, not Rodrigo, who would be getting the reward. And as the fleet got closer to the shore, the moon bright in the sky, Columbus and his men were able to spy people on the shore of the island. That didn't surprise them. They weren't surprised that they saw people, but rather they were surprised at who the people were. They certainly weren't the handsomely garbed Chinese they expected to meet, based on Columbus's readings of Marco Polo. Rather, these people were naked. The next morning, Friday the 12th, Columbus went ashore, followed by the Pinzon brothers, Martin Alonso, captain of the Pinta, and Vicente Yanez, the, his brother and captain of the Nina, both of whom, just hours before, had been entertaining thoughts of mutiny against Columbus, since they were captaining their own ships, after all. But all of that was now pushed aside. This was the moment of first contact. 
Certain they had reached the Indies, Columbus and his crew had actually stumbled across an island of the Bahamas and was meeting the Taino people. I discussed the history of the Taino along with uh, numerous other indigenous societies in, of, of the Americas in my last series, People of the Sun, which is a four-part look at the history of the Americas until 1492. So if you're interested and you have not checked those out, by all means, please do so. The Taino were an Arawakan people which was a broad cultural movement and language group uh, that was incredibly successful. Arawak culture developed uh, in the Amazon and spread from there. Eventually, Arawakan people uh, made it to the Caribbean, where they started to develop their own unique island culture. Uh, they were incredibly successful as farmers and fisher folk in tropical environments, that the Arawak people in general. Uh, they relied on yucca, sweet potatoes, and other crops, and also grew orchards of pineapple trees and other fruit. They fished and ate the resources of the sea and on the, and, and the, whatever they could find in the rivers of large islands. They also hunted local animals. Iguanas, in particular, were a delicacy. And so because they had such a varied diet, they were extremely healthy. In comparison to the barbarous diet, nearly devoid of vitamins and minerals afforded to most Europeans due to inequalities in their society, the Taino lived in a paradise. And on the surface, though, it would appear that the Taino and other Arawakan people lived in an inhospitable place. The Caribbean is beautiful, but it is hot and humid year-round. Of course, this was easily solved by Taino people. They simply responded by wearing appropriate attire for the life in the lush Caribbean. They wore the 15th century equivalent of bikinis, loincloths made of cotton or strung palm leaves, or by wearing nothing at all. Food was plentiful, so much of their spare time was spent creating artwork. Taino artisans were especially talented potters and woodworkers, and the broad, middle-class base of Taino society, which consisted of artisans and artists, built a wildly successful economy and society that, as you will see over the course of this episode of the next, was not destroyed by disease alone. Their mastery of tropical and subtropical environments meant that there were huge numbers of Taino and other Arawakan peoples. The Taino lived in gigantic confederations. The largest Taino confederations were comprised of hundreds of villages. Millions of Tainos lived in the Caribbean on December 12, 1492. Yet they lived a somewhat more peaceful existence relative to other agricultural peoples of this earth in part because of sports. A particular type of ball game was so important in Taino society that it was substituted in place of warfare at times. Taino culture represented in many ways the pinnacle of human social achievement. And so the tragedy of their genocide is one that looms over us from the past. Now that story is one that I will largely be telling next episode. Columbus could hardly be described as solely responsible for it, but neither is he blameless. Much of Columbus's experience in navigating came working for merchants involved in the slave trade. Columbus was experienced with the profits which might arise from that trade, and the first letter he wrote back to Ferdinand Isabella in Spain about the voyage, he spoke openly about how easily these naked, non-iron-using natives would be turned into Christians who would be obedient to the Spanish. They were smart but cowardly and happy to give their gold over to the Spanish. The idea instantly struck Columbus that the natives would make good slaves. Quote, they would be good servants, 
of good skill. They repeat very quickly whatever was said to them. They would easily be made Christians, unquote. Slavery and genocide lay in the not-so-distant future. But on Friday, October 12th, 1492, the two parties from separate hemispheres met and engaged in the time-honored tradition of trade. The natives of the island, which Columbus named San Salvador, offered squawking parrots and skeins of cotton thread in return for brass or bronze hawksbells and glass beams. With much pomp and circumstance that meant absolutely nothing to the Taino, Columbus summoned the fleet's secretary and comptroller to witness him, quote, taking possession of this island for the king and queen, unquote. And in fact, to prove just that, at the end of this peaceful encounter, Columbus ordered six of the Tainos to be kidnapped so that he could present them back to Spain. At any rate, before the kidnapping, the two groups were completely fascinated by all they were learning about each other. For the Taino, the ships were of particular astonishment, and so were the swords, which they cut themselves on when they first inspected them. Gunpowder was frightening, and even Europeans' white skin was something to be examined. The Europeans could not believe the nakedness of the Taino. It was completely shocking to them. But they were also perplexed and bewildered by foreign technology, which they had never before seen. Just as the Taino were astonished by the sails of the Spanish ships, Columbus and the Spaniards marveled at the sight of dugout canoes which the Taino used. A moderately sized Taino vessel carried 40 to 50 people who propelled the uh, craft, quote, the long boat from the trunk of a tree with, quote, a thing like a baker's peel, unquote, which, of course, you would know by the name of a canoe paddle. From San Salvador, Columbus couldn't decide where to go next. He learned from the Taino there were hundreds of other islands. Some of the natives claimed they could not even be counted. He learned, Columbus did, from the natives the name of more than a hundred of them. And eventually, he decided to make one, which was about five leagues from San Salvador. The six Taino captives Columbus captured uh, told Columbus that the people who lived there wore very big bracelets of gold on their legs and arms, which, as you might enjoy, Columbus loved hearing. Unfortunately for his dreams of wealth, the six captives were actually taken to, to, actually taken to an island known as Rum Cay so that they could escape. One by one, the hostages did just that as the ships neared the shores. Columbus sent seven of his men to find and recapture his six slaves, but they could not be found. Instead, they made do with an old man in a dugout canoe who approached to trade a skein of cotton. Some of the soldiers jumped into the sea to catch him when he refused to come aboard, and so he was seized as a replacement hostage. Now, Columbus, though, had no intention of only becoming an infamous kidnapper. He also needed to make good trade relations. You know, they call it divide and conquer for a reason. He gave the old man a very fine red cape, a red cap, excuse me, some hawk's bells, glass beads, and he ordered him sent back to his dugout so he could return to his people and presumably share his experience with how generous these new strangers were. Columbus, meanwhile, continued on. He was driven by gold lust and a feeling that he was oh so close of establishing trade relations with the great Khan. Mind you, of course, no Khan had ruled China in over a hundred years, but that's the information he was working with. He headed towards Long Island, 
though on the way, Columbus met another trader on a canoe, a man who carried with him a jug of water, a bit of bread about the side of a fist, kneaded and made from yucca, and as well as a gift which Columbus didn't understand, and woe be to him. Columbus held in his fingertips, quote, some dry leaves, which must be something most valued, unquote. The man offered the sacred valuable leaves to Columbus as a gift, but tobacco was unknown to Europeans, and Columbus, so eager to make a profit, never realized this opportunity. Nevertheless, they arrived at Long Island late on October 16th, where Columbus disembarked and was happy to observe the sophistication and civility of the people of this island, who did not go unnaked. Whew, thank goodness, he said. Instead, they wore a small piece of cotton that barely covered their genitals. In addition to scantily clad tinos, uh, Columbus also found himself amazed at the flora and fauna of the Caribbean. Lawrence Bear Green suggests the Bahamas enchanted Columbus, who, quote, normally wandered, who, who was normally purposeful, quote, wandered through the Bahamas for a full week as though through a dreamscape. Unquote. He regained his sense of purpose when he spotted a man who wore a gold stud in his nose. Columbus could tell it was engraved with characters and tried to strike a deal but was unsuccessful. But regardless, he was certain that what he'd seen on that, gold, uh, on that piece of gold were Chinese or Japanese characters. After this first clumsy attempt, Columbus did manage to start trading for jewelry. Which some of the Indians wore in their nose. He waited for a few de- days after that to see if, quote, if the king here or other people would bring gold or anything substantial, unquote. But he left eventually without that happening, though not without capturing some additional replacement captives to use as guides and to hopefully return back with him to Spain. Columbus spent a lot of time asking various Tainos if they knew how to get to Sapongo, which was the European name for Japan in the 15th century. And when some told him of a giant island full of gold which they called Cuba, he was certain he'd found what he sought. Sapongo, Cuba, I mean, they both start with a C. Columbus set sail on October 23rd. Five days later, he entered a deep river, probably the Bahia Barayay, <laughs> the Bahia Barayay, I don't know how to say that, it's in Cuba. He anchored there and disembarked. Columbus and the Spanish um, saw no living creature, though, as they crept through a deserted village, except for one dog. Um, palm fiber nets and ropes, fishing hooks and harpoons made from horn and bone, and plentiful fishing tackle were throughout the huts, but there just weren't people. Some of the fireplaces were still warm, but the inhabitants were gone. Masks adorned the walls of this residences. Though whether they were for beauty or to be worshipped, Columbus could not tell. Columbus had to persuade himself that he was still in Cuba after staying long enough. Um, that, excuse me, Columbus uh, learned that uh, Cuba was an island from the natives, a great island that took more than twenty days to circumnavigate, but. His enterprise depended upon a document which he'd received from Ferdinand and Isabella, which had been signed, that gave Columbus rights in the Indies. It mentioned nothing of new lands. And so it wasn't that hard for Columbus to persuade himself that he was in the Indies. It wasn't really a simple case of misunderstanding 
that Columbus couldn't figure out that he wasn't in Asia. Columbus needed to reach the Indies to secure the legal rights to any discoveries or conquests that he made. If he ever decided, let alone admitted, that he was not in the Indies, then the entire enterprise would be at risk. He had no legal authority to govern new islands, let alone a new world. On November 1st, Columbus and his little fleet went ashore on the northeastern shore of Cuba. He there dispatched two Spanish men, Rodrigo de Zeres and Luis de Torres, along with two Indian guides to look for gold. Now, Torres was a Jewish converso, meaning he'd avoided the Spanish expulsion of the Jews by converting to Christianity. Uh, and what was important, why they bring this up, is because he knew Hebrew, Aramaic, and some Arabic, which were all languages that Columbus believed he might encounter. But like in the Bahamas, the Europeans were unable to communicate with the Tainos through speech. Now, while the scouting party was gone, Martin Alonso Pinzon, captain of the Pinta, made a promising find. Two pieces of wild cinnamon. They were a different variety than what Europeans knew, and one which Columbus decided wasn't worth going after when he was shown some that was growing nearby. Um, in fact, over the next few days, the crew of the Pinta regaled other Spaniards with tales of gold and pearls, nearby and in infinite amount. Now, the scouting party, meanwhile, returned on November 6th. They had found, at a distance of about 12 leagues, a village with a thousand inhabitants who received them with great solemnity. They reported the Taino touched them and kissed their hands and feet, marveling and believing they came from the sky. They were offered chairs while their hosts squatted at their feet. One of the Indian guides explained to the throng which gathered around the men that the Christians were good people. The Spaniards asked about gold and spices, but they received only vague directions as responses, or at least that's all they understood. They certainly found no Chinese, no Arabs, no descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, and absolutely no trace of the Grand Khan. On the return trip, two Christians met, the two Christians met on the way many people who were going to their towns, women and men, with a firebrand in the hand, and herbs to drink the smoke thereof. They refer to men smoking. The Spanish often observed the Taino making cigars and setting fire to tobacco, inhaling the fumes deeply. But unfortunately for Columbus and his dreams of wealth, he remained oblivious to the potential of this crash crop. Now, understandably, he was focused on already known spices. Um... Now, as for the, how Columbus and the Spaniards began seeing these naked natives, they saw them as, quote, guileless and unwarlike, unquote. Now, once the scouting party returned, Columbus and the fleet took off once again. For two weeks, he pursued his goals of reaching the east, uh, while simultaneously, it seems, he became a bit lost and seduced by the Caribbean, he eventually returned to Cuba, though. He continued exploring that island, river by river, still believing that one of them would lead him to the, the cities of the Grand Khan. But Columbus, of course, didn't find any of that. All he did find was that Cuba was heavily populated with people who wished to, weep, to, who wished to meet and trade. Now, on November 10th, Columbus does the sort of thing which makes it really I mean, it's just impossible to, tr to really like the guy. A dugout arrived with six men and five women. Columbus had them captured and ordered taken back to Spain on the ships. 
He did this again shortly afterwards, taking an additional seven women and three boys. We don't even have to wonder why he did it. And this really precludes us from thinking too well of Columbus. Yeah, he was a fine navigator. He accomplished a lot over the course of his life. And yeah, once upon a time, he was just a poor kid from Italy, wanted to grow up and be a somebody. But he was also the sort of low-down son of a bitch who'd steal your kids. Columbus explained his reasoning and reveals the sorts of things he learned after being made in Portugal. Quote, I did this because the men would behave better in Spain with women of their country than without them. Many times I happened to take men of Guinea that they might learn the language of Portugal, and after they returned, it was expected to make some use of them in their own country, owing to the good company that they had enjoyed as gifts they had received. Unquote. Yet in Columbus's experience, the practice didn't work out because the men captured in Africa would not cooperate without their women. This time would be different. These Indian captives, in Columbus conjectured, quote, having their women will find it good business to do what they are told, and these women would teach our people their language which he assumed was the same in all the islands of India. So if we are going to admire Columbus for his skill as a navigator, we must also reckon with his skill as a slaver. Later in the month, on November 21st, Columbus attempted to take use of his latitude with the use of his quadrant, a tool with which he was not skilled, and placed himself at a latitude of 42 degrees which would have put him roughly at the Pennsylvania-New York border. He was, in fact, at 21 degrees latitude, and he knew something was seriously fucked up, since, quote, in latitude 42 degrees, in no part of the earth is there believed to be heat, unless it be for some accidental reason, unquote. Furious, Columbus blamed the quadrant, which surely needed repair, he thought. Luckily for the expedition, he was, an experienced, uh, he was as experienced as navigating the seas um, as he was with coming up with slave-taking strategies. Now, all of his maps and charts were utterly useless, but his instincts and experience enabled him to estimate time and distance and to understand unfamiliar tides. The color of the sea, the composition of the clouds, wind currents, all of this meant as much to Columbus's style of navigation as any mathematical calculation. Columbus was lost, sure, but he using these methods, had managed to sail from Spain to the New World, and he had done so without the loss of a single life. And each day at sea meant his experience in the Caribbean grew. And with that said, not everyone on this voyage was very much having a good time. Where the fuck is all this gold we've been promised, they said. Why can't we collect that cinnamon, they said. These sorts of complaints probably led to Columbus's report on November 22nd, when he said, when he wrote, excuse me, quote, Martin Alonso Pinzon departed with the Caravel Pinta without the permission or desire of the Admiral, unquote. Columbus was left with the dark. Had Pinzon discovered a secret source of gold? Columbus began building a case against the rebellious captain, writing many other things as he'd done and said to me. Now, Felipe Fernandez Armesto argues that, although charismatic, Columbus had a habit of pushing people away from him uh, who were not in his family. Part of his personality was incapable of, of really ending business at relationships amicably. 
Sea captains in Columbus's day ruled with absolute authority on their ships, and men like Columbus, who spent so long at sea, were both de facto and de jure despots. Martin Alonso Pinzon would be the first of many Spaniards in the Caribbean who soured on Columbus, though we have no writings from Pinzon to get his perspective. And Columbus was silent on whatever happened to the men before this day. In Columbus's logbook, they were partners and seemingly worked well together as they charted the New Islands. Now, I suspect that Fernandez Armesto is correct. I doubt that Columbus, who wanted, uh, excuse me, I doubt that Pinzon, who wanted to get rich as badly as Columbus, really much cared for Columbus's decision to not collect cinnamon. Perhaps he merely also got tired after so many months at sea of Columbus kind of just refusing to set camp somewhere. And as one last possible point of contention between the two, Pinzon and the Pinta had Taino captives on board, just as Columbus did on the Santa Maria. It's entirely possible that Pinzon heard some tale of wealth or riches from one of his captives, or even just kind of mistranslated such a tale, and that he decided it would simply be best to head off and not share the treasure with the Genoan. Whatever the cause or, or causes, Columbus did not record it. Now, the Pinta was gone, and since the Nina was captained by uh, Francisco Martin Pinzon, Martin Alonso's brother, Columbus was surrounded by Pinzon brothers and a bit paranoid about it. In fact, the more Columbus thought about it, since one of his most important maps, a chart of Japan, had been given to him when he met Martin Alonso Pinzon, he was particularly troubled. Now, the chart was meaningless in reality, but it had been critically important to Columbus gaining support of the Spanish crown. He had actually been on the verge of abandoning Spain for France when he met Pinzon and got a copy of, his, of Pinzon's map of Sipangu. For his part, Pinzon spent his life, just as Columbus had, attempting to obtain patronage from the Spanish crown for exactly this sort of voyage. I don't think he was very much thrilled with the idea that when he finally got patronage for it, he'd been forced into a partnership with some hot-headed foreigner who was a glory hound. Now, Columbus needed good news. He got it on November the 25th. He went ashore on the northeast coast of Cuba and discovered in one of the rivers some stones shining in it, with veins of some of them in the color of gold. Now, in reality, this was iron pyrite, fool's gold. But Columbus was convinced it was the genuine article and collected some of it to bring to the sovereigns. Now, of more actual value were the nearby pine and oak trees, which were nearby, and from which the crew were able to use to make much-needed repairs to the ships. This, during this time, Columbus began composing his first letter to Ferdinand and Isabella, by the way. Now, he was confused in many places. Um, he wrote that the Taino spoke one language, in reality, he'd encountered separate Arawakan languages on Cuba and in the Bahamas. Nor was he particularly interested in other parts of native culture, uh, even agriculture. Uh, he wrote to the Catholic sovereigns that the new lands he discovered were a tabula rasa, a blank slate, both religiously and economically. And as Columbus considered his position, his dreams kind of spiraled into desires that became pure fantasy. He viewed the location where he was in as a prime spot for a great shipyard. The numerous trees were ample enough to construct as many ships as needed, and the bay in which he harbored his ships was large enough for a hundred ships, which would require no anchors. 
Cuba was a land full of wonder, and China was just over the horizon. Now, after writing this grand vision back to the sovereigns, Columbus was alerted uh, by some of his crew of a startling discovery. A man's head was found in a basket in one of the native houses. And then more dried heads were found all about that settlement. Now, this was something that shocked European sensibilities, though upon some introspection, they decided that the heads, quote, must be those of some ancestors of the family of those houses, unquote. Now, that was a correct assumption, but regardless, they were spooked and they wanted to leave. But before they could leave Cuba for open water, a heavy storm blew in. And in the aftermath of the storm, the wind shifted, and that made Columbus's intended course impossible. So they were stuck on land. Columbus then sent a party of eight sailors and two Indians uh, to find uh, into the interior. They found that the nearby region was full of settlements, but these were devoid of people. Everyone had fled from the Spanish, mind you, who were making a habit of kidnapping people, so it's not that surprising. And in fact, the only Tainos the scouting party saw were four young men digging in their fields, and these fled as soon as they saw the intruders and they couldn't be caught. When the scouting party returned, they reported that, as well as the many villages and cultivated lands they saw, they saw one dugout canoe large enough for 150 people. But no people had been found. Where were they? Now, Columbus didn't give up. He was going to find these people. And also the wind wouldn't cooperate with his leaving. Now, when he finally did make contact with the people of this part of Cuba, he offered them hawks bells, brass rings, green and yellow glass beads, and during the trade um, that followed this meeting, Columbus learned that not all was peaceful in the Caribbean. The natives of Cuba were fearful of enemies, Caribs, which put the Taino into a fearful defensive state. Now, the Spaniards promised protection to these Tainos, who had readied themselves for battle. They were all painted red, some of them with feathers on their head, all with their bundles of darts. Of course, no battle came. And the day ended with Columbus entering a beautiful house with marvelous work hanging from the ceilings. There were intricately woven mats adorned with shells. They were so striking, Columbus had trouble describing them. He was, in fact, shocked at the beauty of Taino art, and how easily the Taino traded them away. One of them climbed up to the ceiling and gave me all that there was, he said. Still, Cuba didn't appear to have the gold and spices he sought, and when the winds changed, Columbus took sail on December 4th. Now, Europeans, from that, from that description where the Tainos kind of explained that the reason they'd been so fearful is they thought uh, Caribs were attacking, this led Europeans to become convinced that a Carib invasion was taking place in the Caribbean. Now, it's really obvious, though, that they just didn't understand the political situation. Uh, conflict, of course, happened in the Caribbean, just as it did elsewhere in the world, despite the conquistadors' belief that the Indians were just a peaceful and cowardly people. Now, with that said, in reality, no archaeological evidence exists of any such Carib invasion. Conflict in the Caribbean occurred more frequently between different groups within the islands than as a result of invaders from elsewhere. Now, when Columbus reached the next reached land, he named the island Hispaniola, what is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And on December 6th, he reported seeing columns of flickering torchlights about four leagues from where he harbored. Perhaps some local tribal war was going on, but 
Whatever was going on, the Spanish were utterly clueless, and, and they remained so of the political situation for quite some time. Columbus explored Hispaniola and some of the neighboring islands. He met some of the natives who told them that they had enemies. Once again, it was the nefarious Caribs. Columbus, convinced that he was on the doorstep of Asia, believed that the Caribs must have been agents of the great Khan. Yes, that's the ticket, he thought to himself. On December 12th, he went ashore and met with a great crowd of people. Columbus noticed one of them, a young and beautiful woman, who had a piece of gold jewelry in her nose. He ordered her captured. On the ship, he had her clothed, gave her glass beads and hawk's bells and brass rings. He couldn't still decide if he wanted to kidnap her or not. He claimed she preferred to stay with other female detainees he'd captured, which was basically a preposterous suggestion. But ultimately, he decided it would be best to send her back to her people with the gifts he'd given her to inspire more trade. Columbus dispatched a scout, another scouting party, and they discovered a large village with over a thousand houses, which, uh, in which at least 3,000 men resided. The Spaniards learned there how the Tainos made cassava bread from their yucca and compared its flavor to chestnuts. They also sampled pineapples, mango, papaya, guava, star and mommy apples, and passion fruits. They found the local parrots as nearly as fascinating as the local fruit. Europeans marveled at how intelligent and social the birds could be, how they could mimic social uh, human speech and even seem to understand it. After more of this trade, Columbus departed. He made his way to a craggy, mountainous island that reminded his crew of a tortoise, so they named it Tortuga. Columbus and the Spaniards met with the inhabitants there and entertained the cacique of the island, or at least this part of it, to a feast. That cacique gave Columbus a finely crafted belt, and in return he gave the chieftain amber beads, red shoes, and a bottle of orange water. Though Columbus was Hindered by a lack of common language or reliable interpreters, Columbus took the ruler of Tortuga's friendship as a sign that the whole island was his to command. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Columbus sailed back to Hispaniola afterwards and found what is today known as Acul Bay in today's Haiti. Columbus was delighted at the size of the harbor, superior to all, that, and it would hold all the ships in the world, he said. The night of their arrival, a large canoe with Tainos arrived from the shore, who sought to seek out the Admiral and the Christians. Another session of brisk trade followed, and afterwards the, dis the expedition disembarked. Now, a large village nearby, whose inhabitants had by this point lost all fear of the Europeans, brought gifts and items to trade, cassava bread, earthenware pitchers of masterful craftsmanship, parrots, various other items, but most importantly, what this village brought, as far as Columbus and the Spanish was concerned, was gold. Columbus remarked, quote, It is easy to recognize when something is given with a real heart to give. And in fact, quote, he considered them Christians already. Regardless, it wasn't so much gold that Columbus didn't still attempt to set sail. Um, the local Tainos tried to keep Columbus there at Tortuga. They brought more gold which perhaps they had traded with other, island, with other tribes on the island. Columbus wrote about his astonishment that Indians were so free and the Spaniards so covetous and overreaching. He says that more than 120 ships carried more than 1,000 Indians to, to the Europeans to come trade. 
The cacique, which was a Taino term that came to mean chief uh, in Spanish, in all sorts of native societies actually, came to visit, uh, visit Columbus in this uh, festive environment. The cacique came with 2,000 men, every one of whom brought food, drink, cotton cloth, and colorful parrots just for the admiral. They also brought more gold. The local cacique, whose name was Guacanagari, even gifted Columbus with a belt, with a golden belt buckle shaped like a mask that had two large ears of hammered gold, as well as the tongue and the nose. The Spaniards traded glass beads, plates, sometimes even just broken things, things of absolutely no value to them, in return for gold. Columbus witnessed Indians who exchanged gold for just six beads, and afterwards ordered that the Spaniards take nothing from the Indians unless they gave them something in payment. Now, from our perspective, the Taino's action seems just insane. And we're going to come up against this again and again, so I think it's probably important that I mention something that I spoke of in more detail in our last series, People of the Sun. But the indigenous people of the Americas did not use gold as money. They actually placed a much higher value on bronze alloys, types of copper, and a kind of, of bronze and gold compound, which the Spaniards actually put less value on than objects of pure gold. At any rate, my point is this. From the Taino's perspective, they were getting a great deal. They were trading for extremely rare items, little bells and beads, which could be turned into jewelry in exchange for far less valuable gold. Though, generally, the Tainos had a lot more cotton and turkeys than gold to trade, what the Spanish called geese at this point. But they traded the gold, and they were happy to do so. To the Taino, the hawk's bell was extremely valuable, not just because it was rare, but because of what it was made of, copper. Likewise, the Taino didn't have glass, so glass beads were something that, until Columbus showed up, were impossible to own, hence their value. What to a child might seem like a foolish deal was, in reality, nothing more than basic supply and demand. Guacanagari told Columbus and the Spaniards about where they might find a great quantity of gold at a place he called Ceballo. Ceballo, Cepango. You can see how Columbus's interest in was piqued especially as he learned that Ceballo was the central region of the island that they were on, Hispaniola. And from that discussion, Columbus concluded that they were in Asia, and they would soon find houses with roofs of gold. Now, the Spanish were really starting to get used to visits by native traders, who occasionally brought gold in exchange for things that had practically no value to the Spaniards. In fact, Columbus and the Spanish thought, why keep exploring other islands at all? We can just stay here at Hispaniola just a little bit longer and have the gold come to us. So they did just that. Columbus was intent on spending Christmas on Hispaniola. And things were finally starting to calm down on that Christmas night, or Christmas Eve, excuse me. And Columbus decided to stretch out and sleep at around 11 p.m. He'd been drinking with the crew in celebration of the holiday, and that's when real trouble started for the expedition for the first time. While everyone was asleep, a boy of 14 or 15 was at the tiller of the Santa Maria, which Columbus made sure to report back to Spain was expressly against his orders. In the night, currents carried the ship directly onto the banks and coral reefs that surrounded the bay in which they harbored. 
The grating thud of the keel grinding into the sound, quote, made a sound that could be heard and seen a good league off, unquote. The boy at the tiller woke Columbus, who in turn commanded Juan de la Cosa, the owner of the Santa Maria, along with some other men to get in the boat with the ship's anchors and tow the Santa Maria to safety. The sea continued knocking the Santa Maria against the coral reefs as Juan de la Cosa and the other men got in the boat. But instead of doing what Columbus asked, they began to row themselves to the Nina instead, intent on saving themselves. They were refused by the Nina's captain, the remaining Pinzon brother. Columbus witnessed his own men abandon ship as the sea drove the hull of the Santa Maria higher onto the reef. Eventually she began to list precariously, higher and higher, quote, as if preparing her death throes, unquote. Continuous wor Columbus worked to continue saving his flagship. He ordered the mainmast to be cut away, and the ship lightened as much as possible to see if they could get her off. But it was too little, too late. The Santa Maria drove against the reef, quote, she would not move, and new seams now opened, and the whole hull filled with water, unquote. Columbus laid down in the remains of his ship until daylight. The Santa Maria was lost. He was depressed. This was officially the worst Christmas ever. Once the day began, Columbus sent Diego de Arana and Pedro Gutierrez, the marshal of the fleet and butler of the royal household, respectively, to give their titles, to go get help from Guacanagari. Columbus wrote that he wept which is a remarkable confession. Officers at sea were disciplined commanders. They were to set an example for others. But on that day, Columbus was overwhelmed, terrified, and disgraced. And he shed tears at his situation. The Taino rushed to the Spaniard's side. They fearlessly swam out to the reefs. They climbed the razor-sharp coral and cleared the decks in a very short time. Such was the great haste and care that they gave. Guacanagari sent his relatives throughout the course of the day to the weeping admiral to console him, telling him that he must not be troubled or annoyed. They would lend him whatever help he needed. It was not a small gesture. The work throughout the day performed by the Taino were dangerous and necessary to save the supplies on the Santa Maria. And as the day progressed, as Columbus surveyed the wreck and, and, and the recovery, well, his mood began to brighten. Well, the supplies were safe. And in the natives of Hispaniola, Columbus concluded that he could not have found, quote, in all the world, better people, unquote. Worst Christmas ever? No. Perhaps... Perhaps this wasn't a disaster at all. In fact, Columbus began to see all of this as a Christmas miracle. He began developing a plan. He kept it secret at first. And the day after Christmas, he met with Guacanagari, who promised two very big houses, and more if necessary, in order to store the ship's cargo, as well as sufficient manpower to guard the cargo. Columbus offered to repay Guacanagari's kindness by offering more hawk's bells. The Taino who saw this gesture called out chuke, chuke in their language, 
which made them seem to Columbus, quote, on the point of going mad for them. Those bells were nice stuff. Columbus next took Guacanagari and a thousand good people to witness the firepower at the Spaniards' disposal. Columbus and Guacanagari spoke a good deal about strategic matters, um, how they might best fend off the Taino's fierce rival, the Caribs, who themselves carried bows and arrows and launched raiding parties against Guacanagari's people. Columbus ordered the firing of a musket and then a Lombard cannon. Gunpowder, of course, was unknown to the Taino, and they fell to the earth at the thunderous sound. Columbus used the cannon to smash a tree apart, and afterwards the Tainos were impressed. To solidify the alliance, they brought Columbus a big mask that had great pieces of gold in the ears and the eyes and other parts, along with other gold ornaments, which they ceremoniously draped over his head and neck. Columbus then revealed his plan. The shipwreck would be used to start construction on a new fortress colony at Hispaniola, from which he would rule a new Spanish empire. He gave orders to erect a tower and a fortress and a great moat. Columbus's vision for the fortress would be used to conquer all this island, which he believed to be larger than Portugal, and the Taino people who lived there, naked and without arms and very cowardly, would serve him. Ten days later, the rudimentary fortress was constructed from the wooden planks of the ruined Santa Maria. Columbus had done this without legal justification. Nowhere had Ferdinand and Isabella given Columbus permission to build a manned fort. But Columbus had a plan, like I said. The fortress was going to be his ticket to get permission for a second voyage. See, until now, he'd only been contra contracted for one. But if part of his crew were marooned on an island where only Columbus and just a few officers and pilots knew where they were, well, in that case, he would be necessary for future Spanish plans in the Caribbean. Only Columbus knew the location of the fortress. Only he could find it. For all the anticipation of Columbus's return, for all of the daring he'd shown in the voyage itself, all of this he now bound up in this new idea. His voyage to the new world was transformed from the end of his dream into a prologue to a much grander adventure, into empire, conquest, and conversion. Columbus's hopes were soaring. He'd gone from the depths of despair to the highs of hopefulness, and all it had taken was a change of perspective. And truly, there is a lesson in that for all of us. Now, Columbus was having good times, but like all good times, they must come to an end. The next day after coming up with this plan, Columbus dined with Guacanagari and some of his entourage. During that meal, more Tainos arrived with news. The missing Pinta was anchored in a river at the end of the island. The mutinous Martin Alonso Pinzon had returned. Now, Columbus feared Pinzon in some respects. Because if Martin Alonso returned to Spain and gave a different version of the events which transpired during the voyage that Columbus planned to present, well, then he might be seen as a self-seeking adventurer rather than as a chivalrous servant of Castile. Further, Columbus's idea, his new idea of establishing a colony in the wilds of India, was only going to succeed 
if his Spanish crew weren't threatening mutiny. The Spanish Pinzon offered the men on Columbus's crew with an alternative choice as leader. A Spanish choice. Now, the other Pinzon brother appeared to remain loyal to Columbus, but could he even trust his supposed allies? So, with all of that in his head, Columbus wrote a letter to Martin Alonso Pinzon, a letter of reconciliation, hoping to bring the man back into his good graces. He knew, though, that if he attempted to punish the mutinous captain, he would risk losing his entire crew. And after writing this letter, Columbus continued hanging out with Guacanagari. They exchanged more gifts, increased their friendship, and Columbus put three men in charge of the new fortress and staged, and then staged a mock battle between his men and some Tainos to demonstrate to the Indians how well protected they would be if the Caribs attacked. Thirty-nine men in total were chosen to remain behind in the fortress, along with plenty of supplies, and even the expedition's physician. Guacanagari attempted to get Columbus to stay. He was rather enjoying this new alliance, and even offered to make a gigantic statue of Columbus, made of gold, and that would be delivered in ten days. Regardless, Columbus departed on January 2nd, 1493. He did this without alerting Martin Alonso Pinzon, who then raced his ship, the Pinta, alongside the Nina for ten leagues. Before the caught up, the two ships then found a safe harbor, and Pinzon came aboard Columbus's ship for a meeting. Now, Pinzon, for his part, alleged that Columbus had left him against his will, rather than him having taken the Pinta in a mutinous fashion. Columbus accused Pinzon of being a greedy, insolent liar, and noted that the Tainos had said he'd gone to another island named Yamayeye, Jamaica, uh, to look for gold himself. And thus, Pinzon was guilty of insolence and, dis and disloyalty. Now, at any rate, after that meeting... The two ships stayed in the harbor for another two weeks, obtaining food, water, and wood for the voyage back. And, in addition, Columbus hoped he would hear word of a giant gold statue of himself that Guacanagari had promised. They finally departed on January 16th, though. But unfortunately, the return voyage to Spain was at least as dangerous as anything he'd experienced thus far in the Caribbean. There was a tempest in the Atlantic, and it threatened Columbus's safe return and threw him off course. He lost view of the Pinta as the storm raged for days, and fearful that they would sink to the bottom of the sea. Columbus and other sailors at one point began praying, begging mercy for God, and making oaths to take pilgrimages. They were so certain their death was near. But they survived, blown off course that they were. They were supposed to be reaching the Canary Islands on their way back to Castile. Instead, they were off the coast of the Azor Islands. Those belonged to the King of Portugal, the sovereign for whom Columbus had sailed for nearly a decade. Some of Columbus's crew went ashore to the island of São Miguel to pray and make good on the vows they had made during their storm. Now, the Portuguese captain of the island, a certain Juan de Castaneda, was absolutely not interested in any of that Spanish nonsense. Whatever those sailors were up to, he was certain it was no good. And as those men prayed, Portuguese forces fell upon them and took them all prisoners. Later that day, Columbus started to get suspicious about what had befallen his men. So he sailed in the direction of the island's chapel, where he was met with a barge 
carrying the island's captain and some of his men. More armed horsemen were on the shore, prepared to arrest Columbus and his crew, who had little choice but to allow the Portuguese to board the ship. Juan de Castaneda and Columbus argued and postured for some time about why Columbus's men had been seized. Columbus stated that he was returning from discovering the Indies, was on his way to Castile so he could be named Admiral of the Ocean Sea and Viceroy of the Indies by Ferdinand and Isabella, and he showed his impressive paperwork to go along with his claims. And if the Portuguese captain did not assist, Columbus threatened to take, quote, a hundred Portuguese to Castile with him and depopulate the whole island, unquote. Now, most of the settlers on the Azores were forced to live there via prison sentence reduction or some other means, and would have been more than happy to relocate to Europe. And so this was a very credible threat. And so eventually, this stalemate between the colonial Portuguese officials and Columbus was broken. The navigator finally was able to, uh, excuse me, Columbus the navigator was finally able to persuade two priests of the island that his men were not trespassing on San Miguel, but were merely making a sacred pilgrimage after having survived the storm. The arrested sailors were released. And with that adventure done, Columbus took sail and headed for Castile. But another squall started up, quote, that blew up, split all the sails, and Columbus found himself in great peril, unquote. Two days later, on March the 4th, Columbus reported that the tempest had become so terrible, they once again thought they were lost, and once again, the Spanish crew began praying and selecting pilgrims, who would make a pilgrimage if they made it safely back to shore. Make it to shore they did but they were not at Castile still. Instead, they were somewhere else Columbus recognized, a small peninsula just north of Lisbon, Portugal. Columbus was still fighting the storm and was left with a choice, head back into the ocean and face the storm and a near certainty of death or enter the Tagus River. Once again, Columbus was safe from storms but in potential danger from Portuguese authorities. Thus, Columbus returned to Europe, but instead of being in Castile and loudly and proudly proclaiming his discoveries, he was faced with a Portuguese ship, captained by none other than Bartolomeo Diaz, whose exploits I detailed in an earlier episode. Diaz and Columbus had last seen each other in 1488, during which time Diaz had just returned from discovering the Cape of Good Hope. But Diaz's voyages had resulted in great riches. Now, his duties included this type of security work on the Portuguese coast. Diaz brought Columbus into the Portuguese capital for an audience with Zhao II, and that was a dangerous meeting. The Portuguese King Zhao blamed himself for negligence in dismissing Columbus. And behind a mask of humility during the meeting... He considered executing Columbus, or alternatively, to keep his intentions discreet, he considered having assassins kill Columbus so he could pretend his own hands were clean. In the end, though, this didn't happen. Zhao treated Columbus honorably and sent him unharmed to Castile. So finally, on March 15, 1493, the Nina entered the harbor from which she'd departed over a year prior. Now only a single remaining risk threatened all that Columbus accomplished. While he had lost track of the Pinta, and had hoped she'd been lost in one of the two great storms he'd fought, instead he found, shortly after arriving, quote, born by a light wind, unquote, the Pinta likewise returned, 
sailing into the Hartley harbor shortly after the Nina. Martin Alonso Pinzon, the Pinto's mutinous captain, represented perhaps the greatest threat of all to Columbus. Both men would present their side of the story to the Catholic monarchs, and Pinzon, a Spaniard, would be able to make his case that it should be he, not some hot-headed foreigner, who should be in charge of any future exploration of Hispaniola and all that had been discovered during the expedition. Luckily for Christopher Columbus, though, Martin Alonso Pinzon never presented his case. Within days of his return to Spain, he fell ill and died. He never met with the Catholic monarchs. It is believed he may have contracted syphilis, a disease which ravaged Europeans, and unlike all the other diseases uh, that we're going to be talking about in detail in the next episode, I think, syphilis originated in the Americas. Now, as for Columbus, he presented his incredible story. He also changed a few details. Remember, he had legal authority in the Indies, not in new lands discovered. So, in the Caribbean, when Columbus uh, learned from the Tainos that Hispaniola was an island, well, he considered that a very believable truth. But now, with a viceroy ship at his fingertips, Columbus recast both Hispaniola and Cuba, not as islands, but as sections of the Chinese mainland. In an official letter to the monarchs, Columbus stated that Hispaniola was so extensive, quote, this must be the mainland, the province of Cathay. Cathay was what Europeans called China at the time. He declared the Tainos to be subjects of the great Khan, and because of his successes, Columbus argued that the monarchs must send him, Columbus, back on a second voyage to take control of these territories, for only he was capable of finding them, and only he knew what would be required to conquer them. Thus, Cristoforo Colombo was made viceroy of the Indies, admiral of the ocean sea, and was tasked to return to the Indies. Peter Martyr tells us, quote, the Spanish sovereigns commanded that henceforward Columbus should be called Prefectus Marinus, or in the Spanish tongue, Almirante, unquote. His appointment for a second voyage came on May the 20th, 1493, this time in command of a significant fleet. On his first voyage, Columbus commanded three ships. Now, to make good on his discoveries, the Catholic monarchs and numerous investors provided Columbus with 17 ships. An enormous investment. It might not even have been possible for Spain to make, except in 1492, a substantial amount of property and jewelry had been confiscated from Jews in Spain. The Spanish Inquisition was in full effect, and five million Maravedis were stolen by the Spanish crown with the expulsion of the Jews. Now, investments from blood money taken care of, Columbus set off again, bound for the Indies a second time. The ships were well stocked with provisions and carried all the things and persons needed to settle those islands. Quote, artisans of all kinds, laborers and peasants to work the fields, unquote. In contract to the first voyage, where Columbus was scraping for every crew member he could find, quote, so many offered themselves that it was necessary to restrict the number of those who might go, unquote. Seventeen ships were fully stocked with supplies and animals as well, including horses, over a thousand gentlemen, commoners and criminals, a microcosm of Spain, was about to be transported to the New World. Amongst them were Basques, Genoese, and Spaniards, 
Of course, the Pinzone family was notably absent from the roster. On the ships were bureaucrats and political leaders. Alonso Sanchez de Caraval, for example, was among the journey. He was the mayor of the town of Beza. Pedro de las Casas, father of Bartolome de las Casas, was on board as well, as were three of his brothers. The fleet's physician, Diego Alvarez Chanca, had previously treated Queen Isabella, amongst others. He was amongst the best-educated men who were sent on the journey. Juan de la Cosa was on the voyage. He would later win renown for being part of Amerigo Vespucci's expedition, and afterwards creating the first European representation of the New World when he created the Mapa Mundi of 1500. Of course, he would later be besides himself that he incorrectly attributed to Vespucci the discovery of South America when he learned that where Vespucci had went, Venezuela, was the exact same place as Columbus's pariah. Anyway, Juan Pence de Leon was on the trip. He becomes, later, the first governor of Puerto Rico and would obtain such riches that later he personally financed his own voyage, something Columbus never had the wealth to do. And during said voyage, Juan Ponce de Leon discovered La Florida in 1513. Anyway, the fleet left Cadiz on September 25th, 1493, after a pit stop at the Canary Islands, and arrived in the Caribbean on November the 3rd. The expedition reached the Leeward Islands, the northernmost chain on the Antilles. The men were, of course, understandably cheerful, though not quite as much as the horses, apparently. The expedition did not linger long, though. They were headed to Hispaniola and to the fort there, which Columbus had named after the date uh, on which, uh, after Christmas, Fort La Navidad. After a few days later, Columbus sighted Guadalupe for the first time. The Spaniards searched the island, but the villages they found were always abandoned, save for a few children they did find, in whose hands they put hawk spells in order to reassure the parents when they returned. They were startled by the human bones which hung in the houses of the Taino. Important ancestors amongst the Taino were honored in the afterlife by, by, by having their bones hung in the household. Um, at any rate. Now, perhaps the Tainos on Guadalupe were fearful, as the Tainos elsewhere had been, of attacks with other Caribbean groups, the Neferian Caribs, which the Spanish say. Columbus says that the Caribs ate men, kidnapped women, and cut the penises off of Taino boys. Now, the archaeological evidence indicates there was no such Carib invasion. Rather, it shows that other non-Taino groups were living on the Lesser Antilles when Taino settlers from the Greater Antilles encroached on the Lesser Antilles, um, on islands that that kind of bordered Taino and non-Taino populations. Thus, the Caribs, who were whoever they really were, and whether or not they were actually cannibals, we don't know, were at war with the Taino in response to Taino aggression. My episode, Earthshaker, deals heavily with this episode if you want more info. Now, Columbus and the Spaniards got to see the effects of the war one day when Columbus sent two boats to capture an Indian so that they might learn how to get to Hispaniola and thus find La Navidad. On one such mission, they found a couple of boys who had been kidnapped from Buriquen, what Puerto Rico today, and had been taken to Antigua. Later, six women... uh, 
escaped the Caribs, seeking refuge on the ships. Now, Columbus refused this request. He loaded up the six uh, women with hawk spells and other gifts and then sent them back ashore. Um, when they arrived back on Antigua's beach, they were promptly seized by the same Carib men from whom they were escaping. The men pilfered the trinkets in full sight of the Spaniards. So on a third such encounter, Columbus accepted three other women refugees onto the ships. He says he learned, quote, through gestures, unquote, that he learned that their husbands and brothers had been eaten by the cannibalistic Carib people. Now, he never witnessed cannibalism, so it's hard to tell if that's true. I mean, maybe it was. Or maybe it was an invention of Columbus and the Spaniards' imagination. Or maybe it was a lie told by escaped Tainos about people who'd captured and enslaved them. At any rate, by the time Columbus was ready to depart from Guadalupe, he found himself unable to do so unless he wanted to leave without a missing company of nine men. Nine men who'd gone ashore and not yet returned. So the Almirante dispatched a rescue party. They landed and fired off aqua arquebuses, hoping that the deafening sounds of the gunpowder would draw their missing comrades to the shore. And when that didn't work, um, they, Columbus sent a, a larger search party into the interior. Alonso de Ojeda led that rescue party to search for strays and learn the secrets of the company, and he didn't find the missing Spaniards. But Ojeda and his men did learn a little bit about the Taino village they came across. And they are the ones who reported how Taino athletes played the ball game. They also reported about a strange ceremony called an arietto, in which Taino participants sang, danced, and played music while ingesting hallucinogens and drinking tea that made them throw up, something that was practiced in many native uh, societies, the, the tea drink. It was designed to purify the soul. Um, at any rate, the missing crew, though, suddenly appeared on the beach. Uh, it was November the 8th, and they came alongside ten ref Tainos who were seeking refuge. They explained they'd gone astray in the forest and couldn't see the stars to orient themselves. Now, whether or not that is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is unknown to yours truly. For his part, Columbus did not buy that story. He punished the captain of the missing men, putting him in chains. The other eight missing sailors who returned, he put on short rations. On November 10th, Columbus finally set sail for Guadalupe and made his way towards Hispaniola. A storm put them off course, and they were forced four days later to take refuge in the rough sea, from the rough seas on the island of St. Croix. They landed there looking for supplies and promptly started eating some delicious-looking apples, but turned out to be poisonous. They were still very unfamiliar with the Caribbean. Fernandez de Oviedo, the Spanish chronicler, reports that the natives that the native Cari that the natives of the Caribbean, excuse me, mixed poison from those apples with toxins from vipers and various insects to create deadly poisons. And not long after, the Europeans got another dose of that poison. According to Columbus, they were attacked by a large canoe full of Caribs who brandished bows and arrows. Oviendo says that 50 Spaniards were wounded from poison arrows in the encounter, and of those, only three survived. Columbus's friend, Michel de Cuneo, a, fennel, a fellow Genoese who wrote a letter about his experiences, described the action as having turned to conquist described the action as having turned from the Carib advantage to the conquistador's advantage after a devastating Spanish counterattack. After that, 
the capability for Spanish brutality was captured by Cuneo's description of the aftermath of the battle. Quote, One Carib was wounded by a spear in such a way that we thought he was dead. But when he tried to swim to safety, the Spaniards grabbed him, pulled him into the ship, where we cut his head off with an axe, unquote. Cuneo was in the boat and himself where that happened. And besides this grisly death, he captured, quote, a very beautiful woman whom the Lord Admiral gave to me, unquote. Peter Martyr says that the, caciques, that the cacique of this group was a woman. And it wasn't until her son was wounded twice did the Caribs stop attacking. Cuneo's letter continued after the battle. There, he graphically and rather casually reported raping though Indian, the captive woman which Columbus had apparently gifted to him. Quote, When I had taken her to my captain, cabin, she was naked, as was their custom. I was filled with a desire to take my pleasure with her and attempted to satisfy my desire. She was unwilling, and so treated me with her nails that I wished I had never begun. I then took a piece of rope and whipped her soundly. And she let forth such incredible screams that you would not have believed your ears. Eventually, we came to such terms, I assure you, that you would have thought she had been brought up in a school for whores. Unquote. The casual way that Michel de Cuneo reports raping this woman shows us how commonplace these attacks were. A full third of Columbus's second expedition, 400 of the 1,200 men were sick with syphilis within months of their arrival. Lawrence Beargreen says of this incident, quote, Thus began the rape of the New World, unquote. It wasn't until late November when then the fleet finally arrived off the coast of Hispaniola. Columbus sent ashore a scouting party to search for La Navidad and the men he left behind. That party made a grisly discovery. Two dead men near the river, one with a rope around his neck, the other with a rope around his foot. The day after that, the scouts discovered two more dead men, quote, one of whom was in a position that revealed he had a long beard, unquote. Dr. Chanka, the physician of the expedition, uh, wrote an account, and he reveals that the discovery of that, uh, that second discovery, a uh, particular of the bearded dead man, quote, left some of our men with more negative than positive feelings, since none of the Indians seen so far had beards, unquote. Now, Columbus himself was silent about this discovery. They were about 36 miles from La Navidad. The expedition got closer, and Columbus called on his ally, Guacanagari, that's a cacique from the first expedition, but he heard no word of the Tainos until he was three miles from the fort, at which point a canoe finally appeared. Columbus was suspicious by this point. He didn't wait to speak with the natives. He heard two shots fired to announce their arrival and heard only silence in return. With every passing minute, Columbus and the others suspected that the comrades whom they had left there had been completely wiped out. Dr. Chanka reported that the great sadness was all-encompassing. And when the Spaniards went ashore, they found neither fire nor dwellings. Late in the day, the canoe, which Columbus earlier ignored, finally caught up to the ships. The Indians on it came on board to speak with Columbus. One of them was Guacanagari's cousin. 
He presented the Almirante with gifts of golden masks and explained that Guacanagari was wounded from a battle between his forces and those of two other caciques named Kaonobo and Marieni. They had launched an attack and set fire to Guacanagari's village. According to the Taino, the story they told was that the Spaniards at the fort had helped themselves to the wives and daughters of some of the Tainos and other chiefdoms than Guacanagari's. And so in revenge, uh, Kaonobo and Marieni slew the Spaniards. After that, Columbus inspected the ruins of the fort he found, and there he found, quote, nothing remained of the houses except for some smashed chests and other such wreckage as one sees in a land that has been devastated and put to the sack, unquote. Now, Columbus still wasn't sure what had happened. He didn't really believe the story which he heard, as believable as it might be to you and I. And when he sailed upriver to look for answers from Guacanagari, who still hadn't yet been seen, and which was becoming increasingly suspicious to Columbus, he and the other Spaniards found the bodies of ten more Spaniards. They were, quote, miserably deformed and corrupted, smeared with dirt and foul blood, and hideously discolored, unquote. They had lain in the open air unburied for three months, before finally being found by Columbus's second expedition and receiving a burial from their saddened companions. Columbus's grand vision took a pretty serious blow from all of this, such that he felt the need to explain the situation to the Catholic monarchs. His next letter explained that, quote, had they governed themselves according to my instructions, unquote, they would have been fine, but instead... The Spaniards, quote, gave themselves over to eating and to the pleasure of women, and so they came to ruin and destroyed themselves, unquote. Now, to Columbus, this, despite the visual evidence he saw, this kind of seemed impossible. He had been of the belief that it was impossible for naked pagans armed with spears and arrows to defeat Christian warriors armed with swords and gunpowder. He also believed himself to be a vessel of God's will. I mean, Columbus kind of saw his life as the fulfillment of a divine plan, and this was really throwing a wrench in the gears. Guacanagari still wasn't present, and his deputy told Columbus that Kaunobo and Mariana burned the fort, fought Guacanagari's forces, and wounded the cacique for siding with the Spanish, which is why he hadn't shown up. And he was unsure, Columbus was, if he could trust this information. He ordered a thorough search of the area. And that search party, when they reached a small nearby hamlet, found the Indians flee, the Indi made the inhabitants flee. The Spanish found that increasingly suspicious. In the lodgings of those people, they had pilfered some of the remains of the fort. Trousers, cloth, an anchor from the ship, even a mantle so elegant, quote, one could not explain why it had been brought from Castile in the first place, unquote. And if you take those found, be those belongings, which were discovered uh, alongside the other things in Taino houses, like hanging bones and baskets with preserved heads in them, well, the Spanish definitely weren't sure that they could uh, trust Guacanagari and his people. At another nearby village, though, the Spaniards received a tribute of gold, and that put them a little bit more at ease. They also learned more about the murder of the Christians. The people of that village told the scouting party, quote, some of them had taken three women, others four, unquote. And according to the Taino, the Spaniards then began to quarrel amongst themselves as soon as Almirante departed about who would get which women. 
Each of them ended up taking as many women and as much gold as he could, and fighting began uh, not just between the Spaniards, but with the Tainos after that. Vengeful-minded husbands, brothers, and fathers started ambushing Spaniards whenever they could. The cacique Caunobo was particularly enraged when one of the Spaniards took his wife. He arrived at the town at night in, in revenge and, quote, set fire to the houses in which the Christians lived with their women, forcing them to flee in fright to the sea, where eight of them drowned. Three others, whom the Indians could not identify, were killed ashore, unquote. To Columbus and the Spaniards, the only good thing they heard in that tale was that Guacanagari had taken the side of the Christians and was wounded while fighting against Caunobo, which was the same story they'd heard from Guacanagari's cousin. And so, you know, Columbus was thankful. And he started to believe that, quote, this Guacanagari is really not responsible for the death of our people. On the contrary, I am most obligated to him, unquote. The next morning, December 7th, had Columbus dispatch one of the caravels to look for a new place to build a new city. Another search party was sent to find Guacanagari, and that one included Dr. Chanka. He was much more suspicious of the Taino than Columbus, and when Chanka's search party found Guacanagari lying on his pallet in the posture of one who suffers wounds, the doctor didn't believe they were true. Chanka asked Guacanagari if he could inspect his wounded leg and concluded he was not seriously wounded. That report gave Columbus some pause. Perhaps Guacanagari had helped murder the Spanish. But all of Columbus's doubts were soon pushed aside because Guacanagari had many gifts, belts and headgear adorned with precious stones and plenty of gold, quote, 100 gold beans, beads, excuse me, a royal gold crown and three little gourds filled with gold grains, unquote. This was more than enough to stun and flatter Columbus. And it tells us a lot, of, an awful lot, about Columbus and the other Spaniards and their lust for gold. In the words of Lawrence Bergreen, quote, The brilliance of gold put the lives of the barely mourned, practically anonymous men at La Navidad into the shadows of obscurity. A leader who valued gold above the security of his men could be counted on to aspire great accomplishments at great costs, unquote. That's a good line there. He's absolutely right. The conquistadors of this era were absolutely obsessed, and Columbus was just like all of the others. Dr. Eric Williams, in his Anthology of Documents of West Indian History, has an entire section in that book entitled Lust for Gold, and in which to illustrate his point, Eric Williams assembles 14 separate instances in which Columbus specifically mentioned looking for gold in his journal. Now, we don't have Columbus's journal. He just quotes from other sources, like Las Casas and, uh, and Columbus's son Ferdinand. But that's a lot more talk about gold than any other subject which Columbus wrote about, just so you know. Now, at any rate, what with all the gold being traded, the Columbus and the Spaniards were in a pretty swell mood. Columbus invited Guacanagari back to his ships, where he became one of the very first Americans to look at a horse for the first time. One Spanish incident wrote of the incident, quote, Their formidable appearance did not fail to terrify the Indians, for they suspected that the horses fed on human flesh, unquote. Guacanagari further pleased Columbus by agreeing to wear on his neck a silver image of the Virgin, something he'd refused to done, do on the first voyage. Now, some of the Spaniards, despite all of that, they advised Columbus to capture Guacanagari, but Columbus let him go. Um, 
Now, he ended up regretting this decision, and that reason was that Guacanagari appeared to know the women whom the Spaniards had earlier saved uh, on, uh, on Antigua, who had been refugees, and the next day, those women dove, escaped from the ship and dove into the ocean and swam to shore. Uh, Columbus believed they were escaping back to Guacanagari, or, you know, and, and that may very well have been true, but they never did find out if it was. The party Columbus sent to look for Guacanagari, and whom they imagined was with the quote-unquote stolen women, uh, women were very much seen as property back then, um, but they were nowhere to be found. Perhaps he was absconding with the ladies. But it is also possible that the Spaniards just didn't know what the hell was going on. Columbus sent a party of several hundred Spaniards in search of the fugitives. They ended up wandering about in some, quote, torturous gorges with steep hills on both sides, unquote, before finding a hut in the distance. They believed Guacanagari was inside. But when they approached, they were confronted by a different cacique, an old man with a wrinkled forehead and thick eyebrows. He was accompanied by a hundred warriors armed with bows, arrows, painted lances, and poles. The Indians approached the Spaniards with a threatening look. They shouted that they were Taino, that is, noble people, not cannibals. The Spanish said to themselves, well, these are clearly not cannibals, but good people. And the potentially violent conflict passed into reconciliation and trade. The Spanish offered hawks bells to the Tainos and then returned to the ships, quote, to ponder the enigmatic ways of the Indians, unquote. Now, the, the party which had been looking for a new fortress was uh, eventually found a site. Now, according to Columbus, it was on a marvelous lands that surpassed anything in Castile, though in reality the Caribbean would prove to be nearly impossible to settle. Um, and he called the settlement La Isabella, in honor of the queen, it sat close to the beach, quote, at one of the best ports in the world, large enough to hold all existing ships, unquote. According to the local Indians, it was near the golden mines, which did not actually exist. Uh, La Isabella's creation was full of hope. In the eyes of Columbus and many others, La Isabella would one day rival the great cities of Europe. And it, it certainly wasn't just another trading post or fortress, no. This was a manifestation Spanish civilization transplanted to a new place. Now, reality, though, did not match Columbus's desires. Quoting Carl Ortwin Sauer here, quote, The colonists were hardly in condition for the physical labor required to build a town. Many had never done such work, and none had labored in the tropics, unquote. Within a week, a third of the people on the voyage were sick. Illnesses continued for several months, numerous men died, quote, and hardly a man escaped the terrible fevers, unquote. Regardless, the colony was formally founded on January 6th, 1494, the day of the Feast of the Epiphany. It was an important day in the Christian calendar, and so a dozen priests dedicated the settlement in the makeshift church which had been built. This was the first mass held in the New World, but Columbus and the Spanish were looking for gold, not salvation. They didn't reflect on this milestone. Instead, Columbus sent out Alonso de Ojeda and Ginés de Gobor, Gorbalan excuse me, to the supposed mining region of the Sibeyo. About two dozen scouts and a handful of Taino guides accompanied them. They didn't find any gold mines, 
But on January 20th, Ojeda returned after having faced storms, mudslides, and floods, and returning with gold, gifts, and a number of captured Indian slaves. Now, eventually, Ojeda would rise to become governor of Hispaniola. Now, the other guy, Ginez de Gourbalan, spent an extra day in the Cebeyao, and then he returned with even more of the same. Now, mind you, neither of those men actually mined any of the gold. These, this gold was were given as gifts or stolen, but Columbus expected much more and readied a much larger mining expedition. Now, as this all went about, the Spanish basically continued raping their way from village to village, and as a result, three or four hundred of the conquistadors had fallen ill by this time of syphilis. Dr. Chanka had his hands full. Columbus moralized on the topic. He placed, quote, greater blame on heavy womanizing, which is here widespread. If they are so immodest and unrestrained, it is not strange that they should suffer the consequences, unquote. In response to this issue, or to deal with this issue, Columbus decided it would be necessary to rotate his men. Some, the ill ones, would be sent back to Spain. They would be replaced with fresh men, not suffering from STDs. Now, incidentally, those who were sent back were able to boast about the size of the giant gold nuggets that were about to be mined in the Sibiao, and as well as all the adventures they had, and they were so popular that they caused a massive outbreak of syphilis back in Europe. Columbus sent Antonio de Torres with 12 ships back to Spain on February 2nd, 1494, along with a report of what had happened so far and a request for additional supplies. On the one hand, though, the returning ships were also to convey the news of the massacre at La Navidad. That wasn't going to play very well back in Spain. But if you're thinking that Ferdinand and Isabella were angry for all the ways in which his promises had fallen short to this point, you are wrong. Because when Antonio de Torres arrived back in Cadiz on March 7, 1494, he was able to present the Catholic monarchs with 30,000 ducats worth of gold. This was a small fortune. And as long as Columbus kept his pledge to deliver gold, there was plenty of love for Columbus back in Spain. Torres also carried a letter from Columbus that tried to explain how the cacique Caunobo, quote, a very evil and even more audacious man, unquote, he endangered them. um, And if it weren't for Caunobo's evil, nothing bad would have happened and there would be way more gold. Columbus also asked for supplies. He needed fruit to prevent scurvy. That kept getting worse and worse. Apparently, the poisonous apples had kept the Spanish from from trying too many of the fruits of the Caribbean. Columbus also sent many captured Indians back with Torres. With Torres, excuse me. All of them were Caribs, if we were to believe Columbus and the Spaniards. And Columbus proposed regular transports of the cannibals between the island and Spain. Who the sovereigns disagreed on this. They were happy with the gold, and they certainly weren't necessarily against the concept of slavery, but the slaves, which Columbus sent back to Spain, almost all died of disease on the very crowded docks of Seville. And the idea of shipment after shipment of Caribs who would simply perish upon landing in Spanish ports didn't sound like a very good idea to the Spanish mon- to the Catholic monarchs. Ferdinand and Isabella insisted Torres inform Columbus, quote, what happened here with the cannibals who came? and urged Columbus, quote, to get busy there, if at all possible, that they submit to our holy Catholic faith, unquote, in Hispaniola, might I add. Now, one last thing that Columbus mentions in his letter on the second voyage 
were his thoughts on some of the other conquistadors. Some, like Ojeda and Dr. Chanka, deserved recognition in the form of higher pay and better supplies. But many of the quote-unquote caballeros, unquote, who'd, uh, the knights who'd arrived with him, brought inferior horses and were lazy. Quote, these caballeros are the kind of people who, when they do not feel well, or do not feel like doing anything, claim that their horses are not to be used without them. And besides, they expect to do no work at all except on horseback, unquote. Columbus wanted them gone. The sovereigns declared that the caballeros must stay, but that they were required to make their horses available whenever the Almirante commanded. Finally, Columbus also had words on his most unruly volunteers. He recommended that all 200 of them receive pay. The sovereigns agreed to this. Now, Columbus was ill during much of his stay at Isabella, along with many of his men, and that might have been why he was so grumpy about the people who he thought weren't working very hard. But his words also revealed the tensions that were growing between the men in the expedition. Fault lines were developing in Hispaniola even this early. Columbus had many talents that related to navigation and slave trading. He could be quite persuasive at court. But throughout his career, people kept ended up despising him and his rule. And the Spaniards on Hispaniola started to buck under Columbus's leadership. At any rate, Columbus also dispatched Alonso de Ojeda again into the interior. Ojeda took 15 men to look for the mines of the Sibayao. Six days later, he did find the Sibayao and many streams there that contained some loose nuggets of gold. He reported back to Columbus that the region was very rich in gold, an overstatement. But Columbus set out, still recovering from his illness. He was very eager to see this for himself. He put his brother... Diego Columbus, in charge of La Isabella to supervise the construction, and ordered all the arms stored in the flagship that none might use them to mutiny, as some has attempted to do while he was ill. Unquote. Now, Ferdinand Columbus explained the constant mutiny attempts under his father's rule as such. Quote, because the Hidalgos and other amateur adventurers believed as soon as they landed, they could load themselves with gold and return home rich, they did not know that the gold may never be ha- that gold may never be had without a sacrifice of time, toil, and privations. Unquote. Once these men learned the truth, that they would be working very hard for far less gold than they expected, many of them turned to having mutinous thoughts against their foreign commander. Columbus decided the best way to quiet this dissent, both from Hispaniola's native population and the grumbling factions of Spaniards under him, that the best way to quiet this would be to lead his men in military columns, departing for the interior from La Isabella on March 12th, bound for the Sibayao, quote, with all his cavalrymen and 400 foot soldiers, unquote, a force large enough to display his power. He left with everyone, except those required to guard the ships and three caravels that remained of the fleet and headed into the interior, which Las Casas described as a place, quote, so fresh, so green, so open, of such color and altogether of such beauty, that as soon as they saw it, they felt that they had arrived in some part of paradise, unquote. 
Columbus's remarks on the Caribbean could be even more glowing, just so you know, in no small part due to his desire to sell potential settlers as well as the Spanish crown on the idea of a colony on Hispaniola, with him up in charge, of course. For example, he wrote back to Ferdinand and Isabella that the streams of the Sibayao were, quote, clear, delicious, cold, not like those waters that harm people and make them sick. In fact, they dissolve kidney stones, and many were cured, unquote. He also mentioned that, quote, all the streams and creeks, large and small, have gold nuggets. I am certain this gold comes from the mines on the peaks of the mountains, and during the rainy season the water carries it into the stream, unquote. There was gold on Hispaniola and in the Sibayao, but it was nothing like what Columbus believed. And when Columbus started, and this starts trouble for Columbus, he's writing his beliefs in Spain as if they were fact. And by overselling Hispaniola, eventually Columbus incurred the disfavor of the Catholic monarchs. Now, Columbus, though, at the moment, hadn't dis of course, hadn't discovered how wrong he was about the gold supply. And after the return of the Ojeda expedition, he and his men began the construction of a string of forts to protect his future mining operations. The first was named Fortaleza, Spanish for fortress, and was built in the sweltering heat of the Caribbean on a small hill along the way between La Isabella and Columbus's destination, the Sibayao. Another fortress was constructed within the Sibayao on the bank of a large river, quote, so they could go there gradually and safely explore the, and to explore the region's hidden places, unquote. That fort was 72 miles from La Isabella. Columbus named it Santo Thomas, Tomas, doubting Thomas the Apostle, named by Columbus as kind of as a way to teach his skeptics as a lesson. Now, while the Spaniards set up shop, Tainos who wished to trade with them also started to gather in the Sibayao. They obtained bells and other items from Europeans, exchanging gold and other things for them. Some of the nuggets brought to Columbus and his men were in fact so large that the Almirante believed that the Tainos had, must have melted down smaller nuggets together to form larger lumps, big as walnuts. Some even, quote, ranged in size to a big orange, unquote. Columbus's appetite was truly whetted now. He sent many of the men and soldiers to explore from Sao Thomas. However, Columbus abandoned this mining expedition soon afterwards. He was back at La Isabella by April 1st, and was curiously silent as to what happened, except to say that the distance from the Sibiao to the ships was too great, and that he lacked the proper gold mining equipment to take advantage of the situation. He promised he would return to the Sibiao later, and that's when things would really pick up. Lawrence Burgreen says this account is, quote, deeply suspect, unquote. Columbus did find gold, but most of that was through trade. Much of what was in the Sibao streams was actually fool's gold, you know, not all that glitters is gold, you see. And when all is said and done, Columbus seems suspect in Spain over time. He does bring gold back to Spain, and it's a substantial amount. It's just far, far less than he promised. Now, when Columbus returned from the interior, he discovered at La Isabella that some of his men had mutinied. This mutiny was started by Bernal Piaz de Pisa, Bernal Diaz de Pisa, excuse me, the fleet's comptroller, a constable back in the royal court in Spain who rebelled while Columbus was in country. I mean, can't trust the con. Who can you trust around here? Unfortunately for the mutineers, Columbus was able to immediately arrest uh, Diaz de Pisa. 
Uh, earlier, de Pisa had created a catalog of accusations against Columbus, some of which were true, some of which were fabricated. Las Casas, who got to see some of those letters, quote, could not imagine just how the admiral could have committed all the crimes and injuries listed in the short space of two months, unquote, which had been attributed to him by Diaz de Pisa. De Pisa uh, kept those letters concealed in a buoy to hide them from Columbus until they could be delivered in Spain. Now, Columbus defended his actions, stating that he was obligated by law to hand out the punishments he did. And in fact, European naval law gave captains extraordinary powers at sea. So there probably were some pretty fair complaints against Columbus. But uh, Las Casas, who didn't particularly like Columbus all that much, concluded of Diaz de Pisa's mutiny, quote, Criminals are always demanding to go unpunished and always claim their actions are justified and it is they who are being victimized, unquote. Now, so while a small number of Spaniards continued to labor at La Isabella, the larger number searched for gold in the Sibaya. Um, meanwhile, many of them also returned to Spain with Antonio de Torres, who was kind of making a pretty good career for himself, uh, making trips back and forth from Spain to, the, to, his, to Hispaniola. Now, Torres brought, and the, the ship brought back from the Indies, gold, spices, all sorts of parrots and other birds, and numerous slaves. Um, the Spanish, of course, claimed the, spade, the slaves ate human flesh and children and castrated men, um, that the Caribs traveled from island to island, quote, even as far as a thousand miles in search of plunder, unquote, and, quote, that they hand over the cap female captives as slaves to their womenfolk or make use of them to satisfy their lust. The children born by, born by the captives are eaten just like the captives, unquote. Now, it's a pretty fearsome, even gruesome description of man-eaters. But it's, it, like I said, it's hard to say how much of that is true. Um, the American slaves, at any rate, were also considered intelligent, sharp-witted, and shrewd, uh, which were descriptions that gave hope they might become civilized and adopt European ways of life. Mind you, the European way of life in the late 15th century was pretty barbaric in its own ways. But... At any rate, uh, that's what they thought of the uh, savage Indians. Um, even besides the attempted mutiny, when Columbus returned to La Isabella in April, the settlement was on the verge of collapse. Columbus had overworked the men in the heat. Many of them were undisciplined. Hundreds became ill with syphilis or other ailments. In addition, many began to starve. The food stored in the Caribbean brought from Spain, much of it rotted in the heat and humidity. Now, Columbus blamed other ship captains for this, who the other ship captains were busy blaming Columbus. And, and that's what the situation was on April 1st, 1494. Columbus returned from the Sibiao, and he pressed everyone, not just servants, but hidalgos, even clerics, into service to construct a water mill and canal so that the settlement could grind wheat. Under Columbus's rule, everyone, even Spanish gentlemen, not only worked, but cooked their own meals, assuming that they could find something edible. Sick men, meanwhile, received every day a single egg and a pot of chickpeas. As spring of 1494 dragged on, death began to stalk the settlement. Spanish hidalgos would never before coped with anything close to this sort of deprivation, starved in the heat. Columbus enforced his rule with constant threats of violence. 
success to Columbus in this venture was no longer an option. At this point, he was going to get rich or kill his men trying. Thus, his rule on Hispaniola was one similar to a, it was a dominant, he was a dominating overseer, and his colony struggled on the verge of collapse. As a result of this, accusations of the Almirante's cruelty and his hatred for Spaniards slowly began to gain more and more credence back in the royal court of Spain. Columbus and many back in Spain, including the king and queen, believed that establishing trade with China was going to be super easy. But by now, well into the second voyage, that no longer appeared true. And Columbus was discovering that building an empire required a very different set of skills that he had. Um, Or rather, he wasn't really discovering those skills. Columbus could be very pig-headed sometimes. And the skills of military commander, politician, and spiritual leader um, were all skills that the ruler of a new colony kind of needed. And these were all skills in which Columbus was lacking. Worse for Columbus, though, his patrons, Ferdinand and Isabella, were beginning to come to that conclusion. Now, Fort Santo Tomas, the other settlement, wasn't faring all that much better than La Isabella. The admiral was at wit's end with La Isabella's problems when a messenger arrived stating that that the cacique Caunobo had pledged to kill every Christian at Santo Tomas. Columbus placed Alonso de Ojeda in command of a force, quote, to show the strength and power of the Christians, which might cow the Indians into learning to obey, unquote. Ojeda was one of Columbus's most trusted officers, besides his brothers. Ojeda was also, according to Las Casas, quote, always the first to draw blood whenever there was a war or a quarrel, unquote. Ojeda marched from La Isabella on April 9, 1494, and met an armed force of Tainos. Columbus reported on the incident. Quote, there were over 2,000 Indians, all armed with javelins, which they'd launched from slings much more quickly than from a bow. All of them were painted black in other colors, with fancy glass beads, mirrors, masks, and mirrors of copper and gold on their heads, letting out frightening cries as they are wont to do at certain times. Unquote. The Spaniards faced a force of well-trained warriors, but they had a huge advantage. The Taino were unfamiliar with horses. Now, had they known better, the Taino could have used like the William Wallace strategy. They might have used primitive wooden lances and destroyed Ojeda's force with ease. This, though, was the first battle between European cavalry and a Native American army. The Taino plan was to jump at and tip over the horses, to tackle them or jump kick them. You know, and they say that experience is the best teacher, but I'll be honest, that's only true if an experience doesn't leave you dead. Quoting Columbus, quote, they tried to carry out their plan, but it was the horses that ran over them as they stood in the way. The horses collided with them and killed them, unquote. Columbus considered this battle a miracle. Afterwards, Ojeda captured three of the Indian leaders, a chief, his brother, and nephew, placed them in irons, and later presented them before Columbus at La Isabella. Ojeda poured more salt into the wounds of the defeated Taino by ordering his men to march 
to another in, march other Indians back to the midst of, hit, of the village and then cut off their ears in the village square in retribution for their failure to help the Spaniards. Columbus was no less harsh. When he received the three prisoners from Ojeda, he immediately ordered them to be taken to the main square and publicly beheaded. Now, Columbus considered the matter settled and set about planning further exploration of the Caribbean in his attempts to reach China. He learned from natives that Hispaniola was a very large island that would take more, him more than 40 moons to circumnavigate. Uh, yet the fact that he had legal jurisdiction in the Indies helped him imagine that he was believe, that his, he literally imagined his way that into thinking he was on the Malay Peninsula in Southeast Asia instead of on an island. And thus, he was going to soon be sailing into a region which Marco Polo called the Golden Chersonese. He left Hispaniola and headed off to China, which, of course, Columbus did not realize, uh, was still over 11,000 miles away. Obviously, he didn't find China, but what he did find were more major islands in the Caribbean. Jamaica, then Cuba, which like Hispaniola, he wasn't sure if Cuba was an island or not. Um, after making contact with various Taino polities on Jamaica and Cuba, he found another island, um, called, which he named Tortuga, since it was shaped like a turtle. And he never did find any mainland, but he spent several months looking. With that said, when Columbus discovered Cuba he made all the men on that voyage sign a document he produced that made them swear they were on the Chinese mainland and not some island. If, and then Columbus even promised penalties if they changed their minds later. Carl Wharton Sauer says, quote, The men were tired and bored and weary of eating fish, conks, and oysters to eke out their stores. They had been seeing the same low-lying islands and marshes, running aground occasionally on mudflats, and visiting a few Indian settlements. If the admiral insisted, he could have their agreement. Unquote. Now, people today claim that Columbus did this because he is stupid. That is, of course, not true. He did this because he was very eager to legally demonstrate he had reached the mainland of the Orient. Now, he was somewhat less eager to test that assertion, Anyway, Columbus returned to Hispaniola after his voyage of discovery on September 29th. This was an... It's hard to explain a months-long absence from a brand new colony which had just, I mean, been at war with Tainos and been suffering mutinies. And I mean, if you're wondering, I mean, doesn't Hispaniola seem to have a lot of problems with supplies going bad, potential revolt, and an increasingly disgruntled Taino population? Well, yeah. Columbus, like I said, just wasn't the right man for that job. He preferred to be out on the open sea where his real talents lie. He went through this colonial venture at times with an attitude that conveyed, I, I just don't think he had the, the willpower to stay on Hispaniola through hot summers and deal with problems that were developing there. Columbus preferred to avoid these sorts of adversities. On, I mean, on land, I mean, he enjoyed a good struggle on the ship, he really was a man most comfortable in his own element, and in the humid heat of the Caribbean, surrounded by enemies both inside and outside the walls of his fragile fort, Columbus basically said, well, I hope everything works out here. I'm going to China. I'll be back. Hopefully this place doesn't end up like La Navidad. 
In fact, Columbus might even have been away from Hispaniola longer than he was the, the few months, but, quote, his great exertions, weakness, and scanty diet, unquote, led him to another bout of serious illness, according to his son Ferdinand. Excuse me. Peter Martyr wrote that in September, uh, before he returned, Columbus actually became comatose. Quote, he had high fever and drowsiness. He lost his sight, memory, and all other senses. He was more dead than alive, unquote. Now, under those circumstances, the men who had been with him on the boat thought, well, hey, why don't we just sail back to Hispaniola? He can't tell us not to. And in his weakened condition when he arrived, it's possible that Columbus might even have been deposed from power or assassinated given those circumstances. Only about half of the Spanish conquistadors on Hispaniola were loyal to him this, at this point. Carl Orton Sauer argues that, quote, trouble was built into the enterprise from the start, unquote, as a direct result of the way in which Columbus founded the colony. You know, the charter for Hispaniola was really nothing but the letter of capitulations Columbus had won after returning from his original voyage. Those capitulations gave the Almirante unlimited authority, and he had no intention of giving up any of it. So Hispaniola worked as a, basically as a monopoly held in joint by Columbus and the Spanish crown. And despite Columbus's love of this newfound power, uh, he showed little interest in building a new government or organizing a staff to manage the colony. And so when the novelty of the adventure of going to Hispaniola wore off for the men who went, they found themselves in a situation where hardship, sickness, and hunger were the rule of the day. And what began as an adventure for young soldiers and gentlemen who'd gone to the Caribbean was quickly transformed into, the situa into a situation where they felt imprisoned on the island. Columbus's, quote, alienation from his men was increased and early. He lacked the quality of leadership that bound men in loyalty and affection. Instead, his administration was confused and capricious, unquote. That put Columbus in a dangerous position. Yet despite how desperate his situation might have been, Columbus found himself in good hands on September 29, 1494, when he arrived back at La Isabella. That is because when Columbus arrived, exhausted from illness, surrounded by potential enemies, he found himself in the hands of his brother, the Adelantado, not Diego, Bartolomeo. Now, Adelantado, El Adelantado, is a 15th century Spanish military title, which translates directly into the advancer. It referred to one's aptitude as a cavalry officer. In this case, Bartolomeo Columbus, El Adelantado, who had received the title from Ferdinand and Isabella, like Christopher had, uh, was now in the Hispaniola. He'd received, he'd arrived shortly after, uh, um, after, he'd gone to Hispaniola, excuse me, shortly after receiving a letter from Columbus in the spring of 1494, which uh, instructed Bartolomeo to go to Spain with two of Christopher Columbus's sons, Ferdinand and Diego, to take them to the Spanish court so they could serve as pages to Don Juan, the sole male child of Ferdinand and Isabella. Bartolomeo was there elevated like his brother Christopher. He became Don Bartolome, and in the spring of 1494 set sail for La Isabella. Now, Bartolomeo was not the navigator his brother was. 
nor did he inspire the same confidence or fear his brother was able to. But he was a capable soldier, hence the title Adelantado. Now, the Almirante and the Adelantado were together again. But despite whatever cheer the Columbus brothers felt at being work, able to work together, there were still serious economic issues that were developed on Hispaniola that they needed to take care of. Now, the principal reason that the colony of Hispaniola was founded was reportedly that Hispaniola was chock full of gold and that gold mines would soon be operational. Now, that just wasn't true. And the men in the interior who had been tasked with this were, I mean, they quickly picked the, the small mines and streams clean. And very rapidly, the Spanish lust for gold depleted the island's supply. Now, the income of the colony was supplemented with cotton and spices, but these simply weren't enough to justify the expense and danger of, of this distant outpost. Now, while Columbus and his men focused on obtaining gold, they created a deadly situation. They were neglecting the much more important task of producing food. Thus, quote, hunger became famine, and everything edible, including animals brought from Spain, was eaten up. Unquote. By the time Columbus returned, the men were gaunt and weak and in a state of famine. Years later, after La Isabella had failed, Las Casas reported that the ruins of the fortress were haunted by the ghosts of gentlemen who died of starvation. Another mutiny was the result. The royal comptroller... Oh, excuse me. This was the, this was the result... Excuse me, not another. There will be another. This was why Bernal de Pisa tried to take Columbus's ship and sent back to Spain. Caught in, he was caught and jailed. Um, and... There were other problems. One, quote, learned old priest, unquote, refused to admit Cuba was a mainland, apparently. He stated unequivocally it was an island, and so to punish him, Columbus refused to ever let him leave back to Spain. Ferdinand and Isabella would never hear such words. Now, these were the sorts of issues that became of paramount importance to Columbus when the next fleet arrived from Spain. Now, these four ships uh, that made up the fleet carried supplies and instructions to Columbus, which were dated on August 16, 1494. Ferdinand and Isabella had been appreciative of Columbus's letters, quote, a source of great happiness and joy to us. And although you go into considerable detail, we should like to still know more about it. For example, how many islands have been discovered to date and name? How far these islands are from one to the next, and everything you have discovered on each of them, unquote. The supply fleet uh, carried instructions where basically the monarchs were asking for all the sorts of information that was either embarrassing for Columbus, like, for example, how all of the crops that the Spaniards had planted had wilted quickly in the tropical heat, or were things he'd kept purposefully vague to ensure that he was the only one who could be sent on voyages. Now, the Spanish crown, they really wanted to know about their new empire. Um, but Columbus was, had been vague, one, because he didn't want to be replaced by a Spanish commander using Columbus's information. And two, because despite his official letters to Spain, he was becoming increasingly concerned privately. Now, he was nowhere near China or the Indies. And therefore, he might not have any legal right in Spain to be viceroy of this new empire. In fact, as part of these new instructions to Spain, 
The monarchs actually requested Columbus return to help settle matters with Portugal regarding where exactly the demarcation line from the Treaty of Tordesillas would be, which was being um, was was being renegotiated. Now, but these instructions had not yet arrived when Columbus returned in September. And in the meantime, Columbus instituted a new policy to generate profits for Hispaniola. Columbus, well experienced with the Portuguese trade on the Guinea coast, instituted a broader slave trade between the Caribbean and Spain than he had before. Originally, the, his, his intention originally, when he had first enslaving Indians, was that he was going to focus only on the menacing Caribs. He was going to save the Tainos, who were peaceful, and this would provide ample income for the colony until the gold mines become operational. But gold came in shorter and shorter supply, so the slave trade began to take on a greater and greater urgency. And it didn't take long after September before he before Columbus began ordering Spanish conquistadors to head out on slave razas, slave raids, on both Caribs and Tainos. Now, Columbus showed in, quote, intermittent regard, unquote, according to Lawrence Burgreen for the Tainos. But by the end of 1494, he was sending indigenous people back to Spain regardless of who they were. According to his friend Michel de Cuneo, Columbus ordered the seizure of 1,500 men and women on Hispaniola. Of these captains, of these captives, the 500 deemed most desirable for the slave trade were confined aboard four caravels that were bound for slave. Of the remainder, Columbus allowed his men to select 600 more slaves to load onto the ships to be sold for their own profit. The remaining 400, amongst them nursing women, Cuneo says they managed to escape, and that they were so fearful that the Christians might, quote, turn and catch them again, that they left their infants on the ground and started to flee like desperate people, unquote. Columbus's response to the escape of 400 captives was to punish the native people of Hispaniola. Columbus believed that the captives fled to the lands of the cacique Guatiguana, and in retribution, that cacique was captured along with two of his chiefs. They were officially accused of killing Spaniards, which might have been true. Or perhaps it was entirely a fabrication to justify their execution, what with the crime of you know, providing shelter to escaped slaves, not exactly a officially sanctioned reason for execution within the world of Christendom. But, However, Guatiguana, guilty or not, was not executed. He and his companions managed to chew through their cords and escaped as well. Threats came from across the Atlantic as well. Columbus's bro other brother, Diego, uh, returned to Spain instead of Columbus. He was charged with defending the Almirante against charges who were being, which were being prepared by two powerful Columbus haters in Spain. One was Father Buil, um, who just never liked Spain, uh, Columbus or the Enterprise in the first place, and Pedro Marguerite. Um, Marguerite had actually been on one of the on the first voyage. Now, Columbus's enemies in Spain, father like led by Father Boyle, were using the testimonies of uh, men like Pedro Marguerite, who Columbus felt was especially greedy and lazy, and those were the sorts of men giving giving uh, 
testimony against him. Uh, Columbus believed that Marguerite was angry because he'd come to Hispaniola on a get-rich-quick scheme, and when they had failed, um, Marguerite and others, to get rich quick, they came after Columbus. And with that said, Columbus was kind of on a get-rich-quick scheme himself, uh, and his new scheme, you know, taking slaves, was having a bit of trouble. Antonio de Torres, the trusted captain who was leading fleets back and forth to Spain, led the slave fleet back to Spain. But as an example of Columbus's willingness to omit information or distort facts about Hispaniola as a way to preserve his own power, he failed to inform Torres that the way to get back to Spain quickly was to go north, catch the trade winds, and then go east. Instead, Torres tried going east. There, he foundered in the Lesser Antilles for weeks before working his way back, eventually making it to Madeira after a hellish crossing. Quote, about 200 of the Indians died. We cast them into the sea, unquote, Michel de Cuneo wrote. By the time they disembarked at Cadiz, Spain, half of the surviving Indians were seriously ill. Cuneo informed the Cadiz authorities, quote, For your information, they are not working people and very much fear cold, nor have they long life, unquote. Columbus did his best to show the monarchs the good use of the slave trade. He wrote, quote, please consider whether it might be worth it to take six or eight boys, set them apart, and teach them to write and study, because I believe they will excel in short time, unquote. Columbus's re-education program didn't come about. Instead, all the surviving slaves were sent to Seville, auctioned off, and there it was callously observed that, quote, they are not very profitable, since almost all died, for the country did not agree with them, unquote. So Columbus's plan for a slave trade kind of imploded. And back on Hispaniola, his forces, uh, his Spanish forces were now locked into a battle with the Indians of Hispaniola. Guatiguana, the fugitive cacique who chewed his way, his way out of Spanish bondage, then rallied his warriors. He began killing Spanish conquistadors whenever he had the opportunity. The Spanish were fearsome combatants. But the natives did have their own advantages, overwhelming numbers familiarity with the terrain. But try as he might, Guatiguana was unable to unite all the tribes in his quest. He was unable to convince a whole lot of other leaders to join him. Some wished to stay neutral and out of the fray, and a few, especially Guacanagari, remained loyal to Spain and fought against Guatiguana. Columbus himself was ill, his arthritis was especially bothersome in the winter of 1495, and in his condition, he was unable to do a whole lot except for rest. Both physically and mentally, he deteriorated. He was further distressed when he learned that the Spaniards in the Sibiao, whom, Span whom Columbus expected to begin mining, were instead in a bit of trouble themselves. Um, the Indians in, in that part of Hispaniola were also in revolt, Columbus had blamed their, their commander, who was Pedro Marguerite, who, like I said, had returned to Spain and was busy preparing charges against Columbus with Father Boyle. Now, when, as soon as Marguerite had been placed in charge of the Sibiao, he had gone about disregarding Columbus's orders um, and kind of attempted to just usurp control of the colony. And when that failed, that's when Marguerite had left on the first ship that he could back to Spain. And in his absence, 
the 400 other men who were stationed in the Sibiyao just went without, you know, without any leadership, just went on a rampage of rape and murder. Peter Martyr wrote that the Spaniards, quote, kidnapped women of the islands under the eyes of their parents, brothers, and husbands, and committed innumerable rapes and robberies, unquote. Guatiguana responded by the slaughter of 10 Spanish guards, and then he set fire to a shelter where 40 ill Spaniards were lying. The situation, which was never really all that great in the first place, deteriorated rapidly. And Columbus was just only now starting to get a good grasp of the political situation. Um, Upon the landing of his second voyage, Columbus believed that the natives of Hispaniola had all spoke one language, and that they all served Guacanagari. The reality, as he was beginning to understand it now, is that there were four chiefs or kings, for lack of a better word. These were Caonobo, Higuamana, Behechio, and Guarionix. Now, each of those commanded around 70 or 80 caciques, or lesser chiefs. Guacanagari was one of those. Now, he and the other caciques were responsible uh, to assist their rulers, whichever the four rulers they, they, they served under, uh, basically in times of war, and it was time to sow the fields. Um, so Guacanagari ended up turning out to be of lower rank in Taino society than Columbus originally believed, but he still stood out to Columbus for a f- few reasons. First, the village he ruled was very close to La Isabella. In addition, Guacanagari had demonstrated hospitality and goodwill towards the Spaniards. And finally, as far as Columbus could tell, he just hadn't done anything at all to aid or encourage the rebellion. In fact, quite the opposite. When Columbus returned to Hispaniola after, quote-unquote, discovering Jamaica, Cuba, and Tortuga, Guacanagari came to visit Columbus and specifically declared his own innocence of all the troubles that were going on. Now, Guacanagari had his own agenda, and he actually was appealing to the Almirante for help for his own reasons. Now, according to him, he had attracted hatred and jealousy from other caciques because he'd been so kind and generous to the Christians. Guacanagari had two enemies, and he needed help from Columbus to deal with them. Cao Nobo, Guacanagari claimed, was a thief and had stolen one of his wives. Worse still was the, another king, Behechio, who was at war with the Spaniards and had killed another of Guacanagari's wives. Guacanagari stated that, excuse me, Columbus stated that Guacanagari, quote, wept each time he recalled the men who had been killed at La Navidad, as if they had been his own sons, unquote. Undoubtedly, that helped Columbus agree to help his ally. But Columbus wasn't recovered enough from his illnesses to march out to war, not until March 24, 1495. Now, by the spring of 1495, the Almirante believed now he understood, quote, Indian character and habits, unquote, and began a campaign with Guacanagari. Columbus led 200 Spanish infantry, 20 cavalry, and 20 hounds against basically just like the entire population of Hispaniola, which at the moment was still massive. But the number of the Tainos are misleading when it comes to understand how many actually people actually stood up and fought against the Spaniards. Now, um, there's a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel. You're probably familiar with it by Jared Diamond uh, that tries to explain how it was that Europeans conquered the world. Now, now to be honest, of those three things, guns, germs, and steel, 
Yeah, it's the only really thing that stands up of those three things to the scrutiny as to what advantages really gave, uh, what what really caused the Europeans to have, is was the germs. Um, the, the, now, I don't want to undersell too much the fact that the Spanish had iron and steel weapons and armor. Um, but frankly, I mean, early gunpowder weapons just really didn't work in the Caribbean nearly as well as they did in Europe. A result of the humidity, the misfires were very common. So crossbows were actually more effective than arquebuses in the Caribbean. And, and I'm really bringing up this so I can bring up a different point. The real weapon that the Spaniards had at their, um, uh, at their disposal that was so helpful were horses and dogs. Now, of course, no one had seen a horse in the Americas in, in about 14,000 years um, until Columbus showed up. And in, let's remember, in that first battle against the Spanish, the Taino essentially attempted to tackle the horses, which was a complete disaster. I mean, some natives uh, in the Americas, when they saw men on horses for the first time, couldn't even be sure if what they saw was two animals, a man riding an animal, or a two-headed monster. The dogs were maybe even worse. Now, dogs were known in the Americas and in the Caribbean. Columbus spoke of encountering domesticated, quote, barkless dogs, quote, unquote, on some of the islands. By all accounts, the dogs of the Caribbean were docile pets. Perhaps they hunted rodents, uh, were used as food, perhaps, sometimes. I mean, the picture I get of dogs on the Caribbean is something that is an animal that has um, probably a lot in common with golden retrievers. I mean, I'm talking about really friendly animals here. That's what a barkless dog is. The people of the Caribbean had seen nothing like the war dogs of Spain. Great mastiffs, Irish wolfhounds, and others. They're massive, 100-pound dogs that were originally bred for hunting wild boar. The war dogs of Spain found the naked flesh of human beings to be much more delicate than what they were used to biting. Columbus marched for 10 days from La Isabella before meeting with the forces of Caunobo. The Almirante then divided his men into two groups and attempted to trap the Indians in a pincer movement. The Spaniards fired crossbows and arquebuses into the Indian lines before the cavalry charged, which sowed panic into the Tainos. They fled into the jungle. The Spaniards gave chase until they no longer felt safe penetrating deeper into the forest thickets. But Columbus did not intend to let his enemies escape. That was when he unleashed the 20 hounds of war. Las Casas wrote that the pack of predators, quote, fell on the Indians at the cry of Tomalo, unquote. In English, take it. Take it. Take it. Tomalo, Tomalo. Quote, within an hour, they had preyed on 100 of them, unquote. After the battle and the subsequent massacre, Columbus's offer Alonso de Ojeda went to Canalbo to broker a pact of friendship between Canalbo and Columbus, if we call that a pact of friendship. Canalbo was exhausted from the battle, and, but he and his men met with Ojeda. Ojeda told Canalbo that if he appeared before Columbus, he would receive a bronze bell, which was in the church of La Isabella. A huge bronze bell. He also came up with a pretty wily plan to capture the cacique. He told him to try on... Why don't you try telling, try on these fancy bracelets that he had? Now, in reality, they were iron restraints, but yes, these bracelets were worn by none less than King Ferdinand when he travels by horseback. 
I mean, would you, Canobo, like to travel by horseback and see what it feels like to ride like a king? Ojeda convinced Canabo onto a horse in this way. He then had the shackles placed on Canabo's wrist and ankles, quickly spurred the horse, and flew across the river, galloping away with the kidnapped cacique. In this way, Canabo was captured along with his wives and children. The defeated cacique later confessed, quote, that he had killed 20 of the Spaniards who remained in La Navidad when the admiral returned to Spain from his discovery of the Indies, unquote. Subsequently, he visited La Isabella and feigned friendship, but with the, quote, the true design of seeing how he might best attack and destroy it, as he had done to the town of La Navidad, unquote. Columbus pressed ahead. He was able to round up all but one of the other chieftains on the island, Behechio, is the one of the four kings who escaped. Now, we don't have the Taino side of the story regarding the War of 1495, but it undoubtedly would have included, included many more accounts of European rape and kidnapping and probably would have given us a better understanding of the beginnings of the war. At any rate, Columbus enacted an exacting tribute after pacifying the Sibayao. He established three more fortresses on Hispaniola, and he used this system of force to enforce a new system of tribute. From this point forward, every Indian over the age of 14 was to give the equivalent of a hawk's bell filled with gold. Caciques were to provide every more, and where gold was scarce, Indians could substitute spun cotton. When the tribute was paid, which would be done every three months, those who complied would receive a stamped copper token, to wear around their necks. The necklace quickly became a mark of shame for the Taino. Las Casas stated of this policy, quote, Even the cruelest of the Turks or Moors would have found such a demand impossibly onerous, unquote. In a short amount of time, the island's gold supply was so completely depleted that Columbus was forced after a time to have the tribute though he continued the policy. And in order to meet the demand for gold, Tainos were forced to sift through sand and shrubs once the streams went barren. Some complied with Columbus's tribute system in this way, according to Las Casas. Quote, for others, it was impossible. And so they fell into the most wretched way of living. Some took refuge in the mountains, while others, since the violence and provocation and injuries on the part of the Christians never ceased, went about killing Christians for special damages and tortures that they suffered, unquote. Little enough remains of specific atrocities. This was before Las Casas arrived in the Caribbean. After all, uh, um, so it's difficult compared to what will happen in other islands in the Caribbean for me to explain just how inhumane this war would have been. But after Canalbao's defeat, the Tainos of Hispaniola were enslaved and lived under a regime where they faced the constant threat of rape and violence. It was so all-encompassing, such a shock to the system for the free Tainos, that hiding in the mountains wasn't the only way they tried to escape. In response to the Spanish rule, many Tainos plunged themselves off cliffs, Others poisoned themselves with roots, and a great many starved. 
The Tainos were pressed into labor too onerous in the heat and humidity of the Caribbean to collect gold and also tend their fields, care for sick relatives, their elderly parents, even their children. Beyond even that, some Tainos came up with a strategy of burning their bread stores so that neither Ney nor, their nor the invaders could eat. They did all of this to avoid being killed and captured by Christians, to avoid sharing their land with rapists and murderers, and to avoid the theft, the continued theft of their women and children. One Taino polity committed a mass suicide. Quote, More than 50,000 men died, and every day they fell everywhere like sickened flocks, unquote, wrote Peter Martyr. The Spaniards refused to take any blame for the mass suicide. Peter Martyr concluded that the deaths resulted, quote, from their own stubbornness, unquote. Columbus reported to the sovereigns in October of 1495 that, quote, the Indians purposefully destroyed their, dead, their bread fields to prevent my searching for gold, unquote. I am more critical of Columbus and the Spaniards' behavior on Hispaniola than Peter Martyr or Columbus himself. I'll be honest. Even if you ignore all the death and destruction caused by European hands before the Canabo War, even if you ignore the Spanish culpability in the mass suicides, even if you ignore the forced labor and the slavery, you're still confronted with one more fact about what happens in Hispaniola. There were still tens of thousands of Tainos hiding in the mountains. Columbus ordered them hunted with dogs, made them hide in places until they ran out of food and starved. This year, 1495, is why I don't like Columbus. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. In 1495, Columbus oversaw a genocide. Now, my last series, The Four-Part People of the Sun, probably would have been the best place to deal with the population of the Americas in 1491. And while I gave some hints that it's a pretty large population, I didn't give an estimate. That's not because I don't have an estimate. I actually do. We'll get to that next episode. But for now, I just want to give a population estimate for Hispaniola, which sat in 1492 at somewhere between 300 and 600,000 Tainos. Now, if that sounds like a lot of people to you, you are right. In four years, by 1496, the population had been cut by a third. In 1508, when the Spanish conducted a census of the island, they found a population of only 60,000. In 1548, Fernandez de Oviedo found only 500 Tainos surviving on Hispaniola. You can't really say Columbus wasn't directly responsible for starting a genocide with his policies. Of course, then again, there are people out there who are very good at making up justifications sometimes, I suppose. For example, if you were writing a book about Columbus and you wanted to make him a hero, you would by necessity emphasize his explorations of the Caribbean. 
You could detail each encounter he had on each island and with each storm in excruciating detail. You might write entire chapters on Columbus's supposed routes through the Atlantic and the Caribbean Sea. In contrast to the chapters of his explorations and navigations, you would devote few pages on the year of 1495. Because that year, it's very difficult to say anything other than his Columbus conducted a series of campaigns designed to submit the interior of Hispaniola. And during this time, rape, murder, and slavery were the only rules of the day. Columbus got away with those crimes against humanity, which he is certainly guilty of. But in October of 1495, he did have to answer to other charges. These were back in Spain, where Columbus's eternal enemy, Father Boyle, had finally succeeded in turning popular opinion against Columbus. As a result, the sovereign sent new instructions to Columbus that arrived in October, They were caught, which said, you're coming back to Spain. You're not sending another brother. They were handed to him by Juan Aguado, who had gone on the first voyage, didn't like Columbus very much, and apparently was more than happy to deliver those instructions to, the, to his um, old captain. Columbus departed Hispaniola at the end of his second voyage on March 10th. He arrived in Cadiz a month, a month, on, on June 11th, excuse me, several months later, in order to answer to a judicial investigation as his duties as government, as his duties as governor. And thus ended Columbus's second voyage to the New World. Now, unlike at the end of his first voyage, this was not a triumphal return to Spain. Quite the opposite, in fact. Columbus even appeared before the Spanish crown in the humble garb of a Franciscan friar to try and get some sympathy. Now, Ferdinand and Isabella had heard plenty of complaints against their Almirante, and they weren't very happy with the very little gold which was being received in Spain. But Columbus successfully argued his case. It took him some time to do so, but eventually, not only was he cleared of charges, but he convinced Ferdinand and Isabella to continue funding the colonial project, and they let him depart for a third crossing of the Atlantic. The Almirante received his official instructions on April 23, 1497. Now, there was a long delay between the second and third voyages. Columbus was having some trouble getting funding um, while he had convinced Ferdinand and Isabella of the, of the just cause. He's had a lot of enemies in Spain. Um, he even got into a fist fight with one administrator who was blocking voyage, uh, blocking funding for the voyage. The bureaucrat uh, had ridiculed Columbus's enterprise. As a result, Columbus knocked him down and then kicked him. That didn't really do much for his reputation, and it kind of shows the sort of stress he was under at the time. Um, and the reason that that probably happened was that despite his ability to go on a third voyage, Columbus lost his monopoly on the newly formed Transoceanic Empire. He was clear to charge ashore, but now there was going to be other conquistadors who also obtained backing from Ferdinand and Isabella. Columbus was angry, and the incident of him getting into a fight with some bureaucrat shows it. Now, the Almirante's third voyage authorized him to bring 350 people to the colony, 50 of whom were going on the, their own expense. The other 300, who were sailors and artisans, would receive a payment of 30 maravedis a day, um, 
As for the soldiers, laborers, and cabin boys, they would receive 20 maravedis a day, and any of them who prepared to stay on Hispaniola and cultivate land would earn an additional 6,000 maravedis per year. And to help foster colonization of the island, women were allowed to participate for the first time on the third voyage. Now, in order to fill out the ship's roster, criminals were offered pardons to go. Now, so long as you were in Spain but, and you were in trouble, as long as you weren't convicted of murder, treason, sodomy, arson, or counterfeiting, you could get a reduction in your sentence if you spent a year or longer on Hispaniola. And while on Hispaniola, you were considered a free man. So this meant that Columbus's third voyage consisted of a crew of, quote, mercenaries, amateur gold diggers, and criminals, unquote. Columbus also brought new instructions to better govern Hispaniola. Key to these new instructions was something called repartimiento in Spanish. That translates into distribution in English. From this point forward, individual colonists were to receive grants of land, Quote, in which they can sow wheat and other seeds and plant gardens and fields of cotton and flax and vines and grist mills and sugar mills, unquote. The recipients of these grants would be able to sell, give, or exchange their property so long as they first maintained a residence on Hispaniola for a minimum of four years. Lands which produced valuable Brazil wood or metals, though, were reserved for the crown. Now, this was the first Spanish land policy in the New World, and the repartimiento would continue onwards. In fact, if you happen to be studying this sort of history, you are going to discover that repartimiento is going to be one of the terms you are expected to know on your test. Now, at any rate, um, this time, Columbus sailed much farther south than his previous two voyages. Now, his health had deteriorated quite a bit at this point in his life. And when he arrived this far south in the New World, uh, the heat at one point was so great that uh, I'm pretty sure he had a heat stroke and uh, had become disoriented. But nevertheless, Columbus made his way to the southernmost islands of the Caribbean on his arrival, first to Dominica, which he had spotted on the second voyage, and then farther south to Trinidad so named by Columbus because it appeared to him as, quote, three mountains, all at one time, in a single view, unquote. After that, the Almirante, Christopher Columbus, became the first European to make his way to the American mainland. By reaching the Orinoco River Delta, after having stopped at Trinidad. Now, the Orinoco is one of the largest rivers in South America, on the border of Venezuela and Brazil. Um, and on August 5th, 1498, Columbus and his men went ashore in what is now Venezuela. Now, by August 15th, 10 days later, they realized that this wasn't an island, but, quote, a very great continent, unquote, previously unknown to Europe. Columbus was still quite certain he was very near Asia. He lingered in Venezuela, um, which he called Paraya, in a sick and uh, semi-dream state. Now, Columbus was prone to thinking himself as a mystical figure. He saw himself as a man of history in the veins of Noah and Moses. And when he consulted in instruments uh, near the equator, that led him to believe he noticed the bulge in the earth. Now, he's very sick and kind of drifted into fantasy. And we can't blame Columbus for not understanding the bulge of the earth. 
But his reasoning for why there was a bulge in the center of the earth was kind of hilarious, so I'm going to relate that to you. Now, he believed the Orinoco River sailed upwards, and that the, thus the earth wasn't shaped like a globe exactly. No, more like a pear. Yeah, that's right, a pear. And he was currently at the base of the stem, or the nipple. You know, the part where the, where, where the earth would jut up into the air like a pear. At the top, he conceived, instead of a stem, would have been the Garden of Eden. Columbus believed it would therefore be impossible to sail up the Orinoco River, but he confidently reported back to Ferdinand and Isabella that he discovered the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't mean he wrote this down and sent it off immediately. I mean later. After he's gotten better a bit, he's had some time to think about He's writing an official letter of the voyage of Spain for his third voyage, and he reports back that he's discovered the Garden of Eden. Now, this is a part of Columbus's life where I, I really found out that my feelings about Christopher Columbus are very complicated because I've read so much about him. Now, it's easy to admire Columbus. That's how he's presented to children. As an example of achievement, a man who set out to master a craft, navigation, and then achieved fame by following his vision. He was just an Italian kid who lived the Genoese version of the American dream. That's an aspect of Columbus' life. Another is his involvement with slavery. Both in the early African slave trade, before he makes his voyages to America and afterwards, and later when he decides to institute a slave trade in the Caribbean. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about that. But it makes me angry. And, and just a feeling of anger. A bit, bit, how about better than anger? A feeling of injustice. Now, I'm not great about talking about complicated feelings. Maybe that's part of just the, you know, the limitations of the English language. You know, English, I, as far as I can tell, doesn't have a lot of words like, say, German does. Words that describe complex emotions, like, like Schadenfreude, for example. Anyway, the feeling I have, the anger and injustice I feel at, at thinking about Columbus, when, when I think about the year-long reign of terror that Columbus oversees on Hispaniola in 1495. I mean, the whole reason he was in Hispaniola was that he and the Spaniards had a lust for gold, and when, this was no, when they were no longer unable to sate that lust for gold, in order to abstain profits, he essentially said, fuck it, and didn't just enslave his enemies say what you will about enslaving anyone in the first place. But he went after his allies, the Taino, and he did so with gusto. The result of Columbus's policies on Hispaniola were, like I said, torture, rape, and death. Now that's the sort of thing that elicits in me the kind of the, the I would go back in time and kill Hitler reaction. Except for obviously, for in my case, I would go back in time and kill Columbus too, were it in my power. Perhaps one day I will write a historical fiction series one day, and I can literally kill him. Well, okay, so anyway, enough of that rant. Columbus is so ill and delusional that he believed he'd reached the Garden of Eden, and that's a little funny. But when I really think about Columbus now, how a sick and confused man wrote a letter to Ferdinand and Isabella how he discovered the Garden of Eden, well, I mean, the only thing I really feel at that instant in his life is pity. Because at this point, Columbus is little more than an old man with broken mind and broken body. Like all human beings, Columbus was complicated. In his specific case, he was na navigator, admiral, 
unpunished murderer and slaver, young ambitious boy from Italy and now confused old man. The letter he unabashedly sent back to Spain on the third voyage wherein he had touted his discovery of the Garden of Eden was one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, why he lost full control of the Caribbean. Nobody in Spain really took Columbus's claim seriously when he claimed to discover, quote, great evidence of the earthly paradise, unquote. Now, Columbus's letter, of course, wasn't the only factor. While Columbus dreamt of paradise, Hispaniola spiraled completely out of control. The Almirante left the splendors of South, the South American coastline and arrived back at Hispaniola on August 31st. He expected a functional, if not thriving, colony when he reached Santo Domingo, which was now the largest uh, town in the colony. Uh, instead, Columbus wrote, quote, When I arrived from Pariah, I found almost half of the people in Hispaniola in rebellion, and they have made war on me. Unquote. Mutinies had occurred before. Now Columbus faced full-scale rebellion, a civil war. The leader of the other side was Francisco Roldan, and he had been up to all sorts of mischief on Hispaniola since the last time Columbus was present in the colony. Now, originally, La Isabella had been the center of European activity on Hispaniola. After the pacification of the Sibaya, one of the new forts, Santo Domingo, soon grew into the largest colonial center on the island. Columbus had appointed Francisco Roldan as the mayordomo, the chief official of Santo Domingo during the second voyage. Later, he appointed his brother Ferdinand as the governor of the island. Well, Roldan, as mayordomo of the largest settlement on the island, didn't necessarily see himself as a subordinate. And in fact, Roldan quickly began dreaming of making himself master of the entire island. His plan was simple. He would bring as many Spaniards to his rebellious side, and then he would kill Bartholomew and Diego Columbus's. Um, who were, Bartolomeo was the governor, uh, Diego Columbus was the mayor of La Isabella. Mayor Domo, excuse me, mayor. Very, very English word right there. Now, the trouble originally started when El Adelantado, Bartolomeo Columbus, went off to quell an Indian rebellion and exact tribute in the Zaragua region of Hispaniola, which was a sprawling expanse carpeted with thick shrubs on the south of the island. Now, with Bartolomeo gone, Diego Columbus was in charge, and Roldan was his scathing hot second into command. Now, the Adelantado kept one caravel at the beach of La Isabella. He did that in case of emergency, in case he ever needed to escape from the island. And with Bartolomeo gone, Roldan and his supporters began to insist that they be allowed to launch the caravel as soon as possible. They needed to return to Spain and announce, quote, the news of their distress, unquote. Now, Diego replied that Roldan and his fellow mutineers could basically go fuck themselves. Besides, the caravel had no tackle, no supplies, and it would be impossible for them to take it away. Roldan didn't like hearing that, of course. He defied Diego Columbus's command and ordered his men to make the ship ready. He told his followers that the Columbus brothers were actively trying to stop them from succeeding in the conquest, 
that the Columbus brothers kept the Spaniards under their thumb in order to prevent the Catholic sovereigns in Spain from learning of the evil and corrupt nature of the Columbus regime, and Roldan reminded the conquistadors of the toil Columbus ordered them to, in the heat, how he forced them to erect forts against their own will, exposing them to unnecessary danger. Further, the Columbus family were foreigners, foreigners who never paid on time, even though they put the men to work like donkeys. Roldan and his men weren't even sure at the time if Columbus would ever return to the Caribbean. Roldan had a solution, though. They would divide the wealth of the island amongst themselves. Instead of doing work, they ought to be free. Quote, free to use the Indians as they pleased, free from interference, unquote. Bartolomeo was especially unpopular. He'd tried in vain to restrain the lust of his fellow conquistadors, insisting that the men observe the three monastic vows, obedience, stability, and fidelity. Now, as you, imagine, as you might imagine, the order to remain obedient to the Columbus brothers indefinitely while renouncing private property and observing strict celibacy wasn't particularly a popular order. And Roldan, while he wasn't able, really, to offer the men who followed him the riches he promised, or which they all desired, um, the gold both he and Columbus desired was in short supply, but the men who followed Roldan, according to Las Casas, quote, each had the woman that he wanted, taken from their husbands or daughters from their fathers by force or willingly, to use as chambermaids, washerwomen, and cooks, and also as many Indian men as they thought necessary to serve them, unquote. Roldan and his men basically lived like especially slothful and lustful caciques. And to keep them loyal, Roldan reminded his followers regularly of the severe ration restrictions imposed by the Columbus brothers, and of the barbaric floggings they'd received from minor transgressions. In contrast, Roldan would be able to keep his men from harm. And over time, by the time Columbus returned to the Caribbean, half the population of Hispaniola had drifted to Roldan's camp. By the time that the Adelantado returned from his mission in Zaragua, Roldan and his followers were scheming to kill him. They intended on stabbing Bartolomeo, stringing him up with a rope at a fort named Concepcion, and afterwards, the rebels would launch attacks from their new safe haven all across Hispaniola at will. However, when Roldan attempted to convert the, the commander of Fort Concepcion, Miguel Ballastar, to his side, Ballastar remained loyal to the Columbus brothers. He warned the Adelantado. Now, Bartolomeo barricaded, barricaded himself inside Conception after this. He thought he might repel Roldan from even attempting his scheme. But Roldan went right to the fortress. Not to fight, though. Instead, he argued with Bartolomeo that they must ready the caravel, which was lying on the beach, so that Roldan and his men could make their way back to Spain. Now, incidentally, Roldan was actually pursuing two conflicting strategies at once. He wanted to return to Spain and or become king of Hispaniola. And I'm not even sure if he wanted both. You know, sometimes I wonder, I think he was pursuing both those strategies because he wanted to collect rebels who wanted more power on Hispaniola. And also he wanted the guys who wanted to go back to Spain on his side. But anyway, uh, Bartolomeo told Roldan that it would be impossible. 
He and his followers weren't even capable of launching the caravel. They didn't know the sea, and if they tried to make their way to Spain, they would all die. Bartolomeo laughed off Roldan's request and let he and his men leave. Quote, this is what he said of them. They were landlubbers who knew nothing, unquote. In the end, the encounter ended with Roldan leaving in anger. He declared he could expect no justice from the Adelantado. Roldan and his men went back to La Isabella after leaving uh, Conception. They there took possession of the caravel and attempted to sail back to Spain. But no matter how hard they tried, Bartolomeo was proven correct. Roldan and his 65 men could not launch the ship. They weren't very happy with that. So instead, they looted the royal arsenal and storehouse. They pilfered weapons, food, clothing, and anything else which they desired. Bartolomeo and Diego Columbus, and the remaining men loyal to the Columbus brothers, were powerless to stop them. Then, once they were fully stocked up, Roldan and his men trekked back to the province of Saragua on the southern end of the island. Quote, the most pleasantest and most fertile part of the island, according to Ferdinand Columbus. On their way, they tried one last time to kill Bartolomeo. They marched back to Conception on the way to Zaragua, planning on killing the Adelantado if they found him, and laying waste to the town surrounding the fortress if he was not. But Bartolomeo countered with a strategy of his own. Now, the Columbus brothers only had the loyalty of about half the Europeans on Hispaniola, and of these, very few were actually willing to help in any conflict against their fellow Spaniards. To convince some of the Spaniards to fight against their brethren, Bartolomeo offered the men who would help, quote, two slaves apiece, unquote, to make sure they supported him and would stay loyal. Adel the Adelantado prepared for a fight, and with the characteristic swagger of any other cavalry officer, he went off to face the forces of Francisco Roldan. In the face of this bravery, Roldan and his rebels proved to be cowardly. They retreated and went back to Zaragoa, though they did not stop dispensing anti-Columbus propaganda as they went. And not just to the Spaniards, I should say. Roldan told the Indians that Bartolomeo was planning to impose another onerous tribute once the current impossible demand for gold was met. In contrast, Roldan proclaimed himself as the Indian's champion. He and his supporters were fighting for the Indian's freedom, in fact. And, as you might imagine, Roldan's promises that he would fight for them led many Tainos to defy the tribute system imposed by Columbus. In Zaragua, Roldan found a powerful ally in the chieftain Guarionex, who had alliances with many caciques, all who pledged to kill the Spanish invaders. Roldan and Guarionex then developed a plan. They planned to kill all the other Spaniards on Hispaniola in a series of coordinated attacks on, across the island, quote, on the first day of the next full moon, unquote. It was a daring plan, and it, quite frankly, had the possibility of purging Hispaniola of half the European population and quite possibly freeing the Taino. Planning is half the battle. Unfortunately for the Taino and Roldan, the battle is also half the battle. One of the caciques fighting under Guarionix either wished for his own personal glory or was, quote, too poor an astronomer to know the first day of the full moon, unquote. Whatever that reason was, that one cacique took his men to battle early. The early attack failed miserably, 
and when the disgraced cacique returned to Guarionex expecting mercy, he was executed. The Spaniards loyal to Columbus were now on their guard, and Roldan and his men, who had honestly kind of hoped the Indians would do all the battling anyway, retreated again to Zaragua. The Taino were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Many sided with Roldan mainly because of the tribute imposed by Columbus, but, I mean, Roldan was not some innocent freedom fighter. He instituted his own tribute amongst the Taino loyal to him. The chieftain Manicautex, for example, was forced to offer, quote, a calabash of gold, with gold a, a calabash filled with gold dust every worth three marks every three months, unquote. To make sure his ally offered the gold, Roldan took Manicautex's son and nephew hostage. Now, Despite their having escaped a massacre, things weren't great for Bartolomeo and the loyalists to Columbus on Hispaniola. With each day, it appeared more and more likely that Roldan's rebels, or some Taino force, or some combination of the two, were going to overrun the island. But they did get some relief in the spring of 1498. That's when two Spanish ships appeared on the horizon of Santo Domingo, carrying food, men, weapons, and other provisions. Bartolomeo was close to the port and placed sentries along the paths to deter uh, Roldan's men and to make sure it would be he who met first with the fleet. After resupplying, the Adelantado attempted to broker a peace with the rebels. He sent one of his captains to deliver a speech to Roldan, though he didn't get to deliver the speech and instead stared at the ends of a bunch of crossbows as he attempted to explain to the rebels that if they only gave up their rebellion, they were welcome to join in on the new batch of supplies that had come in. Bartolomeo's plan for peace might even have worked, what with new supplies being an extremely short supply. Um, that, that really was a tempting offer. Bartolomeo promised not to punish them if they just started behaving. But three more Spanish ships carrying more supplies to Hispaniola were coming. Unlike the previous two ships, these were blown off course during the voyage, and they appeared off the coast of Zaragua in June. Roldan's rebels met with the ships, and falsely claimed that the Adelantado had ordered them to, quote, secure provisions and pacify the countryside, unquote. Now, one of the captains, Alonso Sanchez de Carvajal, saw through the ruse. He told Roldan to end his revolt and declare loyalty to Columbus. But at the same time, Roldan's men were busy telling all of the other men on the ships how awesome Roldan was, how terrible Columbus was. And so, despite Carvajal's protests, the ships were emptied by the rebels. Carvajal sent a party on foot from there to alert Columbus. The same currents which had carried the ships off, off uh, astray in the first place were preventing them from making a speedy passage to the other side of the island. Carvajal sent a certain Juan Antonio Colombo with 40 men to head to Santo Domingo. But nearly all of these deserted for Roldan and the rebels. Many of the men in Carvajal's ships were sent to Hispaniola specifically to mine for gold. And frankly, it wasn't all that difficult in the summer heat of the Caribbean for Roldan and his men to convince them to switch sides. Juan Antonio Colombo was furious. Returning with only seven men instead of 40, the desertes, meanwhile, were, had spent, were spending their days drinking Indian wine with Indian women, and Roldan pleaded his helplessness to Colombo's situation. Roldan told Carvajal and Colombo he was just running a monastery. And his monastery, quote, denied the habit to no man, unquote. Carvajal decided then, damn the winds. He's going to sail to Santo Domingo with the remainder of his force. And so the very 
very depleted supply feet, left Zaragua to battle adverse wind weather. Now, before Carvajal reached uh, Santo Domingo, the food supplies on his ship rotted in the heat. Another One of his ships nearly sank after the rudder broke away and the keel was ruptured, and it took on quite a bit of seawater. And by the time they finally reached Santo Domingo, they were just grateful to be alive. They were also in the presence of Christopher Columbus, who by this point had also returned to Hispaniola and was learning of Roldan's revolt. Now, Columbus re- realized his position was reek pretty soon. And as much as he might wish to punish the rebels, he instead, quote, resolved to be as moderate as he could in this affair, unquote. On September 22nd, working towards this goal, Columbus promised free passage to Spain and food to anyone who wanted it. Though when he sent Miguel Ballester to meet with Roldan and relay this message, Ballester found the rebels very stubborn and brazenly defiant. The freshly supplied uh, rebel group felt as if they had... Columbus, quote, or excuse me, Roldan felt as if he had the Almirante Columbus, quote, in the hollow of his hand, unquote. Roldan refused to meet with Columbus, and the two sides again prepared for battle. This was a battle which Columbus feared. He only had 70 men, fewer than Roldan had at his command, and we, when he took in the account, and when he took into account that many of his men were too ill to fight, and a few of them he didn't exactly trust very much. Columbus could only count on 40 conquistadors in a fight against the rebels. Now, we don't know the condition of Roldan and his men, but it was likely that they were in a similar boat, especially regarding their health. Um, At any rate, no battle happened. On October 17th, in fact, Roldan even sent a pretty conciliatory letter to Columbus, where he tried to explain himself. I mean, the rebellion hadn't ended at this point, but it was a cooling point. And after receiving that conciliatory letter, Columbus um, felt comfortable enough dispatching some ships back to Spain, along with letters where he described, quote, the damage the rebels had done and were continuing to do, plundering and acting violently, killing whomever they pleased for no reason at all, taking other men's wives and daughters, and perpetrating many other evil deeds, unquote. And all of that was true. And mind you, All of this was also true of the Spaniards who were not in rebellion. Now, Las Casas described the situation on Hispaniola as one of anarchy. Spaniards on the island, quote, traveled from village to village and place to place, eating at their discretion, taking the Indian men that they wanted for the service and the Indian women who looked good to them. They had hunters who hunted for them, fishermen who fished for them, and as many Indians as they wanted as pack animals to carry their loads for them, unquote. Things were more settled after Columbus sent the ships back to Spain. Two of them contained Roldan supporters who'd taken up the offer, um, and the island was in a relatively peaceful state. Columbus even sent Bartolomeo, his brother, to the Paria Peninsula, what is now Venezuela, to search for pearls. And on October 26th, Columbus sent Roldan a safe conduct pass, and the two men met to negotiate agreement. By November 6th, Roldan sent terms for peace for Columbus, and Columbus found those extremely insolent. He refused to sign them. He publicly nailed his final offer to Roldan's men to the door of the fort on November 11th. The Almirante offered a general amnesty to Roldan and his men, and their passage back to Spain, which would be free. Their wages were to be paid in full, and the offer was good for 30 days. If they failed, Columbus vowed, quote, to proceed against them as the law required, unquote. 
In response, the rebels found this rather uh, insolent. They ridiculed Columbus and replied that he would be the one surrendering soon, that they were Spanish and he was a foreigner. Columbus could do little at the time. And as an extra man, um, Columbus could do very little. And uh, in fact, the guy and, and in fact, the Columbuses um, captured the loyalist Miguel Ballester, who earlier sent the message and were holding him hostage. And so the rebellion seemed to be back in full swing. But remarkably, this incident helped forge a peace pact. Ballester was held hostage without food and water. And one of his friends, Sanchez de Carvajal, came to the rescue. And when he met with the rebels, Carvajal engaged in what became a marathon argument session that ended inexplicably almost with an, quote, agreement made with the Major Francisco Roldan and his company for their departure and voyage to Castile, unquote. It was signed by Roldan on November 16th, Columbus by November 21st, but the two ships which took Roldan and his rebels off Hispaniola didn't actually debark until January 1499. Then those ships promptly encountered a storm. The ships were damaged, and so the rebels returned to Zaragua. By April, the end of April, they still had not yet departed. Columbus, by that point, was pretty angry and sent a message that essentially said, you need to get to Stepin, and to which Roldan replied that this was all Columbus's fault. It was his fault that the ships had been delayed in the first place. And when the, when the, and it, and, and when the rebels remained on the island until June of 1500, Columbus lost it. He managed to catch one of the chief rebels, uh, Rodin's uh, officers, Adrian de Mujica. Mujica was found guilty of treason and sentenced to be hanged. Now, Columbus expected Mujica to be re- remorseful. But he responded to his sentence of death, not with confession and penance, but with rage and no shortage of choice words for Columbus. The Almirante was furious, and he did not wait to execute Mujica by hanging. He had his men toss Mujica from the walls of La Concepcion that same day, according to Bartolomé de las Casas. Now, by the end of April, Columbus and Roldan met again for final terms. The rebels received land grants and were to remain on the island. Roldan was to be made perpetual mayor. And beyond that, Columbus announced that the entire rebellion had been merely the result of, quote, false testimony of a few evil men, unquote. Columbus even agreed that the rebels could use any means, including force, to compel him if he failed to comply to meet these conditions. The Almirante wished to end the rebellion on Cispignola, and he saw no other way except to grant Roldan and the, rebellious, and the rebels generous terms. Days later, a very ecstatic Roldan appointed a judge, Pedro de Raquelme. He had the authority to sentence criminals and then tried to... And after appointing the judge, Roldan tried to break ground on a rebel fort, uh, though internal squabbling amongst the rebels prevented this from being completed, and that gave Columbus a much-needed smile. But that didn't last long. Because shortly after that, four ships appeared suddenly on the horizon. The fleet was captained by Alonso de Ojeda. His instructions were to return to the main, to reach the mainland, and return with slaves and wood for the ships. 
Now, Ojeda had earlier aided Columbus, and while pacifying a settlement in 1494, he'd started a, a collection of human ears, so I'm sure he was a very pleasant person to be around. But he was well-loved by the sovereigns. His appearance in the Caribbean uh, officially meant that Columbus's monopoly was over. Las Casas wrote, quote, Once the thread is found and in hand, it is an easy thing to reach the ball, unquote. Ojeda had learned the base of, of the previous voyage uh, of, of how to get there by, you know, seeing Columbus's charts and from information gotten from being on the voyage and from questioning in the Indians. Now he had four ships from Seville, quote, where he was known as a brave and valiant man, unquote. Now Ojeda wasn't alone in being a newly commissioned would-be conquistador. In May of 1499, Peralonzo Nino, who sailed with Columbus's first voyage, mounted an expedition in search of wealth in Venezuela. He returned to Spain with a king's ransom in pearls. Though he was charged with cheating the sovereigns of their share of the bounty, was arrested and had his property seized, and died before his trial concluded. Vicente Yanez Pinzon, who sailed with Columbus on the first voyage, went on his own to the northern boundary of Brazil on January 26, 1500. He returned to Spain at the end of June, having lost many men and having taken many slaves to replace them. Pinzon was followed by a certain Diego de Lepe, who also reached Brazil. Now, mind you, both of those expeditions were technically off-limits to Spain by the Treaty of Tordesillas. Anyway, Rodrigo de Bastidas likewise sailed with two ships, accompanied by Juan de la Cosa, who was Columbus's mapmaker, and in addition with Vasco Nunez de, de Balboa, later celebrated as the first European to reach the Pacific. Bastides cruised along South America and up to Panama before he was forced to head to Hispaniola to repair his ships, which had been damaged by shipworm. Um, Bastides got shipwrecked and was put on, and while there was uh, trading with the Indians and was put on trial by the time he uh, arrived for Spain for, quote, illegally trading with the Indians, so he was acquitted of that charge. And each of these expeditions, uh, um, all of these threatened Columbus, who was rapidly losing importance in the world of the Spanish Empire. Each trip validated his discovery, making what he'd already done more and more important. But each voyage demonstrated that what Columbus had actually done wasn't really all that hard. Sailing across the Atlantic could be done relatively quickly once one understood the ocean currents, even if, say, locating, say, a specific island was difficult. And as for this voyage, the Ojeda voyage, it had amongst its crew a certain Amerigo Vespucci, who started his explorer's career with a mythical voyage in 1497, wherein he described in a letter a voyage that he took which never actually took place and which preceded his actual debut as an explorer. Um, but gave him a lot of street cred, as it were. Now, Las Casas wrote that Vespucci was, quote, a great fraud. And when the mapmaker Walden, uh, Martin Waldseemuller published uh, his map, the Universalis Cosmographica, in April 1507, he was not aware of this fraud. His map included the name America. Now, technically, Waldseemuller corrected his mistake. He didn't realize at first, that Columbus's Pariah Peninsula and Venezuela were the same place until later. By the time he, he actually included them as separate places on the map, but by the time he did correct his mistake, a thousand copies of the map had been sold and distributed. Later mapmakers copied this mistake. And that's why America is named America and not Colombia, just so you know. 
But I wouldn't feel too bad for Columbus regarding this issue. I mean, he's made such a giant impression on history that when I say the word America, nobody thinks about the name Vespucci. But you just might think about Columbus. Now, at any rate, Ojeda, who headed the voyage, knew about Columbus's discoveries of Pariah, and un- though unlike Vespucci, he didn't really care to challenge the claim that Columbus was the first discoverer, he was much more interested in the wealth and power than he could obtain by getting there. And since Ojeda was supported by the Spanish crown, he posed a much greater threat to Columbus's legitimacy than Francisco Roldan and the rebels had. Now, Ojeda also knew that Hispaniola had been racked by rebellion. And when he arrived, he began spreading a false rumor that Queen Isabella was at death's door. And when she died, Columbus would have no protector in Spain. And once that happened, Ojeda, quote, could do what injury he pleased to the admiral, unquote. Ojeda went on a campaign of mischief and lies designed to inflame the rebels against Columbus. But to Ojeda's great dismay, he discovered that Roldan and Columbus had just made peace. And he learned this from Roldan, because Roldan and 26 armed men rode out to meet Ojeda, who'd taken up residence in an Indian village. What the hell is going on? Ojeda lied and told Roldan he'd be shipwrecked on Hispaniola. He showed examples of the various animals he and his men had hunted and told Roldan of a supposed furious battle with Indians. Ojeda managed to convince Roldan to allow him to stay in the village for now. Meanwhile, Columbus was busy. He and his brother Bartolomeo were fighting, quote, Indians and bad Christians, unquote, through the year, through the end of 1499, which lets us know that just because Roldan was uh, pacified, rebellions were still pop, mutinies and stuff were all still popping up. Now, that might have been part of the reason um, why Ojeda hadn't let set sail for Hispaniola after his encounter with Roldan in February of 1500. And during that time, Ojeda did everything he could to convince Roldan to pick back up with the rebellion. He suggested that Roldan lead his rebels straight to Santo Domingo, quote, to force Columbus to pay up immediately. Afterward, they could throw the admiral out of the island dead or alive, unquote. Now, Roldan wasn't really swayed. He was very interested in his own rebellion, but was far less interested in serving Ojeda's rebellion. Many of the former rebels were convinced, though, And Ojeda formed an attack group from the most fervent. And late at night, he took this group to attack some of Roldan's men who weren't willing to go back to war with Columbus. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but Ferdinand Columbus reported that, quote, there were dead and wounded on both sides, unquote, as a result of this treachery. Roldan was furious when he learned of this betrayal. Quote, he marched with strong force to punish Ojeda and crush the revolt, unquote. Ojeda fled to his ship in response, and when Rodin couldn't find Ojeda, he retreated to his ship as well. Eventually, quote, each fearing to place himself in the power of the other, unquote, they finally did find a way to parley. Ojeda sent a boat to Roldan. Roldan and his men climbed aboard the vessel and promptly attacked Ojeda's men. Afterwards, they rowed the boat to shore, and this mm, rather humbled Ojeda, for he had no other boat fit for use. Now, ironically, the rebel Roldan was kind of in the place of Columbus, 
a loyal officer who really missed to rid the island of Ojeda without giving Ojeda a list of grievances that he could go back to Spain and tattle on Roldan about. So Roldan eventually agreed to give Ojeda a boat as long as Ojeda and his men left by a certain date. He kept a strong guard ashore to make sure that happened. And again, Columbus and Roldan both breathed a sigh of relief as the threat to their rule was gone. But Ferdinand tells us just how short a sigh of relief it was. Quote, Just as a bad weed is not so easily uprooted that it will not grow again, so men of evil habits are with difficulty kept from relapsing into their old courses. Unquote. Once Ojeda uh, sailed away, another troublemaker reared his head. Fernando de Guevara revolted, the reasoning being he was furious with Roldan, who had prevented Guevara's attempted marriage to the daughter, quote, of the principal queen of Zaragua, unquote. Now, Roldan himself was also married to a Taino woman, so his preventing Guevara's marriage was pretty hypocritical. And Guevara, angry with this, schemed to supplant Roldan as, quote, lord of misrule, unquote, on Hispaniola. He formed his own rebel band and tried to kill and capture Roldan. But when Roldan learned of this conspiracy, he went on campaign instead and rounded up Guevara and his outlaws in June of 1500. Columbus instructed Roldan to punish the men, quote, as the law required, unquote. And so Roldan tried the group, hanged some of them, and imprisoned Guevara until June 13th, at which point he was transferred to Columbus. Now, these numerous mutinies and rebellions against Columbus had been brewing up trouble, and by 1500, things had really reached a boiling point back in Spain. While Columbus made plans to return, but um, it started making plans to return in February of 1500. But by that point, after eight years of people coming to and from Hispaniola, there were no shortage of critics of, Spain, of Columbus back in Spain. Columbus's sons at the time, Ferdinand and Diego, were pages at the Spanish court. They personally experienced occasions when people, quote, would run into them and shout and persecute them, chanting, Here come the sons of the Admiral of Mosquitoes, of him who discovered lands of vanity and deceit, the grave and ruin of Castilian gentlemen, unquote. To many in Spain, Columbus was a foreigner who needed to be replaced. He might be a brilliant navigator, but his skilled administration was poor, and by all indications, after eight years of governance in Hispaniola, he'd shown a complete inability to guide men, settle disputes, or instill loyalty. Columbus's political capital in Spain completely disintegrated. Ferdinand and Isabella appointed a special prosecutor against Columbus against May 21st, 1499. His name was Francisco de Bobadilla. And he received orders making him, quote, governor of the islands and mainland of the Indies, unquote. Bobadilla's fleet approached Santo, approached Santo Domingo in August 1500, at which time Bartolomeo was in Zaragua with Roldan, rounding up and arresting allies of Guevara. Columbus was at Fort Conception, putting down the latest Taino revolt. And Diego Columbus was at Santo Domingo, ordering the execution of captured rebels. The Almirante and Adelantado, quote, anxiously went about arresting those who had rebelled again, rebelled again, unquote. By this time, Columbus was even traveling around the island with a priest, quote, to confess them so that he could hang them wherever he might find them, unquote, according to Las Casas. Bobadilla's ships docked on August 23rd, 
and the new governor learned that seven Spanish men had been hanged that week. Five more were incarcerated, waiting to be hanged, and this very much alarmed Bobadilla. None of these rebels were Indians. What the hell sort of rebellion was going on? And where is Columbus? Bobadilla carried the authority to detain anyone he found guilty of rebelling against Ferdinand and Isabella. When the Spaniards at Santo Domingo learned that the ships carried a special investigator, quote, those who felt guilt reacted with fear, and fat, with fear and sadness. But those who felt aggrieved by the admiral and his brothers were bursting with joy, unquote, according to Las Casas. Bobadilla made an announcement of his appointment as governor and began his regime of Hispaniola immediately. Columbus later recalled, he announced he was to send me back in chains, and my brothers also, and that I was never to return. Columbus was left with no choice but to head to Santo Domingo there, receive the instructions which Bobadilla carried. And those requested Columbus, quote, give Bobadilla full faith, trust, and obedience, unquote. Ferdinand claimed that Bobadilla's subsuing trial was a farce. A priest testified Columbus ordered Roldan not to baptize Indians without express permission. Another priest testified that the admiral denied his request to baptize a female servant. They both claimed Columbus wanted Indians taken as slaves rather than baptized and converted. Other witnesses backed up the assertion that Columbus sought to turn the people of Hispaniola into commodities rather than souls to be saved. One witness testified that in the last six and a half years, Columbus ordered a dozen or more Spaniards to be whipped in public, tied by the neck, and bound together by the feet because they'd traded gold when starving and had done so without Columbus's permission. Another witness testified he had ordered a woman to be stripped and placed on the back of a donkey and whipped because she falsely claimed she was pregnant. Another woman's tongue was cut out because she'd spoken ill of the, al of the admiral and his brothers. The supposed insult, if you're wondering. She said his father was a weaver and that he and his brothers were journeymen. Now, another testified that Columbus had punished one Spaniard for being a traitor and a sodomite and had his throat slit, which, mind you, the problem in Spanish law was not with killing someone for being a sodomite, but because the witness objected to the executed conquistadors being called a traitor. Countless men told Bobadilla that Columbus hanged hungry men who stole bread, that he cut the ears and nose off one criminal, who was then whipped, shackled, and banished from the island. One cabin boy who pulled a trap from a river and stole the fish had his hailed nailed in public to the spot where he'd stolen it from. Whippings occurred frequently under Columbus. One man received a hundred lashes for stealing a sheep. Another received a hundred lashes for lying about the man who stole the sheep. And one particularly unlucky fellow named Juan Moreno received 100 lashings for failing to gather enough food for Columbus's pantry. Some of the hangings and punishment meted out by Columbus weren't even done with trial. On-the-spot hangings weren't unheard of on Hispaniola. And while Columbus may not have been guilty of all the crimes uh, he was accused of having committed as dictator of the island, his cruel mismanagement of Hispaniola made Bobadilla's job of taking over the island pretty easy. Now, once the trial was over, all three Columbus brothers were arrested. Columbus's gold was confiscated and melted down. Bobadilla raided Columbus' house and took all the valuables for himself. And by the time Bobadilla ordered Columbus to be sent back to Spain on the ships, 
The Almirante had been treated so harshly in such a short period of time, he was incredulous when his captors told him he wasn't being sent to his execution, but was being sent back to Spain. Even after that, though, Bobadilla was fearful that Columbus might find some way to escape. The Almirante's reputation as navigator was so great that he ordered Columbus confined to chains for the entire voyage back to Spain. Thus ended the third voyage of Christopher Columbus. Now, we're going to be talking an awful lot about the brand, still brand new Spanish administration uh, after Columbus and the happenings of Hispaniola a lot more next episode. But for now, since this episode is about Christopher Columbus, we're going to put that on the back burner so we can keep talking about our Almirante. Because despite Columbus's disgraceful exit from the Caribbean in the year 1500, he managed to make a fourth voyage to the New World. Now, the fact that Christopher Columbus ever made a fourth voyage is a sheer testament to the man's charisma. Obviously, charisma, uh, Columbus didn't have the greatest personality, but he had, I mean, he had literally just had this like, kind of like an impeccable ability to just piss people off, hence all the testimony against him. But he also had the ability to create an image of himself. And this was a very important skill to have in the royal court. The young, skillful navigator presented him such when he was younger and seeking patronage for his first voyage. For many years afterwards, Columbus presented himself as a successful and loyal conquistador for Spain. Now, as he reached the shores of Spain, he presented himself as a pitiful and wrongly accused man. He refused to take off the chains to which he was shackled. And when he arrived at court, wearing manacles, this greatly embarrassed the monarchs. Ferdinand and Isabella had realized that Columbus was not an acceptable gov governor of the Indies, but they liked and admired their admiral of the ocean sea. So he was released quickly. His charges were dropped, but he didn't get his lordship of Hispaniola back. He did get to keep his noble title, which he passed down to his children, and they gave him his gold back and declared that Bobadilla had overstepped his bounds, and so a new, new governor of Hispaniola was appointed. His name was Nicolas de Ovando. Now, Columbus, meanwhile, busied himself with obtaining a fourth and what would be his final voyage to the Americas. Fifty-one now, with gray hair and half-blind, nevertheless, he managed to obtain that funding to set out with four vessels one last time. This voyage would be a family affair. His brother Bartolomeo captained one of the ships, and Columbus's son Ferdinand, who would later record his father's exploits, came along as well at the age of 13. They left from Cadiz on May 9th, 1502, eventually made their way to the Caribbean after a stay at the Canaries on June 15th. After first heading to Dominica and Puerto Rico, Columbus went straight for Santo Domingo on Hispaniola, the one place he really wasn't supposed to go, which was now under the command of Nicolas de Ovando. Ovando had taken over governorship of Hispaniola, and while that happened, Francisco Bobadilla was organizing a return voyage to Spain, along with a huge quantity of gold, various captured Indians, including one of the chieftains of Hispaniola, uh, Guarionex, who was going to be presented as a trophy to the king and queen, Roldan the Rebel was going back to Spain. Bobadilla of himself, of course, was, uh, was in this, uh, on one of the ships. There were 30 ships in all. They carried 200,000 castaneos of gold. 
equal to a sum which would be well into the hundreds of millions of dollars today. One of the nuggets was said to be the largest in the Indies. Um, all of that was going on when Columbus landed on Wednesday, June 29th. Then, when he arrived at Hispaniola, he looked up at the clouds and immediately dispatched one of his captains to Ovando. Now, the sky might have seemed strange to a lot of the Europeans on Hispaniola, but Columbus was the one who'd spent years in the Caribbean, and only the Almirante knew a hurricane when he saw one. He tried to warn Ovando, as well as use the storm as a pretense for his landing in the harbor. He was denied. Uh, there was no way Ovando was going to let Columbus come to Santo Domingo, and so Columbus had to hurry his way to safety. He made his way just barely to the other side of the island before the storm hit. And that was how Columbus became known as a powerful sorcerer. Yes, you, you heard me right. A powerful sorcerer. I'm not making that up. We're about 150 years or so before the Salem witch trials at this point. Just, you know, keep that in mind. On July 11th, 1502, the Spanish treasure fleet was between Hispaniola and Puerto Rico when a great hurricane swept through the Greater Antilles. There was nothing that those aboard the ships could do. Santo Domingo blew apart, and Bobadilla's treasure fleet sank into the depths. A few nearly escaped. Nine ships actually managed to start sailing their way back to Domingo and sank in the harbor just before they, they arrived. Twenty ships were lost at sea. Over 500 Spanish and Tainos drowned. Guarionex the chieftain, Roldan the rebel, and Bobadilla, the special investigator amongst them. The entire fleet and all the treasure aboard it was lost, except for one ship. One tiny ship of the thirty, considered the least seaworthy of all the fleet and named Aguja, survived. Aguja carried Columbus's treasure, the only gold to survive the hurricane. And so it became known, both throughout Europe and the Caribbean, that a great sorcerer named Columbus vanquished his foes in revenge for removing him from power by conjuring a great storm to destroy them. In contrast, Columbus only lost one of his four ships. The fleet was broken apart, however, and it wasn't until the next day that Columbus realized his faithful brother, Bartolomeo, was still alive and well. During that summer, numerous storms stalked the Caribbean, and Columbus made his way to the American mainland once more. He made landfall in what is now Honduras on August 14, 1502, after having first met with a canoe of natives, who I think might have been Mayas. It's possible they were Aztecs, but either way, they were very frightening to Columbus's son Ferdinand, much more so than the natives of the Caribbean. Quote, they tattoo their arms and bodies by burning in Moorish-style designs that give them a strange aspect. Some display painted lions, others deer, others turreted castles. They really do look like devils, unquote. More than a hundred of the fearsome-looking locals met Columbus at the shore, where they traded food for hawks, bells, and beads. Columbus continued exploring Central America until 1503, at which point he became ill, very ill once again, and decided to go back to Spain. This journey, though, would not be quick. He... Columbus encountered one final storm, and this finally proved to be one too many for the old mariner. His ship was damaged, and he just barely kept it afloat as he made his way to Jamaica. 
completely shipwrecked, quote, with neither the implements nor the artisans needed for the task, unquote, of repairing the ships or making rafts. Eventually, he sent one Diego Mendez and some other men in two canoes with Indians. And the Spanish were terrified of going on the open ocean in these canoes, but they needed to head back to Hispaniola. They made the trip in five days and found that Hispaniola's governor, Nicolas de Ovando, who previously had forbid Columbus from landing in San Domingo, was completely unwilling to help. In fact, he forbid any ships from going to Jamaica. So when the, when the rescue party never arrived, Columbus wondered if Mendez and the others had even survived the journey. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, while the old, worn-out, and sick Columbus allowed him once again to fall himself allowed himself once again to fall into fantasy, such as when he'd done before when he believed he discovered Eden. And um, that wasn't a very popular thing for him to be doing amongst the other castaways. Two of them, Francisco and Diego Porras, brothers who were one of who were brothers who were one of the sh uh, ship's captains and fleet's comptroller, respectively, decided they'd have enough. They began yet one more mutiny against Columbus. I mean, people really sometimes didn't like him. The date was January 2nd, 1504, and the poorest brothers had no intention of dying on this godforsaken island. When they'd first shipwrecked, Columbus had the island scoured for canoes. Those not taken by Mendez were now taken by the mutineers, who promptly attempted uh, to escape their island prison in them. Ferdinand tells us, in fact, that not even 20 men would have stayed with Columbus if it weren't for the fact that many of the castaways were like Columbus. They were too sick to attempt leaving. They and Columbus watched the mutineers set off from the Jamaican coast, though they only made it about four leagues. Then the wind turned contrary, and the seas grew high, the men feared drowning, and so the canoe-born conquistadors did what conquistadors do. They started killing some Indians. Uh, they'd taken plenty of Taino with them as guides, and now they were tossing the dead overboard to make the canoes lighter in the high seas. And once they started doing this, the other Indian guides just started jumping overboard, swimming away from the canoes, until they were too tired and were forced to return to cling to the boats, only to have the Spaniards cut off their hands as they tried to reboard. Quoting Ferdinand, They killed 18 this way, sparing only a few needed to steer the canoes. This was the Indians' reward for listening to their false promises and their pleas for aid, unquote. In the end, the renegade Spaniards returned to the Jamaican coast. They stayed at a Taino village called Ayomakike. There, so now there were two groups of Europeans on Jamaica, and uh, the mutineers, although the mutineers did try to escape again, they were forced to return a second time uh, because of, you know, high seas or bad winds or whatever. And, and when that happened, the tensions between the two groups really started to increase. Columbus and his men were at the ruins of his ship, and both groups were dependent upon the locals. As time passed, the rebels were able to convince the Indians to trade less and less with Columbus's group, such that Columbus and his men began to starve. Columbus did something after that, which is, is kind of admirable. He came up with a masterful plan to solve this emergency. He used his reputation as a sorcerer who could command tides and weather to trick the Tainos into supporting him and his men. To do this, he consulted his book of charts, which had astronomical tables in them, 
and he saw that there was a lunar eclipse coming on February 29th, 1504, and when he correctly predicted this eclipse to the Taino, along with giving them a warning of how angry it would be, God would be if they didn't start, you know, giving him some food and, you know, giving Columbus a little more respect around here, well, the Tainos, well, I mean, he just caused an eclipse. I guess we better give him the food. Anyway, finally, eight months later, after Mendez had set off to Santo Domingo, Nicolas de Ovando finally sent a ship to Jamaica. A small, a small caravel appeared off the coast in late March, by which time, uh, you know, the mutiny was in full force. Um, unfortunately for Columbus or the mutineers, the captain uh, that was sent, a man named Diego de Escobar, had only been sent by Ovando to spy on Columbus, whom the governor feared had come to take over Hispaniola. Escobar informed Columbus and the others that his ship was by no means large enough to take the admiral and his men off the island, much to his personal regret. He hoped to send one soon, though. He left and gave Columbus a barrel of wine and a slab of salt pork, which at least were very luxurious things to own if one is shipwrecked on an island. And without, with that done, Escobar left, quote, without even taking letters from anyone, unquote. Very rude, if you ask me. Columbus was still elated, because Escobar had left him with one last gift, a letter from Diego Mendez. Mendez related the story about how it took him five days to reach Hispaniola, that they nearly died of thirst along the way, and afterwards, when he'd made his way to Zaragua, finding Ovando, who was in the middle of fading, fighting the latest Taino rebellion, um, Mendez reported that Ovando, he witnessed Ovando burn or hang 84 ruling caciques to end the campaign, which even his fellow conquistadors remarked as upon as being barbaric. Ovando... Uh, hung women, burned villages, he executed practically everyone he could get his hands on, and he kept Mendez in his service for eight months before finally giving him permission to leave. Mendez sailed back to Spain, and there, drawing on Columbus's, quote, funds and resources, was able to buy and equip a caravel, and finally sailed back to Jamaica in late May 1504, finally rescuing Columbus and his companions after they'd spent an entire year marooned on Jamaica. Columbus, quote, had never known so joyful a day since he never expected to leave Jamaica alive, unquote. Now, before sailing back to Spain, though, uh, Columbus's brother, the Adelantado, went out to fight the mutineers. Um, Bartolomeo was kind of a badass, and when his company met the rebels, they charged at the Adelantado, yelling, kill, kill. Bartolomeo and his forces were successful, though. Five of the mutineers were dead after the quick skirmish. The surviving mutineers sent word to Columbus after this that they were very, very sorry. Please take pity on them. And after all, I mean, they really did believe he was a sorcerer, and they hadn't really been sure if Mendez's caravel was real or it was an illusion. Um, Please take us home, they said. And so it was that, quote, friends and enemies alike all departed the island together on June 28th, 1504. They arrived at Santo Domingo, where Columbus received a warm welcome, something that surprised him. Regardless, Ovando made it plain that Columbus would not be staying, and a month later, on September 12, 1504, Columbus sailed from Hispaniola and back to Spain, ending his fourth and final voyage across the Atlantic. The Almirante spent many of his remaining uh, days attempting to regain the offices and power which he'd lost, but it just wasn't to be. 
By the time of his return, Queen Isabella was at the end of her life. And she was Columbus's champion, not Ferdinand. The Queen died on November 6th, and with her passing went any real hope that Columbus would receive backing for more voyages or for a return to Hispaniola's governorship. Now, that didn't mean he didn't stop trying, because he did. But Ferdinand was not convinced. Eventually, the king told Columbus that he was done listening to the Almirante, and if he wished to continue to argue his case, he could do so in the Spanish court system. Columbus declined that offer. His son explained by that this time his father was, quote, weary to the bone, and simply wanted to go off somewhere on his own and rest. So he did, at the city of Valladolid. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. He rested there until his death, at the age of 54, on May 20th, 1506. I don't know that Columbus was particularly happy when he died, By that point, he felt King Ferdinand had screwed him out of the promises that earlier he and his queen Isabella had made him. Quote, Los Casas wrote, quote, So it was that a man who had, by his own efforts, discovered another world, greater than the one we knew before, and far more blessed, departed this life in a state of distress and bitterness and poverty. He died dispossessed and stripped of the position and honors he had earned by his tireless and heroic efforts, and by risking his life over and over again, unquote. And by the time of his death, the world moved beyond Columbus. He continued to argue the terms of his contract, which gave him power of the Indies, but by that time many in the know realized that whatever the Americas were, they certainly were not Asia. By the time Columbus was on his deathbed, he was convinced the king had become hostile to him. This really just wasn't true. I mean, Columbus's ambition had grown, grown over the course of his life. And I think the failures, that some of the failures to meet those goals, I think maybe clouded his judgment. I mean, Ferdinand, King Ferdinand, was remarkably friendly to the Columbus family. Diego received a pension of 50,000 Maravedis a year. And uh, Ferdinand's royal clout ensured that Diego was then married to a prominent noble family and eventually even restored Columbus's son as the governor of Hispaniola. And, but with that said, even though he was haunted by these failures, I can't really say that Columbus was completely unhappy. I mean, throughout his name, he took his name quite seriously, Christopher, the bearer of Christ. As disappointed as he might have been with whatever happened to his wealth and power, when he died, he did so as a man certain of his place in the kingdom of heaven. His legacy was also set. He'd achieved a number of impressive titles throughout his life, admiral, viceroy, governor. He had turned his son, into the inheritors of an aristocratic dynasty. When he died, his name was on the lips of every educated person in the Western world. If we are to judge Columbus by his accomplishments in his life, and then he was an undisputed success. But if ever a case can be made 
for judging a person on their contribution to mankind rather than on his or her personal accomplishments, Columbus is that person. Columbus is so famous today, not just because he achieved, but because he began a process which historians call the Columbian Exchange. That is, say, like the true separator of what Columbus did and, say, what the Vikings accomplished hundreds of years earlier. In 1492, there were no tomatoes in Europe, so there was no tomato sauce in Italy. There was no salsa in Spain. Tobacco was smoked in the Americas, but no one was smoking a cigarette in Paris. No one in Ireland had much less seen, had seen much less tasted a potato. There was no rice in the Americas. So while people in Mexico made tortillas, they didn't have rice in their burritos. They also didn't eat pork or beef or chicken. They ate turkeys. And they only learned how to ride a horse after 1492. Of course, plants and animals are only part of our ecosystem. Old world pathogens like smallpox, measles, chickenpox, influenza, yellow finger, yellow fever, excuse me, dengue fever, and malaria all reached America and left America covered in a blanket of suffering and destruction after 1492. Wheat, turnips, barley, apples, lilacs, daisies, daffodils, lemons, oranges, lettuce, cabbage, pears, peaches, bananas, and coffee all made the trip from the old world to the new, while corn, beans, squash, pumpkins, peppers, peanuts, chocolate, endless varieties of potatoes, sweet or otherwise, all went from the Americas to Europe. If we were to judge Columbus on his mark in mankind, I, there are few who can match what he did. I mean, off the top of my head, only the m most well-known and greatest of emperors Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Mansa Musa, the, these are the only other historical figures who influenced the world to the extent that this ambitious kid from Italy did. He just wanted to grow up to be a baller, a shot caller. I don't know about you, but even with all this in mind, I find myself judging Columbus by his unpunished crimes against humanity, not his accomplishments. Columbus grew up and became intimate with the new African slave trade during his work for the Portuguese. And he transported that particular set of skills with him into the Caribbean afterwards. I and mean, we can separate Columbus from the crimes of later conquistadors. We can separate him from the tens of millions who died in the Americas from disease. I mean, he certainly didn't understand those biological forces. But even if we do this, that leaves us with a Columbus whose actions left him responsible for countless deaths, thefts, and rapes in the New World, the enslavement and sale of thousands. From that perspective, I find Columbus to be a no-good, good-for-nothing son of a bitch. I'd tell him to go straight to hell if I saw him, except for even if I could tell him that, I, I, undoubtedly he would literally sail right up the river Styx. I started out hating Columbus when I did this episode, just so you know, but I don't, I don't really hate him as much anymore. I mean, if you don't know, a big reason why I'm doing this whole podcast is because years ago, 
I was in, in college and I read Columbus's first letter to the Catholic monarchs of Spain. And I was struck that upon immediately upon reaching the Caribbean, Columbus notices how he might easily enslave and rule over the friendly and naked Tainos. And I wanted to understand why. How and why someone might even have that thought. And I hated Columbus for it. Now that I'm finished with this episode and all the research I did, I still judge Columbus to be guilty of those many crimes. I can't personally sentence him to an eternity of damnation. I don't even believe in hell. What I can do is tell the true story of Columbus's life and make sure that everyone knows about his crimes. But I don't hate him. You see, it's occurred to me that Columbus is actually far too much like myself for me to hate him. Like Columbus, I too am on a grand voyage. A voyage into the unknown, which few understand, and most see doomed to failure. Hell, I probably would fail, except I've got an unyielding determination to succeed, and I've got a few patrons. That's patreon.com slash atlanticworld if you want to help. Like Columbus before me, no matter what the doubters might say, I know that my path is the correct one. So instead of hating Columbus, I think it's better to view him as a warning. And even if you like Columbus, maybe you disagree with me and see his crimes as something like the ends justifying the means. Well, I think you want to see Columbus as a warning, too. You see, Columbus's crime stemmed from his ambition, a trait I have in abundance. Perhaps you might also. Columbus's ambitions went unchecked. He did anything for wealth, power, and fame. He captained slave ships off the African coast. He went to war in the Caribbean. He tortured and hanged Spaniards for disloyalty. He destroyed families by selling slaves. He did all of that out of a lust for power. In doing that, I think Columbus lost a lot of his humanity so that in his quest for power, looking back at it now, it's easier for us to see him as a villain, to hate him. But instead, I would urge you to instead be warned by Columbus. Because at the end of his life, he died begging for another taste of the power which he'd once grasped. His, lar his goals went largely unfilled. The ends did not justify the means for Columbus. So I see Columbus as a warning to not give up on my morality in an effort to satisfy ambi my ambition. And I think you would best serve your own life by doing the same. Now, anyway, if you've got a complex picture of who Columbus really was now, then I guess I've done a good job with this episode. The History of the Atlantic World podcast is going to detail the lives of many people who will be similarly complex. Africans who killed their masters to escape from freedom. Sailors who mutiny and kill their captains. Founding fathers who fought for freedom yet owned slaves. At its best, this podcast will teach us all about those people who lived in the past. And in doing so, we're going to learn a little bit about ourselves too.
And besides that, we're going to be exploring what I had just mentioned, the Columbian Exchange. And, and just as much as the Columbian Exchange was a biological phenomenon, it's also a social and cultural phenomenon. You see, when Columbus made his voyage, he connected two old worlds. And when I talk nowadays about the New World, I'm not talking about the Americas, and in some ways the Europeans weren't either. The New World was what happened after those two old worlds were connected. In the years since Columbus's voyages, new forms kind of of global culture emerged. Now, obviously terrible things have been going on to mankind since time immemorial. But Columbus helped usher in a new global society that was based on control, domination, death, slavery, and profit. Conspiratorially-minded folks today might even refer to it as a new world order. The History of the Atlantic World podcast is going to trace the formation of the new global order, which Columbus institutes, helps institute. It's going to answer questions. And if you've ever pondered why there are people born on this planet who are born without access to food and water, and people like that can be heavily taxed, while on the other hand, things like you know global conglomerates can own so much and pay so little. Why is it that they can strip the natural resources from this planet for profit? Why can they threaten the very survival of our species by showing markedly more care for their own profits than for the human beings who live on this planet? I mean, all that seems pretty suspicious to me, and if you think, if you think it's suspicious too, well, I'm, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, there's very, something very suspicious about that. In fact, there are chilling continuities from 1492 into the present. I mean, there's fascists burning the Amazon forest. Children are being caged in the United States. We live in this new world order. I think it would serve you well to understand how it functions. And so this podcast is going to detail how it came to be that we live in a colonized, corporatized world. That in many ways, you know, there's many things wonderful about this world, but it also, in some ways, acts as a combination of a prison and a meat grinder. Another form of global culture also developed, though, in the aftermath of the Columbian Exchange. It's been symbolized by rebellious responses that people have had throughout the centuries to the rise of sugar plantations and joint stock companies. It is a culture opposed to bosses and hierarchies and instead seeks liberty. The repercussions of Columbus's voyage have resounded through the centuries. And in the podcast episodes I'm going to continue doing, we're going to learn all about the people who rebelled against the systems of death and subjugation that have followed in Columbus's wake. And by learning this history, we will learn strategies used by revolutionaries, by pirates, by escaped slaves, by all sorts of downtrodden people that will help us continue the fight of spreading liberty today and into the future. If you're new to this podcast, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I want you to know 
we're also on an important mission. Welcome aboard, matey. This is a battle cry for freedom. We're going to save the world, one episode at a time. So, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, rate, and review. Once again, thank you for supporting the show. That's patreon.com slash atlanticworld. Um, all the support you give really helps out uh, me get quality episodes out faster. And I'll be back with our next episode, The Genocide of the Tainos. Uh, we'll be back with that soon. Until then, my friends, viva Lula de Silva! Ship.